Greetings, all you Commanders, Eagles, and Angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's uh, <laughs> True History, History, and the Sarah and Our Galactic Origins for Saturday afternoon. Thank you for joining us here. Um, Cheryl is at a family gathering today, and so I'm happy to do the opening ceremonies here. So let's just take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out your mouth, slowly and gently. Three times is good as we come into that heart space. Let us let go of that dross of the day. And our heart space, let us gather with our guides, our guardians, our spirit team healing teams, those we like to journey with the Kimi drum with as we call in the seven sacred directions and the Cherokee tradition and the toning we will do is in the Navajo tradition. So, but the directions we're doing the around the north, going from east, north, west, south. That's Cherokee, the Navajo like to go, and most, actually most of the tribes will go that clockwise direction, east, south, west, and north. So well, let us begin. I can't, we can't hear you. You're, you're very like tinny. We can't really hear you talking. I can hear the drum, but I can't hear you talking. Can I, let me try something if you hold just a minute. I want to put on a headset and see if that works there. Okay. You're still very echoey. I can't understand. I I could make out you said how's this but I can't hear your real voice. Oh, okay. Let me try turning the volume down. Uh, that's, that's better. It is? Yeah. I didn't that's make any difference, but I didn't do anything. Where you but, are right now, if you just stay where you are, relationship to the microphone, it'll be fine. Well, the microphone is in the headset, so I have no where it is. It didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> you sound- let me try, I want to try this drum beat. How's that? Oh, that's much better. Okay, we're on. I got a headset. We're going to do this the right way. Okay. <laughs> oh, let's see. What were we doing? Oh, we were calling in the Divine Feminine. All right. Okay, so thank you for that sacred place in between setting sun and for giving us the strength to look deeply within our hearts, welcoming our hearts, our hurts and our fears and letting us to be transformed. Give thanks to Otter for your playfulness and your women's medicine. Wado, 
for this tone for the West is E and it's for awareness. So please tone with me. Dolphin, the lizard, the dragonfly, 
beautiful guardian and messengers of the three times. Thank you for joining us here today. Wado. Now I'd like for you to reach down and touch the earth. Even if you're on the sixth floor, you can still touch the earth this way, so do it. Put your hands on the earth. All you spirit keepers of the earth, come. Come join us here today together. Pachamama, Gaia, Mother Earth, thank you. Thank you for our life. Thank you for all of your children of the earth. Blanket. The earth blanket that all little living plants and beings of the earth, you creepy crawlers and the winged ones and the thin ones, four-legged. Thank you for keeping us alive. Many gratitude for the life. We're connected that web of life. The equality each member of the planet Thank you, Mother Earth. Thank you. 
Okay. Just stay wherever that drumbeat took you. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to do the update as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's each of us that make it happen. And it's the time of giving this Christmas season, and we're requiring a lot of it. There have been um, financial difficulties for some of our regular people who are just don't have the um, funds, and so we're reaching out more and more. We need to um, collect more to make ends meet, and so in, invite others to join us and participate. And invite all of you to participate with uh, with our radio programs, especially. We're <clears throat> behind right now a bit. We're six hundred and fifty dollars behind, and we need another three hundred and twenty-five to come in this week as well. So if we can catch up from behind, we can catch up <laughs> again next week and make it and, and really end the year in a real balanced way is 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 my prayer and all of our prayer. So let's keep that in mind as we uh, make a donation. Our expenses are normally $300 a week, and uh, that's a good place to be. <laughs> so let's get there. and. Uh, yeah, you just need to go into your heart space and see what is yours to give, and then go to bdsradio.com, click on Radio Station 2, and that'll give you the menu for all the programs on Radio Station 2. So look on Saturday at the 1.30 hour, and you that's a Pacific time, so you'll see the true history, history, and the Sarah and our galactic origins listed there with Tara and Mama. Click on that icon there, and that'll take you directly to our account with BBS Radio. And we have two other programs that are on Radio Station 1, so you can find that menu if you want to go there and make that donation. It's Thursday night at 6, as the night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon as well. And then the Friday show is the hard news on Friday night with Tara and Rama. You can click on that icon there at the 6 o'clock hour. So there you go. That's the... The way to access our account with BBS Radio and so much gratitude for your all the ways that you show up and thank you for your generosity and thank you for spreading the word and letting other people know that uh, we can gather this way and thank you for reaching deep and being generous. We're so much, we're so grateful. We're grateful for all that BBS Radio does for us and we're grateful to be celebrating. The producers, Don and Doug, their birthday is tomorrow, so it would be lovely to be able to catch up a bit <laughs> and help celebrate their birthday. They are twins, so they get to celebrate together every year, and uh, we do appreciate them and wish them a very happy birthday celebration. And then what else? Yeah, we're also... And, and again, 13 thank yous, honey, in the heart for helping us get caught up with our BBS radios um, fees that we need. And then we're assisting Tar and Rama with their needs. And they have been having a car issue. They got the most dangerous part fixed. So thank you for the contributions that made that happen, that they were able to uh, get the money to cover the most dangerous part. But the still, they need the motor mounts. Where and that's also a bit dangerous, but 
<laughs> as long as my other segment doesn't climb in the car and weight it down, <laughs> it'll probably do all right until we get this, that done. So we're working on getting that done. It's going to cost $640 to do that work. Uh, the motor mounts are cheap. The labor is expensive. But everybody needs to thrive. So <laughs> thank you, thank you for your generous contributions for the shuttlecraft, as Rama lovingly calls it. Uh, and, um, I think it's Sapphire or Blue Star or something like that. But it does have a name. <laughs> anyway, um, we want her to be in good shape for, for Rama to do his work. And uh, he also needs $100 to cover a bill that's due this week. And another $250 would be great to have for living expenses so that they can eat and enjoy the, <laughs> enjoy the, the world of, of food. <laughs> so lots of gratitude for these contributions for Tara and Rama. Here's how we make that contribution. You want to access Rama's PayPal account, and you can do that two ways. One way is to go to rainbowroundtable.net. There on the home page, click on that menu grid, and the menu will drop down. Near the bottom of the menu is a donate link. Click on that. That will link you to Rama's PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount. So, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity. And um, let's see. As you do that, then uh, you can just use any bank card and make it happen that way. And then there's a... Another option, and that's the friends option, go to paypal.com, and in where it says you're gifting to, you need to put in the email of Rama, and that email from Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, at hotmail.com. So that's um, the way to access the friends option, so it eliminates commercial charges. Either way, it's perfect. We are so grateful for your contributions. Thank you so much. And as you're sending something, please let Rama know that email for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. So as you're sending something, shoot him an email, let them know what you sent, what you sent it. And then as you need it, there is a mailing address, and it is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. And that is Post Office Box uh, 280280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico. In the zip code 87567. So again, post office box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it. All the information and you know where it's going. It goes right on so they can be here every week and speak with us and, and give us all the good news. And, and so that we can gather with ourselves each week as well. And, uh, gather in this way. So there's so much gratitude and lots of blessings for the solstice coming up and 
all of the all of the holidays of this season, and Christmas is just a week away. So, Tara and Rama, I'm sending you this talking stick, and it's got sleigh bells all over it, so it jingles a bit, and lots of Christmas lights. It's blinking. Some of them are blinking. A lot of them. They're all blinking, and then. Just all the magic of Christmas. So it's got unicorns and dragons and just all of the, the magical rabbits. And, <laughs> and everybody's here. So greetings, Tyron Raleigh. Here comes this talking stick. Greetings. Aloha. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I know we're saying it early. But it's Happy good. solstice. New moon. Oh, yeah. Today is the 17th. Four more days. Four more days to solstice right now. Yes. Well. No, solstice is not that. It's Wednesday. Wednesday is the solstice. Yeah, that's what we said four days from now. Oh, I thought you said it was... Okay. What's tomorrow? Oh, it's Don and Doug's birthday. <laughs> it's Don and Doug's birthday. Happy birthday, Don and Doug. For tomorrow, <laughs> a wise 54. And uh, it adds up to a nine, so that's a completion cycle of a whole... All the little cycles and all the bigger cycles. It's completion year. Wrapping up from the past and fully being in the present then. And moving forward with fifth dimensional conscious awareness. And uh, it's always a nine year. Uh, uh, I mean a nine day uh, being on the 18th, but today, let's see, this, the whole thing is, um, this is, uh, 2022, and this is 12, 18. Uh, so that's a three, right? 30. And, uh, 30 and 6, that's another 9, oh my goodness. Oh well, it's 9, that's right, that's always 9. Okay, the whole, if I'm 6 and 30 is 9, 30, 36, and that's a 9. So the whole, the whole thing adds up to a 9 for this year. Okay, we're right there where we said we were, completion. And a completely new slate. Uh, it's usually fun to start new with new ideas. And the 2023 year, <clears throat> St. Germain's in charge of that year and it represents divine alchemy. Magic. What do you say about magic, Rama? Uh, magic of the most wonderful kind. Well, I mean, you did a little of that when you were Merlin, right? Yeah. 
I mean, you're still Merlin. Yes. <laughs> There's all kinds of magic uh, ceremonials that Merlin did. Yes. And got the uh, Arthur and friends to do with him. Yes. I was hanging out in the Arthur hologram. And Katumi overlighted um, Guinevere. Guinevere. Oh my goodness! I we had a we still have a friend, right? Rainbird remembers, but I don't know where she is now. I know she fell in love and she wanted to become a nurse, and so she did become a nurse. And then I. Think she's having a family life mm. somewhere over the rainbow. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say these kids that are coming in right now are giving all of us something to think about. How are we going to leave the world? And so this um, this uh, piece we're going to play right now. Uh, Rama, it's uh, called Decoding the Principles of Hermetic Wisdom with Robert Edward Grant and Aubrey Marcus. Uh, and it's his podcast. He's going to interview this gentleman. And this is what it says. Who was Hermes Tries Majestic? Oh, Katumi. Mm-hmm. And Katumi's title is World Teacher. That's what, and he's been so many incarnations that do that. Pythagoras was a Katumi incarnation. Uh, Tehuti in Atlantis. Sanaka Kumara or Quetzalcoatl. That's a Katumi incarnation too in Central America. Who was Hermes Trice Majestus and what are his teachings? What can we learn today from this? What can we learn today from the esoteric wisdom that withstood the passage of time, kept alive for thousands of years? Polymath Robert Edward Grant is a wealth of wisdom in a great many fields. And today he came on the podcast to explore these very questions. We dive in. You want to do this first or should we do Dr. Greer, Dr. Greer first? Um, Dr. Greer is the kind of the news that has happened in the last week. Okay, we'll do that. Well, we'll finish reading this and keep it in mind, and we'll play that one later. Okay, so we dive into the seven hermetic principles as described by the Kabbalion, one of the great foundational esoteric teachings from whence we source quotes such as, as above, so below, as well as this deep dive into the Kabbalion. 
Robert decodes other profound esoteric teachings rooted in other ancient sources, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Book of Enoch, the Emerald Tablets, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Mm. and many other related works. So we're going to get a whole dose when we play that. Um, Rama checked. Penny had something to send, but Rama didn't find it yet, so I'm not sure. So I guess we'll just say that the situation with the vaccine situation. Uh, I know that what she was going to send had something to do with going back over the HIV vaccination project uh, in the 80s. And there's a whole story about that, too. They made people with HIV suffer tremendously. Uh, and uh, it had nothing to do with gay. They intentionally put it into the blood banks of gay people in order to make, and then say it's because you're gay that you got sick. That is nonsense. Evil is evil. And we forgive it all right now and let it go. Peace is worse. Uh, Peace is worth that. And I've been saying for a while, keep our friends close and keep our enemies even closer. (laughs) I would say by enemies, those are the dichotomies that are still inside of us. I'm sure about or having very negative feelings about a group of people. And uh, it's really important because there is no such thing as equality unless we can take it in and be it ourselves. Um, that being said, that's where we get our lesson plan. And, of course, choosing love is Ours to do. What do you say, Rama? I did Okay. So, I guess what the main issue here about what Dr. Greer has to say is about what, Rama? About uh, fusion and how this discovery breakthrough that happened in the last week isn't exactly the right way to create like cold, cold Fusion or other, you know, like the way the sun create fusion. It's about magnetics. And they use lasers to create the uh, fusion uh, story. Yet, the way it's being described by Dr. Rear, it's very expensive in this way they did it at uh, Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. and So he's going to give us a better idea of what to do? Yeah, and it, I haven't listened to it yet. It is, you know, certainly, I believe, higher wisdom coming from his connections with the Galactics because um, ultimately it's about this Merkaba vehicle where you project your thoughts, you go. 
I leave it there. Okay, well, let's go do it. We're going to get started, everybody. Really nice and early here, so we can get this. Afternoon, Dr. Greer. Hello, Pat. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Good, good. Well, we're excited to give everyone an update. We've got a lot of questions yes. that have been coming in about the uh, news story this week. Right. Um, earlier this week, the Department of Energy announced a monumental milestone in the nuclear fusion research. A net energy gain was achieved for the first time in history by scientists from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. So can you talk a little bit about your thoughts when you heard this and your thoughts now that you've had a chance to kind of look into this a little more? Well, we have looked into it very carefully. And one of the things that uh, was not uh, focused on is uh, uh, some really key things about this. The energy gain that they achieved was the equivalent of a 0.1 kilowatt hour. So that's a tenth of a kilowatt for an hour, which is enough to boil a a kettle of water. Um, They've spent $3.5 billion of our taxpayer money uh, from the Department of Energy at Lawrence Livermore. There have been $5 billion spent on private fusion initiatives. Uh, this particular reaction, the one silver lining in it, is that scientifically they are claiming they got more energy out than in, so they are admitting and what is called an over-unity result. Over-unity meaning you put in uh, one unit of power and you get out two or what have you. But in this case, the amount of gain was very, very small. It took a couple of hundred high-powered high-energy lasers aimed at a pellet of tritium and deuterium, which are uh, radioactive isotopes, to smash them together. And when you see the headline that they got more energy out than in because of fusion, which is when uh, you know two atoms uh, fuse together, like in the sun or a hydrogen bomb, what they're leaving out is the enormous amount of energy it took to run these nearly 200 lasers. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit, it's it's a very deceptive, actually, and I would go close to calling this fraudulent because <laughs> it's like you plugging in your electric car to a coal-fired grid and saying you're driving on free electricity because once you get the car running, it's not using any uh, electricity from the grid anymore. But, of course, it runs down, and each time you have to then put in, uh, plug it in again, and it's pulling energy out of a coal-fired, gas-fired, oil-fired grid for uh, 88% of the energy that we use in our electric grid. So it's a very interesting announcement. Now, I I guess from a a, a theoretical point of view, uh, they achieved a uh, fusion event. Um, which they have been searching for for a long time. But to claim that this is some kind of solution for a carbon-free energy future brings up a whole lot of issues. Mm. Number one, you can't discount to zero the amount of energy it takes to run the machine. So in this case, if you factor in the amount of energy it took to get those two atoms to fuse together, it was nowhere near over unity. It was nowhere near a net energy gain. It was a enormous 1,000, 
200 times, 1,200 times energy loss. So it took 1,200 times more energy from the lasers to create the ignition, they call it, and the fusion where they got this tiny gain. Now, in, I'm not sure in what universe they think that you would achieve that reaction without having to put energy into the system. Uh, I guess one could theoretically claim that once you got it going, it could become a chain reaction. The problem with that is the temperatures involved were 3 million degrees. In some of the private fusion experiments, they've been 300 million degrees. This brings up a big issue of safety. Mm-hmm. Who wants something that is that hot operating somewhere? Because if it were to have a breach, that amount of temperature would ignite the oxygen in the air. Yep. So you're getting into all kinds of technical issues beyond just the theoretical physics of, yes, we achieved fusion. But I want to remind people, a hydrogen bomb is a fusion reaction. Now, what do I mean? Hydrogen bombs, as opposed to atomic bombs, or, or, or hydrogen bombs are also called thermonuclear bombs. Mm-hmm. They usually use a small atomic bomb uh, to force fusion, uh, and and tritium is also used in hydrogen bombs, nuclear warheads, and, and that then causes fusion that causes this explosive energy release known as a nuclear weapon. Now, in this case, they're doing it on such a small scale that they're not having an explosion. The question is, you know, causing that to be a routine source of energy is a, uh, or certainly facts that are not in evidence from a science point of view. The other question is the supply of uh, tritium. Uh, There's not much of it around. And it costs, uh, as I mentioned, uh, $850,000 a pound, $30,000 a gram. And there's about 28 grams in an ounce. All right. So, uh, excuse me, not a pound. So it's $850,000 for an, an ounce of the stuff. So a pound of it, we're talking millions and millions. So if you were to have these reactors all over the place, Generating enough electricity, assuming you get into a true over-unity reaction that continues. Where is that coming from? How are you going to do that? Well, you can create tritium by bombarding lithium with uh, neutrons. and But that's a very expensive process. That's why it costs $30,000 a gram. So when you're looking at an ounce of this stuff causing, costing nearly a million bucks and you're looking at 8 billion people and you're looking at the technical challenges and the temperatures involved in this, all of this, when for 100 years there have been low-temperature plasma reactions, I've seen them, uh, and also electromagnetic systems like Tesla had that are pulling energy out of the quantum vacuum or zero-point energy field resulting in a real over-unity effect where you're getting much more power out than in. You know, the Floyd Sweet device, for example, that we are featuring in The Lost Century. And by the way, we really need everyone to go to thelostcenturyfilm.com and uh, contribute to that. We're about 
uh, 57% to our goal. Uh, I think in the next six weeks or so, we'll have the movie finished. And then by, we hope, May, late April or May, we're going to have it released. This movie is going to set the record straight on all of this. Uh, and our goal is that it is seen by at least uh, a billion people or so. The reason for it is that these sorts of announcements are suspect for their timing and their purpose. Uh, and let me get into this a little bit. Um, we, there's a history of when the truth begins to emerge on an issue, there are very powerful interests that want to pivot towards uh, an announcement that the whole media uh, covers and the global and the scientific community that basically is gaslighting or distracting, diverting uh, people. Uh, and it's a little bit strange that this announcement comes after we presented what we did in Santa Monica in October and the plans that we have to release um, the information about these genuine uh, earth-saving technologies, uh, which are behind, by the way, how UAPs and UFOs operate. Uh, they're, they, you know, they don't have nuclear power plants on them, and they're not burning jet fuel A or, or solid rockets. But there's no heat signature to them, and this has been confirmed by the Pentagon officially. So we're saying... Uh, what I'm saying here is that there, there's something that is rather suspect about the timing of this announcement and the lockstep coverage without much. I mean, the Guardian and a few pa- papers in Europe have questioned the legitimacy of this because they pointed out that the power needed to run those uh, nearly 200 lasers was not in the, uh, uh, the equation for it being uh, a net gain of power, which is, of course, ridiculous. Because the, the reaction didn't happen by itself. It cannot happen by itself. So then you get into this whole discussion of why would, you know, as the, as the National Security Agency people have told me, they set up things called DDT operations. And yes, it was a, a, a poisonous uh, insecticide, but the purpose of a DDT in, in the intelligence community, it stands for you set up a decoy. You distract everyone's attention and then you trash everyone's efforts to run down a rabbit hole and go into the weeds over here. It's a diversion. You just keep diverting people. But you see, we saw this happen before when the unacknowledged, the documentary that hit 760 million views around the world. Um, within a few months of that coming out, they stood up the TTSA and they stood up Elizondo and Chris Mill and other people that were had all the doors open to them in the mainstream media, everything from 60 Minutes on CBS to CNN everywhere else, saying, gee, you know, we don't know what these are. Maybe they're from China. All right? So that was a complete misdirect that the UFO community, the public, members of Congress, uh, people uh, in, in the media, they took that, they hook, line, and sinker. So my question here is, is that's what's going on here, but preemptively, because uh, we're working with a number of people, whether or not it makes it into this documentary film or not is unclear, that uh, uh, apparently have systems that that are operational, but they don't quite know how to kind of get it out there because of, they're afraid of repercussions or people have been known to disappear 
uh, or have problems when they begin to publicly acknowledge they have such a system, but which is what we're doing this documentary, The Lost Century, for. And this is why everyone listening, you know, if, if a few hundred thousand people who will see this, everyone went on there and, and just gave five dollars at thelostcenturyfilm.com, we'd have enough to finish the film and also get a huge amount of information and publicity out about it when it comes out this spring. So we need your help. But I think that the other issue I have with this, Pat, is when they announced this, uh, there was not enough people asking the hard questions that are in the fine print of the information that anyone, Google what I just said about tritium, what it costs, how rare it is. Look into the question of whether this over unity, more power net gain than it took is true when they left out. And I have not found yet how many, how much energy and power it was needed to run these nearly 200 uh, high powered, high energy lasers uh, to ignite this reaction with, with the, uh, with tritium. And uh, tritium, by the way, is H3, it's healing, it's hydrogen, it's, uh, it's an isotope of, of hydrogen, basically. It's called tritium, it's three hydrogen, it's an isotope. So the, that is something which you begin to question. If this is a, a legitimate scientific breakthrough, there should be an asterisk there because it's been known for decades since we first achieved fusion with for hydrogen bombs that you could get a lot of energy out more than you would have to put in. That's why they're so destructive. I mean, this is why this is news to anyone. For example, most people don't know what a thermonuclear weapon is, and so they can gaslight the public and the media. Not many journalists are, are versed in physics and, and whatnot. So I want to be very clear about this. Uh, this is not the first time there's been a... I just wanted to say that hydrogen nuclear weapons were what was detonated on Maldek, the planet between Mars and Jupiter. That's why we got an asteroid belt, and we don't need hydrogen bombs. That's all I wanted to say. No, the water was hydrogen uh, nuclear fallout. So it it probably altered the DNA sub- substantially when the whole population on planet Earth got radioactivated. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, this is part of the flood story, the ancient apocalypse that you know, they're trashing Graham Hancock talking about, you know, the flood. I didn't mean to divide. No, but that's an interesting point because our, our original DNA got altered. It and, did. Yeah, and that's why we, in a sense, it's just like what uh, Dr. Greer's saying is that we lost an entire century in terms of human evolution because of the fossil fuel industry. That's pretty serious. But Here yes, we, we can. Here we go. A hydrogen fusion reaction. Tritium's been used in nuclear warheads. I mean, that's how you do a hydrogen bomb, as opposed to an atomic bomb. Now, just to be clear, an atomic bomb, what we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 
that was a fission problem where you split the atom. And when you split the atom, you get all this energy. This is fusion where you combine and collide uh, atoms and they fuse together, which releases even more power. That's why a hydrogen bomb or thermonuclear bomb is so much more destructive than an atomic bomb. But that is something that was known science since the late 40s, early 50s, right? So in the early 50s, we detonated the first high hydrogen bomb, which was a fusion hydrogen bomb. Now, this obviously is not a bomb, thank God. They couldn't do that in a populated area. Lawrence Livermore labs there in the, the Bay Area of San Francisco uh, across the Bay. But uh, it's not as if fusion hadn't been done before. And in this case, yes, they had a minor amount of excess power, but there's no indication that that can be replicated free of the amount of power it would take to start the ignition. And that that would actually then carry on to something that would be commercially available. For example, as we had pointed out, and we're pointing this out in this documentary, The Lost Century, there's three billion people who have no means of uh, electricity or gas to cook their food. That's why they're cutting down all the brush and rainforests and all over the world in these impoverished areas. So, you know, that's pushing half the world's population, almost uh, 40% or so. So then the question becomes, how are you going to get something this complex and potentially dangerous deployed all over the world to really fix the disappearance of, of the, the rainforest and to fix the whole climate issue and the global poverty issue? Now, our tax dollars have been dumped to the tune of three and a half billion dollars into this. Private investment has gone five billion into private fusion initiatives. And to give you an idea, I'm quite sure that if there was 100 million, so the, you know, this is like a hundred billion dollar project, uh, you know, in, in, where there should be a hundred million dollar solution where you would basically bring in the scientists who understand the zero point quantum vacuum flux with these electromagnetic systems and also plasma systems, low temperature plasmas, a few thousand degrees, not millions. Uh, I was witness to one of these in Florida that uh, Professor Santilli had. I was also made aware of one in Salt Lake City that unfortunately was involved with a group who did not want to have it disclosed, but it was a plasma reactor that was filled up a closet area that had enough output to run all of the metropolitan area of Salt Lake City. No radiation, over unity, self-sustaining, etc. So, Given the fact that there is evidence and proofs that these systems have existed, why don't we have our government and also private investors give that area of research a chance rather than dumping tens of billions and, you know, into what's going on in China with the big international fusion reactor that has already consumed $22 billion, B, billion. So this is something that's both from a policy point of view and a scientific point of view is very worrisome. When an infinitesimal fraction of what's being spent on this fusion reactor research would give us a solution that would run everyone's house and car, but here's the big rub. Those solutions would preclude the giant industrial behemoths like General Electric and other big outfits 
of controlling the central power grid. This is a solution, if it were to ever work, that would empower massive multi-billion dollar facilities that is centralized with an electric distribution grid, the power lines, transmissions, that maintains the status quo of the economic global power of those who already have it. And this is a problem because huge swaths of Asia, India, Africa, Latin America don't have power lines to villages and poor areas. And it's trillions of dollars to build these power lines, never mind if the power plant, this fusion reactor, would even work when there's a solution where you wouldn't need any power lines because your house and your car would have one of these systems pulling energy out of the zero-point energy field. But see, that's why no one wants to support that because the big money knows that and the big government knows that, in fact, if you were to support that, you're going to cause a complete winding down of the centralized power, macroeconomic power, it's called globally, that is running the earth into the ground and is ensuring half the world's population is in poverty. So I think that this is something that has to be called out for what it is. Very suspect. The timing of it is suspect. And I I think that instead of trying to play catch-up from behind like they did when Unacknowledged came out, they're trying to get ahead of the curve. And try to say to the public, oh, gee, you know, now you don't need to worry. There's a real issue here psychologically because people see that headline. They go, oh, great. The global climate change and poverty issue is solved. There's no indication at all that this is a a solution for that. Um, But it would entice people, sort of like the electric car zeitgeist and solar and wind power kind of lulled people until very recently into thinking, oh, well, now there's a solution. We don't need to, to, to think of anything else. Right. And and so it's sort of like the Wizard of Oz uh, pulling all the levers, creating this big distraction that, you know, keeps everyone focused over here when if you pull the curtain back, you see that it's a, a very clever manipulation and deception. Now, some people say, well, that's rather cynical. I know it's how power and cartels and people operate. Uh, you know, this kind of, of deceptive uh, indication and warning, There's that's the name of these sort of operations at the Pentagon. So I think that we have to be uh, skeptical. It's fine to be hopeful. And the one good thing about it, they do admit that they got more energy out than in if you discount the lasers. But uh, and we can say, okay, so if you're admitting that's the case, why don't we do that with an electromagnetic system that doesn't have to be 3 million degrees? And why don't we do it with something that doesn't require tritium that costs $850,000 an ounce? Uh, so I think that, you know, it's something that we have to skillfully explain to the public. And this, we are going to add a little bit of this in the lost century. But, you know, that's, we're winding that production down. But it ain't over yet. I'm hoping it will be completely finished by the end of January so it can be handed off for distribution, which takes two or three months to prepare. But I think that we can include this issue and the points that I'm making here. But I think the, the other issue in my mind is to what extent has this been designed to placate 
public to make them, you know, sit back on their laurels. Because until very recently, that's what people were doing with solar and wind. And look, I'm a big advocate of anything besides something that, you know, pollutes the air. Because I have a gigantic solar farm at my country house. It's the largest legally allowed solar farm in Virginia. However, it won't run my house when the power goes out. It won't even heat it or cool it, even though it's the largest one allowed by law. So, you know, I, I'm willing to acknowledge it's better than nothing. And it's certainly better than burning wood or coal or oil or gas uh, or a nuclear reactor that creates a million years worth of, you know, cancer-causing radioactive debris. But, you know, we can do better than that. But I think that there's a slippery slope here where people think, well, now that that has been solved, we don't need to search for or fund. So it it sucks all the oxygen out of the room for alternative solutions that would be more practical and affordable and effective that would actually work uh, in time to actually save the biosphere and uh, get us off this extinction level event path that, that humanity is on right now. So I think all of these are big issues. You have to ask the question, uh, because most people only read the headlines, Pat. You know, what I found is that here's the headline. I don't know how many people who see the headlines drill down on the physics and the technical reality of what's behind that headline. And which is why I'm doing this YouTube uh, expose of it, because uh, anyone who wants to check the facts that I've just shared can check them. And they're there for anyone to check who's a scientist or anyone in the lay public who can in, in understand this kind of technical information. But I think the analysis that I want to bring to this is a much more specific one. And that is when I see this sort of event happen, I wonder if, in fact, there are some agendas unspoken as to why timing of it and what they're trying to do with this, because uh, recently, major, uh, classically liberal journals like The Economist and scientific journals have been pointing out that it's been made very evident with the Ukraine war and the Russia gas being cut off to Europe that the most green countries in the world have no way of running their homes and factories and businesses with wind and solar, even if they put trillions of dollars into it because there's not enough energy density. There's not enough battery storage capacity. I think there's something like globally uh, 75 seconds of energy uh, storage capacity in batteries uh, to, to run the needs of the planet. 75 seconds for the needs that we're actually consuming. So the lithium-ion batteries that are used for that uh, don't have enough storage capacity. And, of course, the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day. And the wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day. So you get into this real issue. How do you really move to a post-carbon, post-grimy, you know, coal, gas, oil, uh, nuclear power economy, all this dirty, destructive energy source? Uh, I don't think it's going to be a fusion reactor. It's going to be these technologies that no one is looking at. And the more there's a tension-grabbing headline like this, the more it's going to pull people's attention away from what we're trying to expose and advocate for over to a non-solution solution. And that, I think, is exactly what I would think. If I was in the other position, if I was on the other side of this trying to figure out how do we basically 
pull attention away from what the disclosure project is doing and what we're doing with these new energy uh, revelations about zero point, what have you, how do we capture the media attention and the public attention, the government's attention, the Department of Energy, the, the Department of Energy secretary who made this announcement, Granholm, how do we get them to, to just ignore all this? Because we've got, quote, serious scientists who have proven that we have a hydrogen economy and, and uh, uh, free energy, non-polluting with carbon. I think it's actually very highly manipulative. Yeah, so and that they've, that, targeted, uh, they've targeted, that's their market that they've targeted, right? The Congress, private investors, institutions, and the public. Media. And the media. The media. And the public. So <clears throat> this is typical. They've done the same thing with UFO secrecy for 70, 80 years. Um, I think that it's predictable. Uh, I would love it if an actual solution was revealed um, and supported. But when you drill down on this one, my concern is, and many physicists, by the way, I'm not the only person saying this. A lot of top physicists are saying exactly what I'm saying, uh, that it may or may not be, first of all, a reproducible experiment. No one's reproduced it yet. And, of course, if you don't reproduce it, so what? And then the other is that there are scientists pointing out rather pointedly that the amount of energy it took to start that what they call ignition, this over unity reaction fusion was 1,200 times more than they got out. Well, (laughs) that's a big hill to climb. I mean, you can go to Ace Hardware and get a 90% electric generator, you know, or any Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever. So, you know, you're getting into this question of, uh, when, when you're, you have to, you know, put in 1,200 times more energy to get enough energy out to boil a, 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 a tea kettle of water, you have to go, well, you know, this is worrisome because is this a deliberate omission or how are they whistling past that graveyard? Uh, and they're not presenting any solutions that would indicate that they can get around that start that energy needed to get the reaction going. This is why, you know, you have a little atomic bomb, very powerful, that ignites the fusion in a hydrogen bomb. It takes an enormous amount of energy to make that happen. You know, a star, like the sun, is a fusion reactor, but it's massive amounts of gravitational energy that then squeeze and force the the atoms together that causes the amount of energy needed to ignite a fusion, and then start something like a star. So these are all known facts and science. You can look these things up. And I think that from a policy and strategic point of view, which is where I'm, where I'm always looking at this, is what is this really going to lead to? Is it going to really lead to a solution? Or is it going to suck up all the money and energy and attention uh, and make people feel they can sit back on their laurels that, oh, we have a solution now. Because I'm hearing from people who are very big supporters of the disclosure project who say, oh, well, maybe this is a great breakthrough. Now we have an energy solution. Because they get and drill down on the data and the science behind the headlines. And that's why I think why I needed to urgently do this uh, YouTube analysis. Now, I hope it could be 
that someone figures out a way to pull this out of a $3 million or $300 million reaction to stumble across a plasma that is a few thousand degrees that can perpetually be running like the one that was up in Salt Lake City that they were keeping secret. It was kept secret after a four-star general got on the board of the organization and went south from there, uh, not to be heard from again. But I think that is something that if, if it led to that, that'd be great. But I think that's what we need to sort of steer people towards. And I think the Lost Century uh, film that we're doing may be able to have to ter- be able to turn that into a more productive, immediate solution, not something that's many, many decades down the road that may never work. So I think we have to find a way to make lemonade out of the lemon here. Because this announcement is a bit of a limit, and I find it very suspicious. I can't imagine what kind of facility, what kind of mega facility this would be to house 200 lasers that use, I think in The Guardian, one scientist said there was 500 megajoules going in there, which is like 138 kilowatt hours. I mean, I just can't imagine it, how big that, and how many yeah. do you have to have even really to cover what part of the globe well yeah and they got enough energy out to 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 to, to uh, boil a tea kettle now in contrast there are physicists who have pointed out that the zero point energy field the amount of energy in the volume of space in a coffee mug your coffee mug go look at one the amount of space inside that mug has enough latent energy to boil off all the waters of the world if it was accessed now, of course, physicists will say, well, there's no way to access it. Well, that's not true. It's just been covered up and, and suppressed. People have accessed it. But those devices always meet a, a early demise because there are corrupt interests that suppress them, which is the dynamic we're trying to change. So I think that this is this whole discussion here, uh, everyone listening to this needs to share this YouTube link with everyone they know and then share the link to the lostcenturyfilm.com because we need to actually do something to save humanity and the biosphere that's practical and isn't some sort of gaslighting of the public and the politicians and the scientific community and the media into this, into the weeds of this thing. Uh, by the way, you can, you can look up the size of this monstrosity at Lawrence Livermore Labs and uh, also the uh, big uh, international uh, fusion reactor they're building uh, in China that they've already spent $22 billion on. A lot of that has been U.S. taxpayer money, by the way. Um, and uh, they still don't have anything results from that reactor after dropping $22 billion into it. I would challenge people, give me less than 1% of that in an institute that we're, we want to form, and we would ha- have a breakthrough that for every home and car and business in the world and every village in Africa and India would be a real solution. But you see, it seems like the things that are real solutions never get the support uh, because, and, and make note here, tens of billions of dollars have gone into this hydrogen fusion research from government and private. I mentioned five billion private dollars have gone in. Why don't those same people just throw some tiny fraction of that in the direction of new energy research that's electromagnetic, 
the quantum vacuum flux, zero point, uh, hydrogen from the water, you know, like Stan Meyer's system or water Jenkins system. Why don't, why don't, why doesn't that happen? And it would take nowhere near the tens of billions that have gone in uh, to these other uh, boondoggles in physics. I, I, one of the things I thought of when I read the article uh, and how much personnel and years of research, uh, decades uh, and money, it reminds me of a friend of, of the Disclosure Project that I worked with back in the 90s who was a NASA research scientist, Dr. Richard Haynes. He says, oh, yes. He says, we consider ourselves white-collar welfare. That's why I wore my white shirt. Uh, white-collar welfare. Basically, it's these make-work products. You know, look, you know, look busy and do this and that. And, you know, they make these great salaries and pensions and everything. But that's what Dr. Haynes called what he and his colleagues were doing, white-collar welfare. I thought it was hilarious uh, when he used that expression. I had never heard it. But this, this reminds me a little bit of that. It's sort of like uh, a huge make-work project that people who are supporting it know it's never going to go anywhere. A lot of them know. I think some of them don't. A lot of them are very hopeful, um, but they're not educated. What we need to do is be sure they get educated on these other alternatives that are much more practical, for which there's a great deal of body of evidence, a huge body of evidence that they've existed in the past, um, and that a, a, a small amount of support. I mean, we're not asking for you know 22 billion like the Chinese uh, fusion reactor or the three and a half billion dollars that went into this Lawrence Livermore project, uh, and, and and give us a chance. Let's give the the inventors and the research community dealing with uh, these electromagnetic field uh, energy systems and and low temperature. 3,000 degree or so plasma systems uh, of several of which I've known about a chance and do it in an open source scientific way so that the whole world sees what's happening transparently. The results are dispersed transparently. People can reproduce them. I predict in a couple of years, not in 20 or 30, we have massive breakthroughs and the world's, uh, uh, fortunes in terms of the future of the, of humanity and the earth being healed of uh, the damage we've done to it would, would be a, a totally different story than the very long trajectory if it works at all for this fusion reactor business. Right. And they, they talked about the, um, they were talking about the scientists that are working with the goal of a multinational multi-billion dollar project called the international Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, or ITER, which is under construction in southern France now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you well, know, there, there's one in France, there's one in China. They're they're doing this all over, but it's it's an, it's it's you know tens of billions of dollars. If you have an enlarged prostate, do this 15 second Japanese ritual before bed to shrink it almost immediately. <laughs> Doctor Nemesh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, I think the DOE just said that they, in September they had made an investment of $50 million for public-private partnership for the fusion pilot plant designs. That's for the plant designs, and I, I doubt that's for the building of it. <laughs> I just really yeah, guess. exactly. Well, see, with that amount, we would be able to have an open-source lab. Open-source meaning everything being transmitted to the public. Any breakthroughs given freely 
to the scientific community and engineers around the world to prove or disprove. Um, you know, one of the things that I keep saying to any of you inventors out there working on these systems, uh, I'm, I'm going to a meeting uh, next week with some people who have these systems. I can't say where or who, because they want to be very hush-hush at this stage. But you don't try to make a product to sell before, before you've done the scientific work and had it disclosed in a way that people who are, quote, skilled in the art of electrical engineering or whatever can prove it. Because when you're talking about the one thing I always agree with Carl Sagan on, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You cannot, no one's going to take the word of an inventor and the little business, you know, that they have around them that this works. It has to be proven. It has to be tested independently. It has to be at least a version of it has to be open sourced so that any skeptical, not debunker, but a skeptical scientist can go, let me test this. Let us build this up from the plans that these guys have and let us test it and see if in fact it's putting out more energy than it has to go into it. And, and let us check the facts on this because if you don't do that, the public, the politicians, the media, and most importantly, the scientific community isn't going to believe it because while there are corrupt scientists and there are corrupt politicians, most of them are not. There's not like there's some vast conspiracy where everyone is in on this, but they need to see something more than the assertions and claims of the stakeholders, the investors and the inventor. And this is something I've never yet been able to convince uh, uh, an inventor or scientific team to do. They all treat it as if we got to keep this so secret. No one knows how it works. And we're going to just suddenly go from that to selling a product. I'm going, no, you cannot. You got to do this scientific process and disclose it just transparently, honestly, and let people test it. But that not only verifies it, which is very important when you're dealing with a radical claim like this, an over unity, more energy out than in claim, uh, which is many people say not possible due to the laws of thermodynamics, which is a false statement because what they're not factoring in is the amount of latent energy in the zero point quantum vacuum, which as I said, the volume of space in the coffee mug you have over there would, would, is enough energy to boil off all the uh, oceans of the planet, never mind, you know, heat a tea kettle. Mm. So I think that this is why we're advocating uh, a, a, a process where we get one system that actually is over unity, closed loop, meaning the output runs the input and it's there running, putting out energy. Because it continuously is tapping into this latent field of energy that is all around us, what Tesla called the infinite energy field. Um, and I think that if that were to happen, it doesn't preclude later that same group of scientists or, or group of investors to then create a product that could be sold at your local hardware store or online. It just means that it would establish it as a bona fide area of science. It would prove it. But most importantly, 
It would disclose it to the masses, what I would want to do if I got one of these today, tonight. I would contact everyone I know who has a million or more or a hundred million followers on social media and get them to send out to their followers the plans, the information. And then the first 20 of them we build, I would have it running their house and car. Because if, even if the corrupt media gets a phone call from the CIA saying, do not cover this. If you have a couple of billion people through a lot of these celebrities and influencers dropping links to it, then, you know, the cat's out of the bag. And that's our strategy. It's a very important thing that people understand. It's a strategy that would go make a workaround, uh, the, the embargo on information that the media government and suppression has been able to do. And we've studied uh, now for almost 30 years how they've done it, why they've done it, and what the mechanisms are. And that knowledge, which we'll present in, in the Lost Century uh, film, uh, informs this strategy I'm describing now. So this would be my other challenge to those listening. If you're concerned about the environment and energy and poverty, you should help us organize people who can fund this research and development lab to do exactly that and to take this to the next level where it would be really done transparently and scientifically. Because, you know, as a doctor, if someone were to come to me and say, I have a new treatment for leukemia, and but it's a secret. Nobody can know what it is. Nobody can know how it works. But, but here it's, you know, $50,000 a dose. Will you give it to your patient? I said, no. <laughs> you know, and, and so this is, you know, people who are these inventors and engineers and these sort of small investment groups that build up around them, they need to kind of learn a little bit that this isn't how you make a new industry and a new area of science or a new breakthrough in science, because that's just as ludicrous. No one's going to take the word of the advocate who stands to profit millions or billions of dollars and just say, yeah, I'm going to take your word for it. Um, no scientific breakthrough has ever advanced that way. It has to be released to people in a way that people can verify it, recreate it, reproduce it, and say, yeah, this is real. And I, I speak of this because I know in academia the opposite sometimes happens. <clears throat> I have a family member who shall remain unnamed who is in a very top door PhD program and the principal investigator under which this person was doing their uh, PhD was found to have falsified all the data that resulted in this person being a tenured professor mm-hmm. at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Oh and uh, this family member kind of blew the whistle on it and almost cost that person their entire career. But this happens in academia, too, where, you know, people don't check the facts and don't check the uh, reality. It happens in medicine. It happens in physics. It happens. In, there's junk science all over the place. So because of that, the people are, are right to be skeptical. Now, they need to be skeptical of the claims about this fusion reactor and look into the facts I have just shared. But Anyone who claims they have a, quote, free energy device 
or an over-unity energy device that's electromagnetic or plasma or water, they need to be able to say, here, here is a, it, it may, may not be the, the state of the art of what they have, but it needs to be a proof of principle system that can be tested, verified, published, put out to the public. Now, because this is an area of science that I don't think any mainstream physics journal will touch, uh, because those are also tend to be very hidebound and skeptical. It just needs to be put out publicly in a large enough way that enough engineers, scientists, and academic institutions begin to go, oh, well, let us try this. And they put it together, and voila, if it works, you're not going to be able to silence thousands of people who have reproduced that effect. You can't, because it's either going to work or it doesn't. So I, I strongly recommend to anyone listening to this YouTube who knows someone or themselves may have what a system, think about what I'm sharing and get in touch with us through our website, uh, seriousdisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S disclosure.com, all one word. And there's a box there to contact me and, you know, a contact box and, and let us know what you have and we can discuss this. I think there's a way of doing it where in this first phase, you open source it, you put it out, you educate the public, um, and then in the second phase, that doesn't preclude that group moving with something maybe they have uh, in the back room that may be more developed if they're wanting to be paranoid and be concerned about money. Uh, my concern is not money. My concern is the future of the planet and, and strategy and science. But I understand people who put millions of dollars into their research don't want to lose all that either. So I think that there is a way to do it that we need to find a way that uh, satisfies those needs. Um, but ultimately, it's not going to go anywhere, A, if it's not scientifically verified, and B, if it's not disclosed to hundreds of millions or a billion or two people. Because some a breakthrough this big is so disruptive <laughs> to the status quo of the big money, the big monkeys with their big money piles and how they control the global economy, any entity that tries to do this and with any other strategy is going to be smashed and smushed like a wormy apple. They are going to go nowhere with it. And the reason I can say that emphatically is that if you do a study of the last hundred years, that is what has happened to every single one of these systems. Because none of them have done the scientific, transparent, open source scientific release of some iteration or version of what they have so that it could have gone viral and become newsworthy and gotten to a lot of people. Now, before the last few years and before the Internet, there was no way to get the news of something like this to a billion people. Now there is because there are so many people interested in the environment, poverty, climate change, energy uh, if you were to release something like this and you had some prime movers who are celebrities and people with enormous social media following, much bigger than mine, for example, um, then you're going to be able to put something out there that will be uh, really have momentum and won't be stoppable and won't be able to be suppressed. It can't be suppressed. One of the things I always point out to these scientists, you've by keeping it secret in a small group, You've painted a big bullseye on your back because you're the sole holders of that knowledge. And if you do that, you're making your security 
but you're going to look at SecOps, security ops operations and protocols, you have done the worst fatal mistake possible to make your group and yourself vulnerable to these attacks. So it doesn't make sense strategically at all to behave that way. It's so counterproductive. But it's also counterintuitive from what most small businesses and venture capital groups and technology groups do. They are trained to keep things very secret. They don't want competitors to know. They behave as if they're dealing with a better software program or a a better uh, computer circuit or something. But they're not. They're dealing with something that is so disruptive to the status quo of power players on the planet that they have no idea that the buzzsaw that they're going to step into is going to chew them up. And there's a way around it, but it's a very specific pathway. And that's what we're trying to advocate. Right. Quite a heavy lift there. <laughs> it can be done. I, you know, I'm convinced it can be done. I, I think it's actually not difficult. Often the real uh, genius in a plan is its utter simplicity and unexpected it's an unexpected way that you, no one would think you would do this. Uh, but if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, making all the mistakes that have been made from the 20s till now, over 100 years, you, you're, you're, you are nuts, insane, if you think you're going to get a different result. You're not going to get a different result. So I would plead with anyone listening who may have one of these systems or know someone who does to think about this and think that, that you can do uh, very well by doing good and there's a pathway but you need to understand the strategic uh world that you're in you're, if you you got a tiger by the tail if you've got something that's legitimately over unity and not some you know 100 billion dollar boondoggle like this fusion reactor business um because it is so disruptive uh now it has to be disruptive we don't have 100 years to dither away like the last 100 years, the Earth and and the population of the Earth, more importantly, uh, long before I think we would run out of fossil fuels, we're going to run out of uh, the Earth being able to tolerate this level of abuse, but also the the disparity between the wealthy, rich countries and the poor. I mean, that's a that's a time bomb ready to explode when you have three billion people who are scrounging around for wood to make charcoal to cook their food. And they don't even have gas or electricity at all. And we're talking about these fusion reactors. I mean, there's a major disconnect uh, that isn't compassionate. I mean, you think of the poor people. I mean, imagine we were lucky we were born how we were born. But what if you were born in in one of these impoverished areas um, and your, your prospects are nil? And, and announcing that there's a, you know, trillion dollar fusion reactor that maybe you could get hooked up into at some point. It's almost a cruel joke to half the world's population, actually. So I look at this from many perspectives, technical, scientific, strategic, humanitarian. And I my plea to people is, you know, why don't we give this approach a chance? So all the other approaches have been tried and failed. You know, you know, Stan Meyer keeping his secret and then falsifying the patent so no one could recreate it, so no one could steal it from him, and then he was, he's dead. I mean, I've seen this story play out so many times, even in my career of the last 30 years. Um, 
that, you know, at a certain point you go, gee, you know, how many times do you have to keep banging your head against that wall before you get half a clue that that ain't going to work? Is it going to work? Uh, I think one of the problems is there's no institutional memory. And by that I mean everyone who comes across this, they don't know the history of what's going on before them. And since they don't know that, they end up making the same mistakes. That's another thing that I hope that the Lost Century film can remedy. Because people who see it, who are working on these solutions or may have one in their business or garage or what have you, will go, ah, this is what I was planning to do. And they will see the predictable things that others have done that have failed and why they failed. It's very, it's a logical analysis. And I'm hoping that it will have that effect even for the inventor community and the engineering community that are pursuing these solutions. That would be great. Yeah. So there's a lot of good, a great deal of good can come from the Lost Century. So uh, I hope you guys will all support that by going to thelostcenturyfilm.com. And and there are incentive gifts, you know. There are uh, about a dozen different incentive gifts for different levels of giving. And, um, you know, it'll be put to extremely good use. None of it goes to me, per se. It goes to the production and to the getting the word out, the marketing of it. And hopefully at that point, you know, if, if we can reach numbers beyond what unacknowledged and close encounters of the fifth kind reached, uh, it will have a huge effect in potentiating and giving power to this direction, these solutions. Right. So that's, our, that's our goal. Rather than mega centralized ones, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Greer. Thank you. And thank everyone uh, who's, who's listening for supporting what we're doing. And uh, we'll keep you informed as this uh, develops further. Yes, and thank you for explaining this. I know this is something that most of us really do not understand because most of us are not physicists or scientists. So right. thank you so much for this. We appreciate You're it. welcome. And have a happy holiday, everybody. Thank you. You too, thank Dr. You. All right. Bye-bye. Well, now we got that one clear, right, mm-hmm. everybody? No more wasting people's money and time to keep old paradigm thinking in power. (coughs) All right, so let's just do this. Let's continue. We'll get about three-quarters of this done before it's time. But uh, again, this is called Decoding the Principles of Hermetic Wisdom with Robert Edward Grant and Aubrey Marcus. Here we go. What was the first historical reference to astrology? It was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it was almost identical to the Western astrology we have today. So who started this? Because it does seem like remarkably accurate on so many levels, right? Numerology can be like crazy accurate. So when you start digging into it, you're like, who established all this stuff? The 52-card playing deck even. Where did all this stuff come from? You're going to find that literally all of it, this esoteric wisdom that seems to have withstood the passage of time, all came through Hermes Trismegistus. Robert Grant is the polymath Renaissance man who has been decoding some of the ancient secrets that have been hidden and encrypted in so much of our art, so much of our text. And what I really wanted to do for this podcast 
was bring him on to discuss hermetic wisdom. I recently devoured this book called the Kabbalion, which is teaching hermetic wisdom that comes, if you believe the myth, all the way back from the time of Abraham and is filtered through Egyptian and Roman and Greek culture, gone underground and then resurfaced. And there's incredible value in these codes, these seven codes of hermetic wisdom and all of the different laws and understandings in between. So in this podcast, we just dive right in. And it's one of the most interesting fields of philosophy, spirituality that I've ever encountered. And I'm really excited to share the principles of hermetic wisdom with Robert Grant on this podcast. So enjoy this show with Robert Grant. The truth is, is that we're all the master. We're all the healer. We're all the mystic. Give it up one time for Aubrey Marcus. Robert, you're back. Good to see you. And I called you back for a very specific reason, because after we finished our last meeting, I read this book called The Kaibalion, and it was first published, I think, in 1906, and it was the resurfacing of some what they claim to be mystery school wisdom from Hermes Trismegistus that resurfaced in 1906 and then resurfaced again in the reprinting, and someone recommended it to me. It was actually my brother, Makad, and I was like, oh, shit. Like a lot of this I'd heard, and I'd found myself quoting Hermes Trismegistus, but didn't really know the source material from where it came from. And this is something that you know a lot about. So I was like, man, we got to get back here and we got to talk about it. And where I want to start is who, who was Hermes? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) Um, I think he's probably had many characters through what we would consider our history um, through different incarnations. And, you know, a lot of people talk about Enoch, Right, being related to Hermes, uh, a lot Who's of people. Enoch? Okay, so we're going deep now. Let's go, yeah. Why not? Okay, Fuck so it. there's a non-canonical uh, books of the Bible, right? And one of them is is called the Book of Enoch. So Enoch tells a story of an antediluvian or pre-diluvian, pre-flood mm-hmm. period of time. So like in the period, and where where was the, where are these books found? Like where where are these non-biblical books found? You know, so in 325. Uh, AD. Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea, exactly. So Constantine, who was also the emperor of Rome at the time, decided to declare himself the pope. And now, if you can't beat him, the Christianity, you know, the Christians at the time, let's join him. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's set the rules for it. We're going to bring together all the bishops and everything. And, and they looked at it as this is a big spiritual waiting, but we need to make, you know, the official sort of statement on these are the books of the Bible. Until that time, there were many, many other books. Mm-hmm. A lot of books didn't make it into this canonization. Yeah. But so where did they go? They're still around. They're still okay. around. The Gospel of Thomas is another good example of this. Some of them are called the Apocrypha. If you've ever heard of the Apocrypha. Uh-huh. So these are like esoteric wisdom teachings that often the Essenes or the Gnostics also held and kept. And, and, and for, you know, literally thousands of years. So basically, you know, what you find even in Qumran, when they had the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, references were made inside of those and the Dead Sea Scrolls to some of these non-canonized books of the of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the Council of Nicaea, you have to think about an imperial structure that 
saw that the slave classes loved this new teaching, both for its virtue. Of course, there's so much virtue in the truth of Christianity and the, and the teachings of Yeshua when you can actually look through some of the ways in which the, quote, church has twisted those teachings. But if you looked at the deep core of it, such powerful wisdom, number one. Number two, it started to flip and reverse the power structure because there was just a few wealthy aristocrats and there was tons and tons of poor peasants, proletariat, whatever you wanted to call them. And this religion started to flourish amongst them. Blessed are the meek. You know, it just kind of flipped everything on its head and it was all about the virtue of your inner world of your heart of your compassion of your kindness of your love of your service not the strength of your arm and your armor and your conquering yeah and so it flipped this whole roman paradigm mm-hmm. on its head so you got an emperor there who's organizing a council and being like we got to take all these texts and we got to make them work for us and that alone should give people a little bit of a question about yeah, what's in totally. the bible that's right this right? doesn't agree with my policy so this is not it would going be like if the current government right. was like all these spiritual teachings, we got to take what we want and we got to eliminate the rest mm-hmm. and say that we're spiritual, right? Like, why would you trust them? Exactly. Make the fucking, make the cuts. They're not the right editor. They got a vested interest. They're not unbiased source. Arguably the opposite, right? Yeah. The, the one that you should be most skeptical of. Well, the book of Enoch is one of those such books. And you can find tons and tons of references to this all across the Internet. You can just type in book of Enoch. You'll find a bunch of stuff, both from, you know, even rabbinical kind of uh, students and even rabbis themselves who will talk about this, but also in, in Kabbalah, but also across Christianity and everything. So this is kind of well known. And the book of Enoch tells a story about Enoch. Now, Enoch was a man who became godlike okay and he built a city and the city the city of enoch became so holy that it transcended this dimension as it's described in this book mm. and so it was, the, it was the kingdom it was like a kingdom right it'd be kind of or comparable, the kingdom, like the way maybe that, like a shambhala yeah right maybe like a shambhala like a spiritual domain and so he sort of transcended these things now a lot of people myself included believe that that uh, Enoch came back in several incarnations, right? And and this was Hermes Trismegistus, also uh, also referred to in the Egyptian pantheon as Thoth, right? Also pronounced thought, just like a thought inside your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, you have other references where it might be that Melchizedek was also one of these incarnations. So mm-hmm. you've heard of the keys that's, of Melchizedek. That's who Paul Selig, who's been on my podcast many times, if he's forced and pressed, does he give a name to the guides? That he's talking to, it's Melchizedek. Yeah, and and Melchizedek means Melchizedek, right? It's a Hebrew word. You probably know that Jerusalem, right, is like peace, right? Salem, mm-hmm. right? Shalom, so it's like shalom, right? It's like peace be with you, kind of a concept. The way we say shalom, mm-hmm. and Jerusalem, and when you talk about Abraham, Abraham paid tithes to the the, the chief priest at the time. And he went to visit him, which was lived in Salem, and his name was Malkitzedek. And Malki means king, right? Mm-hmm. Like Melek, or even the name Malik in Indian, right? Hindu means king also. So it is like ancient mm-hmm. stuff through etymology that's gone all over the place. Zedek also can mean like justice or peace. So the king of peace. Yeah, like the king of peace and justice in a way, mm-hmm. same like that. So basically, you have this personage who is reincarnated through time and always brought with 
that incarnation lots of wisdom. So now when, when we say incarnation, some people can have a very literal linear way that you, that you look at this, right? But fundamentally, we all, I'm not we all, but you can have your own unique body and your own unique configuration. Of course you do. You have different flesh and different things. You could even be a different potentially iteration of something, but actually tap into the current and the frequency because in those non-physical dimensions, as I understand them through all of my journeys and through all of my studies, things are recorded in vibrations and these vibrations you have the ability to access. So like Paul Selleck can access the vibration of Melchizedek and allow that vibration to channel through, right? So there's, there's a lot of ways that when we say incarnation, it doesn't mean like I was fucking Marcus Aurelius in a past life. Or Although something. you would have made a very good Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Robert. I can see it's you very, in that It's an unnecessary compliment, yeah. but I will accept. <laughs> I will fucking accept. But nonetheless, like, so, so when you think about this, just think about somebody who's tapping into, at the very least, the energy of what the vibrational signature and collected intelligence of this being that we call Hermes might be. And that could very well be the case, too. But there are certain signatures, and throughout Scripture, we see references to people getting keys, right? We've all heard about the keys of Peter, the keys of Melchizedek, right? The keys of Enoch. There's a book called The Keys of Enoch as well by J.G. Hertak that's worth reading if you're interested to learn more about this. And I remember when we first met via text, I think I asked you if you were into Hermeticism Mm -hmm. the very first time as well, and you hadn't yet read Kybalion. And then when we talked at the last time, you're like, I just read Kybalion. It was like, well, yeah, yeah. That I was like, wow. And I, I feel like there is this frequency. Maybe it's a frequency connection. It might be an incarnation connection that ties several of these people throughout history together, right? Where we see these kind of keys, keys of Solomon, mm-hmm. another man of great wisdom who I know you've studied a lot about Absolutely. as well. So, and they all have sigils as well, which is kind of interesting. So there's kind of a different meaning. I think I'm wearing David's sigil on my... Yeah, you've got a Star of David, which my, also uh, originates with, uh, as well with the, that turned into Seal of Solomon mm-hmm. as well. So I think there's some depth to this. And this concept of even as recently as someone like St. Germain, right? You may have heard of St. Germain. The Saint violet, Germain, the violet purple flame. Exactly. Saint so St. Germain was this very interesting character from like the 18th century that everyone thought lived for possibly hundreds of years. Even he was very charismatic. He could hold a conversation, but he never ate at dinner. Uh, he was always, I mean, that's why he looks so old and he was, well, <laughs> well he never aged though. That's the thing. He, yeah. he, he didn't age. And that's what people claim about him. And he was, you know, you'll find him throughout history like involved in things like the American Revolution. He's like showing up in different places. It's like, how could he have been at all these different places? Like the movie Highlander. Exactly, like the movie <laughs> Highlander. And and this guy's really interesting because he speaks many languages, right? He's extremely charismatic. Um, and people thought he must be a charlatan because he couldn't possibly have done all the things that he seems to have known and done in his lifetime. Yeah. Because he had many lifetimes. So there's all kinds of huge lore around this guy. A lot of people believe that, again, tapping into that same frequency or possibly incarnation mm-hmm. of Thoth, of Hermes. Also, that, that traces potentially all the way to St. Germain is what you're saying. It could yes. be, so it could go 
Enoch, it could go, you know, Thoth, it could go Hermes, Melchizedek, Hermes, all of these different characters in a different iteration, articulation. And and one of the teachings of Solomon and the teachings of like the deep mystical Kabbalah and Torah Mm -hmm. is that we all have the potential to actually merge our own will and consciousness with divine will. But it's not that we become effaced. It's not that we lose everything that makes us unique. We actually subsume like the divine moves through us as us integrated Mm -hmm. as us and so what we see through our lens and our perspective and our portal actually supersedes any text that had gone before because it's the right information for this time in this context as we all know if you give advice out of context it could be pretty fucking useless sometimes it's universal sometimes it's of the wrong time and so this idea that you can always rewrite the Torah, rewrite the scripture, if you're able to step into your own highest divine consciousness as you, not just the divine somewhere neutral, but the divine as you, then you actually can deliver a message, which is why all of these messages, even if it is the same being or the same frequency, could seem quite different because it was specifically filtered through the lens of that person at that time in that specific way. But the information, of course, is going to be different because it's going to be serving and meeting the need of exactly the people and the place that he was occupying. I fully agree. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of the sixth hermetic principle, which is cause and effect. Every cause has an effect and every effect has a cause. It's Everything has its cause and its effect. Chance is but a name for law not recognized. Exactly. And and that's how I feel about randomness. I don't believe in randomness. (laughs) Randomness is just our inability to perceive God's pattern encryption. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's there. Yeah. Um, I don't care what the number sequence is. I've always been able to find patterns in it if I really deeply look. But, you know, we talked about this last time. What is randomness? It's just a boundary condition where our knowledge ends and our ignorance begins. And as we expand human consciousness, we push the boundary out further and further. It's holiday go time. Score mega savings with Michael's three-day mega deal. This Friday through Sunday. Don't miss out. New Mexico homeowners, if you have a power meter like this on the side of your house, you can qualify to erase your energy bill. Further. And that expands probably at something like the speed of light. Interesting that the universe is expanding about that same speed, too. Maybe it's just our consciousness. Oh, and that goes to the first principle of hermeticism. Mentalism. The principle of mentalism. The all is mind. The universe is mental. I read this, and I was like, no shit. And because I come, I came to that conclusion after trying three times to write a book called Master Your Mind. 60,000 words. 60,000 words thrice. All still, thrice. All thrice <laughs> All stillborn mm-hmm. because finally it had to bring me to the conclusion, hey, dummy, you can't separate the mind from anything else. So how are you going to master the mind? Like that's saying, I might as well write a book, Master the Universe, and put a picture of fucking He-Man on the cover and make it a comic. Because I had no chance, and that's I kept running into that problem. I just I would try to, to separate the mind. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I think I think if we put that question out in the polls, we'd get a lot of similar answers. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I realized that, and I was like, you have to define 
whether you call it mind or whether you call it something else, you could call it love if you like, but I think mind is a good way for us to think yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. You have to define it all as the same substrate to actually understand it. So call it mind or call it something, but it is actually all the same substrate, really, of just different densities. And there's a great quote by Max Planck, who was pretty much the mentor that made Einstein famous. Because Einstein, working as a patent clerk, needed somebody to sponsor him, right? Mm. Who was going to be well-regarded in the academic community. And that was Max Planck. Max Planck is famous for many things, particularly in quantum physics. Now, he and Einstein didn't agree on everything. He was more of the mindset that the universe is based on mind. He said, there is no matter as such. We must conclude that at the base of everything is really just a conscious mind. Mm. And when you think about it in those terms, you start to then realize, and that's why I've kind of come to the conclusion that we have a you and you have a you inverse mm-hmm. around you, right? So it's an, all of it is a mental construct. We cannot separate. There is no such thing as true objective reality in the context that we all see the world through our own prism. Yeah. So that is our what we believe to be objective. We all think that our perception of a thing is objective, but as we start to expand our awareness, we realize there's different ways of looking at the same things or circumstances. That's why we have a crime. and There are 30 eyewitnesses that have entirely different accounts Mm -hmm. of the exact same occurrence. So this is something that I was, you know, definitely hoping that we would get into because the idea of the, you know, perspectival nature of all of our perception is pretty much unquestionable. Nobody watches the same movie because you're watching it through your own lens and through your own eyes and your own associations and everything that's coming there. Nobody reads the same book. Nobody knows the same person. We're all living in our own multiverse within the universe, mm-hmm. the one verse, which is our own pers- our own perspective. However, that doesn't mean that everything is just a story and nothing is real necessarily. And I think that's the way that postmodernity has taken it, that Everything's just a story. Nothing's real. Nothing matters. And one of the things that I've been really studying with Rabbi Gaffney is actually the correlation between, in the Kabbalist lineage, the goddess Shekinah and the Tao. And it's basically a set of first principles and first values like the law. So if you read the Tao Te Ching, it says the Tao is older than God. I don't know who created it. I don't know what created it, but the Tao is older than God. And that is like, it's like the law that's underneath perspective itself and it's seen that's why they're saying it's even it's even you know earlier than god it's even older than god right? and see that's where i would place the seven hermetic principles. and that's that's where this seems to be reaching it's for. Like, it's like the laws of the construct this is so basically the hermetic principles are getting to the Tao, or in another and another so maybe you know lao Tzu was another iteration mm-hmm. of this hermes trismegistus thought in just in another way and another mystic maybe rumi was as well mm-hmm. who said you are not a drop in the ocean you're the ocean in the drop obviously that's the principle of correspondence yep. like spoken extremely poetically but either way people are accessing this particular type of wisdom and it seems to be reaching for that thing the first principles and first values of the entire everything the all that ever is and then all of the creations are built upon that stack. Well, and I believe fundamentally that part of the struggle that we face right now as a, as a people, as humanity, is we are still very much clinging to this anachronistic, I believe, 
notion of materialism. Mm -hmm. And this leads to reductionism. It really, it leads to more, more and more confirmation bias of that reductionism and materialism. It's all stacked on itself. So this is one of the biggest challenges relative to our educational system right now. It's becoming kind of an anachronism in our world today. Well, it's not our, edu- it's not only our education system, it's our medical system, it's yeah, our financial totally. system, it's our every system is trying to reduce it to the smallest part that you can understand. Even, even using words to describe a thing is incredibly reductionist. If I say, hey, Robert, I'm reducing you to a symbol that can be placed in a name and it, yes, it means something bigger, but we sometimes forget that the word is just a placeholder that clumsily approximates something that would be impossible to actually describe. And this is one of the things, one of the reasons I reject the notion of being titled right in one area. Because as soon as you say, oh, someone will ask you, and the way over here, and the Uber, the Uber driver asked me, he goes, so what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm doing a podcast with Harvey Marcus. And then he goes, uh, oh, okay, are you going to need a ride back later this afternoon or whatever? And I said, I said, probably I got another podcast with Danica, Danica Patrick. And he's like, what do you do? He goes, what do you, what's your expertise? And I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm all, all of a sudden feeling this like gravitational pull mm-hmm. towards just to come up with a convenient answer. Give him a, give him a, a something he can hang on to yeah. so he can quickly understand and then dismiss. Which is more narrow, right? More narrow than what I actually am. Do you think we cling, do you think we crave that because there's a discomfort when we don't understand something and there's dissonance? Like, so the discomfort comes, why? What is he doing that allows him to get this? There's a little bit of discomfort, and then if they get yeah. if they get something that they can just slide in, then the discomfort stops, and they're like, ah, everything yeah. makes sense. Yeah, because we all feel comfortable when we can categorize something. Yeah, totally. Right? It's like, okay, he's a policeman. I know how policemen think, and I'll, but he's not going to talk to me about anything outside of police stuff that I'm going to listen to. Yeah. I can then sort of shut it down. And we all do this when we see a circumstance or event doesn't matter what it is. We want to categorize it that fast. Yeah. And by categorizing it too quickly, we keep ourselves stuck in this world of judgment rather than just pure observation. And we can learn a lot more by looking at things, taking a moment and saying, without being so quick to judge it, saying, okay, let me see what the other ways to look at this are. Because maybe the only true objective truth would be a mathematical equation. It's a mathematical equation, which is the sum of all perspectives. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do now is I try to look at things through other lenses that would be juxtaposed to my own, even if I don't feel like I can agree with it right away. I want to try to do that so that I can step into another person's consciousness, another person's shoes. And in a way, I think that in and of itself, if we can strive for looking at things that way, then that helps us to find forgiveness. It helps us to find empathy. It helps us, you know, to look at the world probably the way that maybe God would look at the world. And if that all sounds too highbrow for you and you're like, ah, I'm not interested, it'll make you a better lover. Mm-hmm. It'll make you a better leader. Better it'll listener. make you a better friend. Mm-hmm. You know, like, are these things you care about, being a lover, a leader, and a friend? Well, then these principles are important. The ability to step inside the inside of somebody else's experience. And not keep your safe distance. And it's really vulnerable when you do that because you're subject to feel what they feel and experience what they experience. 100%. And so it's obviously you need to choose those people you do with 
you do it with, you know, wisely or do it from afar. You know, you obviously don't want to go step into anybody who's sniffing spray paint on the you know street corner or whatever. Like that might be. A <laughs> I don't rock. need to step into every <laughs> shoe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you want to you want to be able to imagine it, just not actually right. step exactly. into it. But nonetheless, it's still important to like step in there so you don't have that judgment when he's talking to her, she's talking to himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such a valuable skill. And then it's an even more important skill when you actually have somebody that you love and you trust and is in your in your inner circle, your tribe, and then you can step into each other's experience. And that is what solves the great problem of loneliness, because you'll see yourself as a mirror in that person that you're stepping inside. And that's the U-inverse. Yeah. That's the U-inverse. So when you realize that the universe is mental, and there's a reason why the first of the Hermetic Principles is mentalism. It's so core to understanding all the rest. Each stacks on each other. And when you realize that, then you start realizing that every experience that you have is not just happening to you. It's actually happening for you. Whether you're conscious of it or not is up to you. You may not be aware of it until later on. And we just think that the world's happening to us. Oh, my gosh, something bad happened. Oh, life is difficult. Woe is me. I'm a victim, blah, blah, blah. Or you can look at it differently and say, what is my you inverse or my subconscious mind, the lens through which I'm seeing the world, trying to teach me, my higher self, trying to project back to me so that I will come to that realization? You know, you could go to school for years and years and years and study the didactics, but until you experience it in some sort of a role play that you believe is actually real, you haven't really fully learned it. Mm. And so often people will say, well, what does all this stuff mean? You know, how does this help or save the whales or how does this save deforestation or whatever? Well, if you actually study further into this, you'll realize that what we judge will just continue to be projected back to us. So in a way, when you start to really go down this rabbit hole of, okay, I'm going to be an advocate for this, that, or the other thing, by your own judgments of those things. Especially advocate against. Yeah, exactly. You will only perpetuate those things. It's the hammer and nail situation. Mm-hmm. And that comes out of all of this you know, understanding of the hermetic principles. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so powerful for me. But one thing I want to mention also when you ask who is Thoth and who is, who is Hermes. Hermes, you can learn a lot about him also. So there's several books. You know, Kybalion is one. Mm-hmm. It's excellent by the three initiates. I love it. And you can listen to it on YouTube. It's, it's fantastic. Around the same time, there was a translation that came out of the Emerald Tablets. So we're talking about the early 20th century. And in the early 20th century, there was kind of a, a bit of a mini renaissance that was happening. You saw a lot of advances in physics that was happening at that time. Right. You saw people like Walter Russell. They, they started creating societies of like polymathic thought, like the Twilight Club in New York City that Walter Russell was a founder of. And I'm excited because I'm going to probably go and speak at uh, his university in Virginia here in the next few weeks or so. But basically this, there was this small little mini kind of, I'd say right after, right around the turn of the century up until probably around, you know, the crash. In 1929, there was this really interesting time happening. It was kind of the roaring 20s, and and there was a very different philosophy of thought. Art was also exploding at that time. And and what you find during that period of time is that people were going through these sort of expansions. So you 
you hear about also, you know, leading up into that late uh, 19th century, like Helena Blavatska, right, Blavatsky, excuse me, and, and Rudolf Steiner and other people that were kind of luminaries during this period of the world. Mm. And there was this expansion going on. So one of those things that came out of this was not only the the work by the three initiates and the Kybalion, but also the Emerald Tablets of Thoth. Now, the Emerald Tablets have been around for a long time, but there were different translations of it. This was a channel translation that was done by uh, a guy by the name of Dorial. So I would definitely look into that because it tells mm-hmm. the story also of Thoth, the Atlantean. So it goes all the way back in time and tells a story, and he actually claims in this writing that he built the pyramid. Oh, wow. He was the designer of it. Now, it's funny because in Egyptian history, you they tell the story of a guy by the name of uh, Hemiunu. Hemiunu would have been the architect for the Great Pyramid. But Hemiunu sounds a lot like Hermiunu, right? Mm-hmm. It could definitely be some sort of connection mm-hmm. between the two. Mm-hmm. And and when you get into that, you can learn the whole story about how Atlantis fell and then how civilization was was maintained, how they moved to Chem, the land of Chem, Egypt. Which is where, if people have listened to my podcast, Matthias Stefano mm-hmm. remembers uh, life he lived as a woman mm-hmm. with a child and sings the songs, and mm-hmm. it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And he tells stories of Thoth as a being, yeah, as a being in the flesh, mm-hmm. not just a, a deity a, that's a mm-hmm. aggregation of energy that people are worshiping, but no, it was a being. Yeah, and he was sort of like, you could think of him as the king of the land also for thousands of years, in fact. And so, you know, depending on which historical timeline you kind of like prescribe to, one of them is the pyramids or something on the order more of about 13,000 years old. Some are even older still, um, you know, that it was before the Yoga Dryas that and we had like some major calamity that happened, you know, around after that time. Also, the flood kind of plays into this. Mm-hmm. But basically, that story is worth reading. Mm-hmm. It's worth going through. There's something about it where we all kind of have this ability to know if something is worth listening to or reading. And as the words permeate into your consciousness, there's something very powerful about that particular book. It's fascinating. And it's written in a very prose kind of way. So it's beautifully written. It feels like, like scripture Mm -hmm. in a way. It's got this kind of, kind of holy feeling to it. And I probably read it and listened to it at least 200 times. Wow. And every time I listen to it or read it, I get something entirely new from it. It's, um, there's something very powerful about it. Same yeah. thing with Kybalion. Kybalion yeah. another good example. Her, the Hermeticum is also another one that is worth reading. It's a short book and it's a reiteration of a lot of these principles that have been passed down generation after generation, sometimes through sort of hidden secret society type stuff. It's hidden so that it can be found. So if we do our job, you'll both not need to read these books and be even more excited to read these books. Yes, that's right. So that's mm-hmm. what we're here to do. So this podcast and pretty much everything I do is made possible by Onnit. And the great thing about Onnit is it's a company where I created all of the best products that would support me in a holistic life, physically, mentally, through all of the human optimization technologies that Onnit offers and is available And this ranges from kettlebells to the steel clubs, the steel maces to the alpha brain, which I use before every podcast and the shroom tech, which I use before every workout and the total NO that I use when I want to flex in the gym and have a really good workout. 
really everything that I've ever wanted from a human optimization standpoint is offered through Onnit. So I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and you'll save 10% off absolutely everything. And thank you for your support of Onnit, which is directly support to me. Thanks, fam. So let me go through a couple of these different notes that I had. The first note, this is a quote from the Kabbalion. The principles of truth are seven. He who knows these understandingly possesses the magic key before whose touch all the doors of the temple fly open. The key. So these are like, and these are, these, that's exactly what these have been. These have been keys for me to start unlocking these different rooms in my psyche. Like if I can use this key correctly, and we'll talk about some of the ways that I've used these keys already, mm-hmm. but I'm just, I know I'm just now Scratching getting on the journey. Too. But mm-hmm. when you were talking about the principle of mentalism, this one key, the all is mine, the universe is mental. What you were previously saying about how things that you're projecting out into the world are reflected back to you. Well, if you think of it as all one mind, then of course that's going to be the way that it's going for. And of course, also the other thing that you can look at with this key is if it is all one mind, everything is happening in right reason and right accord. <laughs> Right. Like whatever, whatever is whatever is going on, we may not be able to understand it from our perspective, but from the largest mental perspective, it may make perfect sense. And Matthias talks about this a lot for part of the necessity of creation, of course, is polarity. We'll talk about the principle of polarity, but part of polarity requires distortion and distortion is a force that prevents us from seeing everything as same, you know, seeing everything as all as one. Distortion comes in and says, oh, I am separate. And yeah. and, it, and it's also been called Maya, the illusion. There's mm-hmm. a lot of ways that you can look at this, but some way in which we're not seeing the absolute truth, because if we saw the absolute truth, it would be one note, one color, one sound, one, you know, that we would see beyond all of the differentiation. We wouldn't get to experience our own differentiation. Exactly. Exactly. So within that, you start to understand, ah, maybe this is all just a part of the symphony. And right now we could be in a part of the song that's like the deep low strident you know viola part that's kind of building the intensity and anxiety that's okay it's all part of a big grander symphony and co-creatively we're the conductors deciding how this orchestra goes yeah no you're absolutely right i i remember i was invited to go i i met deepak chopra in 20 i think it was 2014 and he came to my office and and i wrote up on the board on the whiteboard uh, the symbol, the ohm symbol. And I said, you know what this actually also means? And he's like, what? I go, it's it's three, six, nine. Mm-hmm. And the nine is backwards because it's the way the Sanskrit sort of basically would write. And and then you've got like this, looks like an I at the top with a dot in the center. And that's one of the ways to write the number six. So three, six, nine. And, and, and he said, wow. He was like kind of blown away by that. And I said, so, uh, Nikola Tesla talks about this. And he goes, how would Tesla know about this? And I said, well, because his <laughs> his guru was Swami Vivekananda. Yeah. He was a famous Swami. You know, it was kind of like a Yogananda level uh, guy in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century that came to the United States and, and taught. And Tesla was, you know, a devout of, of that person. He was definitely someone who followed him very closely. And 
So he invited me. He said, you need to come with me. He took me in, you know, we're in a big meeting with a lot of people around. He goes, took me in this other room. He goes, you need to come with me to Kerala. You come with me to Kerala. It's southern India. And there's a, a big temple there, like a very old temple with these two snakes on the doors. It's like super famous. There's supposed to be a Vimana in the base of it and everything. I was like, okay, this sounds really cool. So he invites me to go. And the last second, I unfortunately couldn't go because I had a board meeting got called. Mm-hmm. And I was going through a major crisis at the time. It was a difficult situation. So I called him up and I said, I, I fortunately can't make it. And he said, don't worry, Robert. Everything is as it should be. And I didn't really know what that meant because in that moment in time, I was still thinking that, no, 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 we make the world happen, right? Whatever it is that we do, we can kind of like either let it happen to us or we make it happen. I didn't realize at that time that I now believe very strongly that everything is connected. And both are true. And this is this is the hard part is that we have to be able to embrace paradox exactly. to understand any aspect of the universe. Yeah, you got to make it happen. And the universe is making you happen and you're making it happen. And the universe is making you happen and, and everything else around you. Happens. Because it's all mind. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and that's how it can work. When you think about it, it's, I'll give you another example. It's pretty funny. I was uh, on Instagram and I see this post from this gentleman page or whatever that I follow. And, and this guy had like a neck brace on and this pretty girl walks down the street right by him and he like jerks his neck to look at her. He's like, Oh, that hurt. Right. Like this. And then mm-hmm. another one walks by this way. He does it again. He's like, Oh, it hurts. And this was like, men will be men. <laughs> and I was just laughing about this. And not 30 minutes later, I get on a conference call with my attorneys to work on some licensing agreement on patents. And our attorney gets on and he's got a big ass neck brace on. <laughs> right. And I was like thinking, I've never had a call with lawyers where there was a guy with a neck brace. And I just saw this like 10 minutes ago. Is this another form of mentalism, right? Where the things that we are seeing and registering consciously are starting to become manifested in the world around us very rapidly through synchronicities. Mm -hmm. And it's another pattern of connection. And, And of course, obviously you're not saying that you looking at that post caused the guy's neck to break. Right? No, but, but but what you're saying is that there's a correlation at a plane of causation that's far higher and far beyond yes. what we even understand. And it puts something in motion, which created a spray paint effect of this kind uh-huh. of splatter gun of like, OK, now neck brace is going to enter this this aspect of consciousness. Right. And it's again, this would be this would go back to this principle of cause and effect chances, but a name for law not recognized. Yeah. So what you're suggesting is part of that principle of cause and effect that, all right, yeah, that's chance. Right now, as far as we know, that's chance. But there may be a law that we're not recognizing at a plane that we don't have access to. There's, I don't believe in coincidences. I, I used to. I now, when I was very much a materialistic thinker, I believed in coincidences. Now I don't believe in coincidences at all. At all, because I've had way too many examples where I had thought previously something was coincidence and I've realized later that it was all part of a macro pattern that was just too large for me to see from my zoomed in too close to the tree to see the forest perspective. As soon as you zoom out and start looking at things from a larger standpoint, then those patterns start to become more visible Mm -hmm. to the naked eye. And you start realizing I'm learning something through this. 
and it's a beautiful process. Just now that you've read Kybalion, I'm sure that uh, if you haven't yet, you will soon start experiencing more synchronicities. And this is one of the things that Carl Jung talks about. The, the surest sign of the path to enlightenment, or what he called the individuation process, is the number of synchronicities you start to register and experience in your day-to-day life. Yeah, I just had one right before you came. So we had a, you know, an old Onnit employee that I knew, but I knew him in the Onnit context. And he really got this urge to connect to me and really show me like what he was all about. Mm-hmm. And he loves playing different tabletop games like Pokemon, Digimon. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know that I was an old school Magic the Gathering player and like went oh, deep really? into that world. So I shared that with him. He's like, Oh man. And he got real excited. He's like, I gotta, I'm going to make some things for you. Made this awesome gift box that was hilarious and has watercolors and it had one very special Magic the Gathering pack. It was a pack that was in an entire giant box. So you know that the pack was like full of all ultra rare, rare cards, right? Well, it's cool. What a fucking gift. I haven't opened up a booster pack in a fucking long time, too. So I opened it up and the premium card in the whole deck. So there's the rares and then there's the super rares is a card that's the something i forget his name but it's the astral dragon now if you know i just released a documentary called dragon of the jungle which is literally about an astral dragon which which has been since that you know not released a week ago mm-hmm. and it's also been a way that i've been experiencing you know consciousness through the realm through the lens of this mythical creature of being of power and trying to connect to the astral dragon so kind of energy. Another synchronicity. And exactly, that's what I'm saying. Like what I mean, a dragon, sure, it's Magic the Gathering. There's dragons all the there's dragons all over the place. An astral dragon as the rare card in the one pack that I got. It's a coincidence. Or this is this is like just a wink from the divine being like, there you go, boy. Like make sure you're paying attention. So I'll give you another wink. Tied to the astral dragon. So on April 23rd and 24th, I spent the night in the Great Pyramid just a couple months ago, three months ago. And it was the holiest night of the year. It was Ramadan. The pyramids were closed during the day. Ooh. I was supposed to be there with, uh, with a CEO of a major network, kind of a television network thing, and he couldn't make it last second. So I said, well, I'll just go to the pyramid by myself. So I went in and I spent like four hours in the pyramid by myself. And while I was in there, I looked at the wall. And I'd already found, you know, my wife Susie actually found the bull and the cow was on the, on the wall that matched the one on the Last Supper painting on the right side. But above the bull and the cow, I'd always seen this writing. There was always writing, and I, I kept seeing writing up there, and it was kind of like this swooshy kind of a shape, like a sine, cosine wave. This time I went in there, I noticed I could see the pattern. That's a dragon. Hmm. In fact, it wasn't one dragon, it's three. <laughs> three dragons, and they're attached to a tree. Now, you may have seen when the Queen had her Diamond Jubilee thing recently. Um, what Queen? I didn't queen of England. Queen no. of England. She lit up this. It was very bizarre. It's like there's this globe on this, like the royal pillow and the globe. And so she goes and pushes on the globe. And all of a sudden, these lights go in the shape of three-strand DNA. And then they connect to like a tree of life and light up the tree of life. And I was like, that was a month after I found that on the wall inside the king's chamber i haven't even released this or the photographs of it anywhere yet but this dragon has been all about kundalini mm-hmm. and the third dragon which is the sheen right it's it's what happens 
through the staff of Hermes, right? They're, they're, you get into one mind. And it's no longer yin yang. It's now yin shen yang. Yeah, it's the line in between the yin and the yang. Right. So you talk about shekinah, mm-hmm. right? It's relative to that. Yeah. And so this whole thing, you mentioned the dragon. When I was at your conference, I bought a ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause you know, they had vendors there and it was like, I felt like I was a Woodstock or something. Robert spoke in Arcadia. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I saw this ring there and, and so I put on this ring and it was like made of copper. Uh-huh. And so I was like, okay, I like the look of copper. Cool. And it's a dragon. Uh-huh. Right. And, and so this dragon energy, the astral dragon energy has been very much of very high meaning to me for the last two, three months. So the fact that you just released your thing on this, right? That's how I would look at this now is I would say, okay, you telling me that story is another synchronicity, Mm -hmm. right? So it builds on even the synchronicity you have, and then it might serve for you to be a synchronicity. When we realize that it's all mind, we're all one. Yeah. And, and we're all collectively connected through this consciousness. Mm Mm-hmm. And then once you get past that notion, because it, it takes a lot to break away from materialism, to get into mentalism. But once you do, then you can go into correspondence. Mm. And that's the second, right? Yeah. This, yeah. this is the second principle of, you know, kind of the seven hermetic principles. And correspondence is embodied in the statement, as above, so below. What does that mean? I think the first place that I started to recognize that was before I even really knew much about any of this, I started to study fractal geometry. And what does fractal geometry even mean? So if you were to zoom in on a EKG of your heart wave, right? So you've got a QRS complex and a T wave, QRS complex and a T wave. It's kind of interesting because if you zoom in further into the parts that look totally flatline, so you've got this wave that goes like this up and down, then you've got a T wave, and then it goes up again. This is called the QRS complex, and then it goes like this. We've all seen what an EKG thing looks mm-hmm. like. But if you zoom in on the dead space in between, keep zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, you'll see the same wave again mm. as a fractal form, a smaller form of it. And I suppose one of the limitations is, I maybe they don't do this anymore, but you used to see those on with ink. You know, they would have a little machine that would be mm-hmm. writing it out. But now that it's digital... It just depends on how sensitive the equipment is to actually be able to register. It could probably go all the way up and all the way down, registering all the way. So if you even zoomed in like the Mandelbrot, you know, Mandelbrot set, that's exactly what fractal geometry is. And so even if you looked into the EKG, it would be little patterns upon patterns upon patterns. And you could just keep zooming in. Obviously, we don't have instruments that are sensitive enough to detect that. They're starting to build it. But they, but they will. And ultimately, I think that's when we'll start to show this principle of correspondence in a lot easier way. And also we, now we have James Webb telescope looking out farther and farther. And I don't know how useful it is right now at this stage, but it's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. It's very cool. <laughs> very cool. And you can see the cool nebula and stuff. I mean, it's like super clear photographs and everything that we've never been able to see before. You know, it's not a coincidence now that, that we're now able to observe what it looks like to see a black hole, right? As of a couple of years ago. And when that photograph got released on the internet of that, I can't remember her name, the, the woman who basically was doing the research and caught a photograph of a black hole. You know, this is, we're finding, again, we're pushing that boundary of ignorance farther and farther out, right? We still don't understand what is dark matter, what is dark energy. And 
as we start to understand this dark matter, dark energy, maybe this is really just an analog for the own aspects of our own subconscious mind we are yet to become consciously aware of. Thinking out loud, I haven't really thought about this till now, but is it possible that dark energy and dark matter, and again, my you know astrophysics and quantum physics is very amateur, but could it be possible that that is actually a window into the Tao, the all, the Shekinah, and like that's actually, we're looking at the void, and the void has a form because the form is the first values and first principles of the Tao, of the Shekinah, of the Hermetic principles, and we're actually seeing some kind of representation come through the blackness. So it's not nothing, and that's what we're saying. It's not no, it's nothing. It's not nothing. It seems like nothing, but if you actually really look, the there would be an encoding in the nothing, and the encoding is that thing that was you know, older than God. Yeah, and maybe it's all about our own mindset. And there's probably some physicists like, dummy, that's a terrible idea. No, well, maybe I, not. No, I think it's 100% correct. I, I actually, I mean, look, you got physicists. In 2012, they discover the, the Higgs boson, right? And they co-named that the God particle. I think there's amongst large circles within some of the physics community, as you continue to go further and further into this, I mean, we could go down this reductionistic path and just realize that every time we look for something, whatever we're looking for, we will find. Yeah. Right? So the observer effect. Let's find it. Exactly. Let's find it's you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, whatever, whatever you expect. What, what we get in this world is not necessarily what we deserve in life. It's what we expected that we were going to get. Whether you expected it consciously or you expected it subconsciously and that manifested in anxiety. You are creating the living circumstance that we have on a day-to-day basis. Now, what happens is you start looking at an atom, and the way Max Planck described an atom. Before we go, before we go further, I just want to keep people out of like a dangerous rabbit hole of that. That doesn't mean that the woman that gets raped called forth the rape from her from her own. There are agents that can act and usurp another person's will and usurp another person's attraction and projection and actually force them to participate in their own attraction projection internal game what you're talking about is the internal landscape and how you perceive it and often that correlates to something external because you'll find it you'll search it you'll look for it you'll notice it you'll follow that path you'll draw it to you but however it is a principle that absolutely applies to your internal landscape 90 percent of what happens to us is not actually what happens to us it's what we believed happened to us right and Again, that's getting to that mental space of it's a mental universe. So what can I learn from this experience? Why am I projecting this experience? Or why am I seeing it through this prism? It's holiday go time. Score mega savings with Michael's three-day mega deal. This Friday through Sunday. Don't miss out. Prism. What is it that I can learn from this? So in that context, every person you meet, you can learn something from. Every circumstance that comes up, you could find a synchronicity in it or not. It's up to you. There's something that comes to mind when, when I'm talking about this, and it's, it is very much a hermetic principle of alchemy. Mm-hmm. You know, this being able to turn lead into gold. And this is a mechanism of perception, not actually having anything to do with metals on the periodic table. Although many people have tried foolhardy in a foolhardy approach. It's, and, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. And, one of the great stories of this is uh, the Taoist, I think she was Taoist tantric teacher and, and kind of like the, the 
I don't know, in some ways, the founder of this kind of school of thought, Yeshi Sogyal, and uh, Jamie Wheel talks about it in his book, Recapture the Rapture. She's traveling alone on one of those, call it the King's Road, if you watch, you know, mm-hmm. watch Game of Thrones, like on King's Road, Road, dangerous, <laughs> dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Some brigands find her on King's Road and they go to rape her. And she was in such a state of consciousness that actually she saw not the rape that was occurring, but she saw the pain and the sorrow and the trauma and the sadness that was in each of these men. And she held in the frequency of seeing that. Mm -hmm. And the men actually carried through. They were in the heat of their passions and they're in the, in the, in their full, you know, bloodlust and violence carried through with the quote rape which of course it was, and it was, and this is the paradox, but she didn't see it as that. And because she didn't see it as that, when they finished and she saw them as the humans, the flawed, broken humans in pain that were reaching out, you know, to try to claim some power. And she saw something different and they broke down in tears. This is the story. And they broke down in tears and then they all devoted that we will protect you and fight for you for the rest of our life to make up for what we've done because you've showed us, you've showed us the truth of who we really are and beneath this and showed us something different in this world. And so that, and, and, it, and in the story, it's like, she didn't, she didn't record, you know, the violence aspect of it. She recorded something different and they recorded something different. And then it shifted the timeline radically for her, for her, for those men. And then for the world, from that act of alchemy. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should be able to do this, blah, blah, blah. This is not like a should game, but this is showing the alchemical principle, the possibility. And it's a divine aspect because I think another good example of what you're describing is, you know, how Christ took being crucified. Yeah. Right. The the whole thing. It's a stoic principle. It's the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's probably going into their consciousness in the same way that this woman did and seeing the broken and, and finding within his own suffering, right? He was still had total power over how he was going to perceive and how he was going to experience this horrific experience. And to me, that is a personification of the divine mm-hmm. and being able to see the world that way. I, I did a podcast recently in LA with uh, Amber Khan, who I love dearly. She's awesome. Uh, and she, She's a, you know, a follower of Islam. And she started asking me, she said, well, what about, cause she knows I take more of a Buddhistic approach on duality, right? And she's like, yeah, but what about all these people that do these really heinous, horrible things, right? And how do you, how do you perceive that? And so I, I, I stood, you know, stood my ground. It was an interesting, it was an interesting conversation. But at the end of it, she started talking to someone else in the crowd who said, you know, I don't feel good enough. I don't feel good enough and I feel like I've sinned so much in life. I've done so much stuff wrong. God could never possibly love me. And her response was, you know, in, in the Quran, it says that God loves you 40,000 times more than, I love how they love to put a mathematical number to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why 40,000? <laughs> 40,000 times more than your mother. And he doesn't see you for the sin, he sees you for the person. It's like, you know, abhor the sin, but love the sinner. Mm-hmm. And she could look at it in that context. You can hate the war, but love the soldier. Exactly. She she saw it in that context, looking at it in the eyes of God. And so then I, you know, said, what you just described explains how I feel about non-duality, which is, I. it's not that I condone the horrible, abhorrent act. 
I don't. I don't condone it. I, I don't want to see those things happen in the world. But at the same time, I realize that all of us are human beings. We all are imperfect. We all are making mistakes. And at the end of the day, everybody that claims to be only good is not only Bullshit. good. Bullshit. Right. The only people we should be probably concerned about are the people that claim to be only good because that is narcissism. Right. It's the people that know that, as Alan Watts says, they're, they're, they're rascals at their core. Yeah. Right. It's like the people that don't know that they're a rascal at the core. Those are the ones that still haven't yet discovered what the darkness is. What is dark matter? What is dark energy? Maybe it's just the things that we don't want to allow to even be in our consciousness. Yeah, and, and and that aspect of distortion that I was talking about, distortion is a force, and you could personify that force, and it's been called many names, the beast, the antichrist. Antichrist is an interesting word I've been playing with. I want to touch on one thing. So mm-hmm. if we say Melchizedek is in the frequency of Hermes, in the frequency of Hermetic teachings, one of the quotes that I pulled out of a recent book from Paul Selig is, how you change the world is by how you see the world, right? So his, and this is exactly what Yeshitsu y'all demonstrated, is by her act of seeing the world differently, the world actually changed. Her world changed. She recorded something different. Viktor Frankl did something different, something similar in Auschwitz. Like people making these incredibly wild and radical perspective change that seem um, impossibly divine, you know, and... You do that and it actually changes the world. And this was mm-hmm. really kind of the guiding principle behind Arcadia, that festival we threw is like, let's, beautiful. let's see the more beautiful world and let's bring it into form now. By what an own. epic place that room was too. I know. Like, it was unbelievable. That was so like, cool. Like, <laughs> it was unbelievable. Talk about feeling like you're in a 5D kind of a world. I mean, really well done on that. That was yeah. really cool. But you're right. I think it comes down to you want to change your world, start by changing your perspective on the world. Yeah. Start to try to see a different way of seeing it than you've seen it before. Because seeing it the same way over and over again and you're not happy, <laughs> you know, some might call it delusional. I don't. I actually call it ascended. If you can start to see the world in the context that you would like to see the world, then the world will start to reflect more of that back to you. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mathematical equation. And another person that I think would be tied to Thoth and Hermes would be Metatron. So it's just the angelic form, and you probably heard of the 72 names of God, right? So Metatron is known also in the non-canonized books of the the Bible um, as being kind of like the highest of the archangels, right? And there's some connection as well. Sometimes people refer to Metatron as the lesser Yahweh, right? Yahweh being the name of God, right? And it's it's kind of interesting because there seems to be this connection also between Metatron, angelic representation, Thoth, Hermetic principles, geometry. Yeah. And one, if we're right here, we haven't gone too far past the second principle, the principle of correspondence. The one note that I have here from the Kabbalion is in studying the monad, which is the divine spark that we hold inside, mm-hmm. you understand the archangel. As within, so without, so as as above, so below. So actually, if we want to understand Metatron, and if we want to understand all of these angelic beings, look inside yourself and you'll find it. Also, if you want to f- find and understand the demonic beings, look inside yourself. Look inside yourself. And be willing to confront it. And and this has been a big part of my journey, Integrate. actually, 
it started in Arcadia. I did a ketamine cannabis journey to prepare myself for this big week ahead. And it was a very surprising journey because it showed me, and this is skipping ahead a little bit to the principle of polarity, which we'll get to, but it showed that I'm choosing to embody a particular type of polarity upon the spectrum, but I'm the entire pole. I'm the yeah. whole pole. And what it showed me was my the opposite polarity of what I'm choosing to express that right now. The vision that it gave me was a black hole with teeth. It was like full Shiva the Destroyer. I was just fucking, I was a, I was a monster. I was a monster. And I was like, holy shit, that's me too? A black hole with teeth? Like, it was like a, the fucking pit. You're like Luke Skywalker going Star Wars. in the cave, dude. <laughs> it was intense, man. And, 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 that, and that journey has continued of showing me all of the darkness that you could possibly imagine in the world, but showing it as me. And in that journey, it's, it's deep and it's intense and it causes a, it causes a flinch, you know, because it's one thing to look at the darkness and not flinch, see a shitty movie with some torture or something like that. And you want to kind of close your eyes and like turn your head and not look at it, of course. But then to see it as you, oh, that's a whole other fucking level. And in the ceremony space, you know, if you try to look away, if you try to run from these different aspects, it's like a bear that's just going to chase you and start eating you asshole first. Like it doesn't, doesn't sound good. It doesn't care. <laughs> it doesn't care. You know, you can't run away from these different things, which is one of the reasons why I really have such deep reverence for the plant medicine path is that in the psychedelic it reveals path. things, it reveals to things. You. Mm-hmm. and Absolutely. you don't and you don't have a choice. You do have a choice, but the best choice is to surrender and see what it's actually trying to show you without trying to change it or without trying to flinch. And actually in this process of seeing that opposite polarity, the anti-Aubrey, which is also the Aubrey, the Christ and the Antichrist are also like mm-hmm. transposed and we'll get totally. into that principle polarity. By seeing the anti-Aubrey, it actually made me in a way more Aubrey because then I realized that I was choosing to be Aubrey. I wasn't just, I just didn't come out of the fucking womb. Boom, here I am. Here I, I'm Aubrey. No, I'm a full spectrum being and I'm choosing this. And in choosing that, there was a strength. There was like, oh, I'm choosing this. And so I trusted myself. I trusted myself to be able to choose which polarity I wanted to express at just a little bit more from that journey. So just the deepest gratitude for actually embracing the entirety of my darkness so that I'm now reinforcing my choice to participate in the light. And of course, also, you know, I love talking shit. I love being a fucking rascal. I love all of the. You're definitely a rascal. Oh, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. I talk, but I, mean, I think you see that, and you you do see that in yourself, which of course. which is what is so endearing, right? That that to me is one of your greatest qualities. Is that and it's it's very Alan Watts in its feel, right? Which is Alan knows he's like he'll call out rascal stuff. He's like I'm the worst rascal of all. Like, are you kidding me? He loves to joke and he loves to like rib people and. But that's just kind of who he is, and he and he's he's with that. He's good with that. And this is back to the individuation process Carl Jung is referencing, and that's what alchemy is all about. All Carl Jung did is he took alchemy and put it into words that would be fitting to the scientific community. Mm-hmm. What you're really talking about here is just shadow integration, and us understanding or not understanding dark matter, dark energy, to me is just a larger metaphor for us starting to now understand our shadow collectively it's all mind mm-hmm. when we look at it from that context like everything shifts everything shifts you look at jesus okay jesus what did he do he just told everybody you know judge not right unless you judge yourself love 
God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's really all he taught. You got the Beatitudes, a few other things, or the meek shall inherit the word. But man, did he ever get attacked? Mm -hmm. He got attacked. So it's not about seeing things. I used to say that we see things from our own vantage point. Now I change that to say we see things from our own advantage point. Mm. This is our perspective. The thing that I think is going to benefit me is how I'm going to see whatever it is that I see. And until I can break away from that, I can never see the dark demon with the teeth that I am. Right. Right. And as soon as we start to see that, then the power that demon has over you diminishes dramatically. Mm -hmm. Because the more you try to repress it and say, no, it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist, it will just come out and, like you said, eat you asshole first. Yep. Every time. And you won't even know until it's already consumed a good portion of you. Yeah. And then you're like, how did this happen? I'm finding myself in the same situation again. I'm experiencing the same pattern over and over again. That's what hermeticism is really about. It's not about looking at the world and saying, here's what's fucked up about the world around me. It's about looking at yourself and going within and saying, uh, who am I? Who am I in my full spectrum? And then being able to be at one, at one mint with that or atone mm. to that way of thinking. Yeah. It's just, this is making me think of the, uh, and they have this, I think in the, in the recent printing of the Kabbalah and at least I don't know about the original, but they have a painting that by Michelangelo, which I think we talked about on our last podcast, which is, and you mentioned how God is showing up in a human brain and you, did a lot of cool geometry things mm -hmm. with that. But I don't know if we necessarily touched on or if, if I just didn't recall it, but how that was actually showing that the universe is mental, that actually God was inside a brain yeah. in the Sistine Chapel. And then reaching towards Adam, and if you look at Adam, he's kind of like, lazily putting his finger mm -hmm. up and kind of turning away like this kind of bent like, like basically like yeah. I know God, I know, but I'm gonna look away just enough that I can go play this game over here and live this experience of separation so that I can have maximum complexity creation, all of the different things. I don't want to look straight at you face to face to God and see all of the truth revealed because then I'm not actually in polarity. I'm not actually having this experience. So man just kind of turns away and lazily says, yes, God, I see you. Huh? You're right there. All is mine, but I'm going to play this game for real. Just like I play one-on-one -on -one basketball, like, you know, I'm going and playing to the death. Yeah, like shuffleboard. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. 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 Like, it requires, if, if we just looked at, if we just stared at each other when we were playing shuffleboard right mm -hmm. before this, and I just looked at you and say, I see you, Robert, as yeah. God, as me. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. Like, now I'm going to win, motherfucker. Why, why, are we, <laughs> why are we even rolling these pucks in the first place? Of course, no, we just skipped I'm going to win, motherfucker. That's, right. the, exactly. that's what made it fun. That's and right. that's why Adam is like, eh, I see you, God. But And I think it's important to do both. It's important to be like, yes, God, yes, God, I know. And me as Adam, I want to play like this. You know, yeah, I want, totally. I want to experience it like this. No, this is this is what we're here for, to have this experience. There's another part of that painting, right, on the Sistine Chapel. And it's, it's so beautiful. You look up and you see this entire massive thing. And, of course, you know, their bodies are almost like hyperbolistically, like, like over everything. Right? Mm -hmm. Everything is like their proportions are bizarrely off but still beautiful. Yeah. And 
one of the things that you notice about it, because we never talk about like a heavenly mother. And yet, if you look closely at the Sistine Chapel, you, that particular image, you will find Sophia under the arm of God the Father inside the brain. Now, she's not going the same direction. If you look at it closely, the way Adam's body and his leg is curved, right, and laying there, and he's got his hand up like this, and God has actually got his finger straight out. Yeah. Right? It's very deliberate. Adam is, like you said, kind of like looking away and not really fully paying attention. Maybe there's something there. Maybe I'm not fully aware of it. But the way his leg is curved is matching the way that God's body and leg is curved also as a mirror reflection. You'll see that. But you'll also see Sophia, this younger woman. He's got this white hair and everything. And Sophia is like this beautiful woman. He's got his arm around her. And the way she's positioned is in the form of an X. So she's positioned crossed where God is positioned. So it forms this X. And what that X actually represents is the optic chiasm. The optic chiasm meets, it's where your right eye meets up with your left brain and your left eye meets up with your right brain. And it happens right at the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is the feminine aspect inside of what's called the cave of Brahman. Cave or the wedding hall, as it's often referred to. We we talk about this, you know, wedding halls and last supper and all this stuff that we see in the Bible. All of these analogies and metaphors are relating back to some physiology even in our brain that's part of ancient Kabbalah. That's part of Gnosticism. That's part also of this hermeticism. And what this is basically pointing to is that you've got a masculine principle, you've got a feminine principle, the pituitary gland is right at the optic chiasm, and then you've got the the pineal gland, which is like shaped like a human anatomy, like a human anatomy, but the masculine form of it. The pituitary is actually shaped like the feminine form of anatomy. And there is a breathing exercise that you can actually do to raise those to the same plane. It's part and parcel, you probably heard about this Cecum, or it's also referred to as the Christos, mm-hmm. coming up the spine to light up the chakras. When you do this process, it's an all an alchemical process. What you then will start to realize is you create a marriage between this masculine feminine aspects of the brain. And this is the birth of the spiritual aspect of the self. That's why it's also called the womb, not only the cave of Brahma, but it's shaped just like a womb. If you look at a like a, a view of it as a photograph, the thalamus is shaped just like the womb is shaped. It's identical. And inside that, there's a little walnut-shaped thing that's right at the top, coming right up the shashumna, right? So you've got the ida pingala, the masculine form, the feminine form, these two snakes creating the staff of Hermes. And right at the top of that is this thalamus. And this thalamus becomes a new entry doorway for the initiate to then be able to experience Shambhala. Mm. And it's a, it's a very, it's, you'll find this across many, many different esoteric teachings. This is a process that becomes a true second birth or a spiritual birth following your resurrection. And it's all following Joseph Campbell's hero's journey as well. Mm-hmm. That each of us have a hero's journey in this matrix of mind. And that's why I do believe that it's all literally planned out because of cause and effect. We are experiencing a retrocausality in time on both directions. The future determines the past as much as the past determines the future. We've all seen this, right? We all experience things that are bad or horrific sometimes. And we can't have the opportunity to see the wider perspective that maybe this is a good thing that's happening. We think it's a bad thing. 
But with the perspective of time, sometimes the polarity of that experience shifts to the positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is bringing up something for me that I wanted to talk about. We're jumping ahead to principle six again, the principle of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So in, if I read this correctly, the Kabbalion is basically saying that the all, which is what they call it, many names for that source, God, mm-hmm. whatever you want, um, the all is the causeless cause, basically, right? And in some way... It's like the formless form. The formless form, mm-hmm. the causeless mm-hmm. cause. And that's the only thing that's outside of this law of cause and effect, that mm-hmm. each new cause has a form or effect. To me, my understanding of free will actually dovetails with this in that we participate in the all, and there's the intent, which was also, you could say, God's, what I've always understood from all the medicine journeys long before I had any text that made sense was that God said one thing and that was yes. That was the choice. It was yes. And there was a choice and that was the intent. And then everything else flowed based upon all of the little pieces of God making additional yes choices, making additional intentions. And it seems to me that we have free will to the extent that we can access the I am that participates in the field of the all. Mm -hmm. And so that we can actually generate a causeless cause if if we're able to tap into that aspect of us that participates in the original causeless cause. But otherwise, we're just going to be that log. They talk about this in Kabbalah, the log in the river that is bouncing between one bank and the other and getting stuck on rocks. But we can actually start to swim a little bit. We won't be able to escape cause and effect, but we could just swim a little bit to maybe avoid this eddy, maybe move toward this thing, maybe find a play, way that we can get to take a rest on the riverbank for a little while. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think, a, a deeper understanding, at least for me, that works about what free will really is. Yeah, I, I look at it in a very different way than I did only a few years ago, and I, I'm just on the path learning. So I'm not saying this is more my opinion than anything else. But I feel as though what we refer to as free will, or what we refer to rather as destiny, let's start from the destiny standpoint, maybe is just the free will of the higher self. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're, we're saying applying, something similar. We're yeah. applying the context of a linear perspective of time when all dimensions of time exist simultaneously. There's just a study and a new scientific theory that just came out. I think it was out of MIT, like about two weeks ago. That basically said, okay, we, we now believe that all dimensions of time exist simultaneously. And it's kind of funny because academia is now becoming the last to know everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, and then they claim, they claim their ownership of the idea, even yeah. though this has been around for thousands of years, right? That a lot of the context that we have in the scientific sense is just sort of the confirmation at the end where the reductionist says, yes, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the things that unfortunately is still kind of upside down in society to a certain extent. We don't recognize that science and spirituality are not juxtaposed. And I delineate between religion and spirituality. To me, religion has the tendency to be more about teaching and purveying judgment and especially organized religion. Sure. And whereas spirituality is kind of the opposite of that. It's about looking within without judging the outside and learning to no longer judge yourself internally. And through that process, you can now take on empathy for everybody else. And that actually starts to ease your suffering. Yeah. And look, if you want to see the correlation between spirituality and science, 
the basic fundamental, if you actually get down to the core, pure essence of what each is, it's just asking questions. Yeah, it's curiosity. It's just curiosity. It's totally. just fucking asking questions and never but now, claiming now we're not never claiming to ask questions. But because science is becoming more like religion. And yes. in religion, you were never yes. allowed to ask questions. Well, well, why do the people who never heard of Jesus go to hell? That doesn't seem fair. I asked that question when I got honey-dicked into some fucking Bible study on a ski trip that I thought was just a ski trip when I first moved to Texas. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense. There was people for thousands and thousands of years that never heard of Jesus. You're saying they're all in hell? 80,000 years of humans all in hell because this person hadn't been born yet and they hadn't heard about it? What about that person in the fucking village that never heard anything? You're like, well, that's why we send missionaries. Like, this is not a god then if they're putting people in hell for something they had no agency over. This is a demon. This is a demon. And they're like, okay, maybe you should just go ski. And I was like, thank you. I appreciate that. That's all I wanted to do anyway. like, it's one o'clock, man. <laughs> so that's all I you wanted know, to do anyways is fucking ski. You guys sort out. You're not asking question asks. And like, let me go ski. But that's the idea. And, and we entered a period of science where people were doing the same thing. Like you weren't allowed to explore, discuss, no, talk about all these questions are concepts. the things that are like most provocative, right? And problematic. People asking questions. Look what happened during COVID. Yeah. People simply asking questions, getting censored like crazy. You're not allowed to think that. That's even in Canada, they actually refer to it as sort of like, what was the term that, that Justin Trudeau used? Something like unlawful thoughts or yeah. you know, inappropriate thinking. It's like, wait, what? It's kind of like beyond the bizarre. But this is going to the principle of rhythm, mm. right? And I, I, I refer to this as rhythmic balanced interchange. Now, Walter Russell doesn't talk about, he was a polymath in the 20th century, often referred to as Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. And Walter talks about rhythmic balance interchange all the time. I'm going to put it in, in more concretized terms. So a lot of people don't know this. When you think about the party that is, is very much oriented around, you know, NAACP is going to be the Democratic Party. But a lot of people don't realize that that was the party of slavery. It was Lincoln. Right. And the Republicans who basically said, no, 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 this is wrong. Right. The, the North was very much about, you know, this sort of Republican thinking, Democrat thinking was in the South, but the parties were exactly juxtaposed to where they are. How can something like this even happen? Now, first of all, you go to polarity, the principle of polarity. Mm. Is it a coincidence that elections swing on 1% and that's really not based on there being more Democrats or Republicans in the two party system? It swings based on who's more angry than the other. Mm. That's really what's happening. Who's going to actually have voter turnout more than the other because they're more angry. And so we go through this cyclicality. But when you look at it from a macro perspective, even the principles upon which parties stand, their general foundation and basis can flip 180 degrees in 170 years. Yeah. It happens all the time. And this is the nature of rhythmicity. And it's, and it feels like it's actually flipping again. Yes. Which is an interesting, which is an interesting thing, right? Like the, and of course words carry a lot of weight, but if you think of kind of ideas that surrounded totalitarianism and fascism and control, top down control, I mean, those were always associated with the right. And it started to flip in an interesting way where that's now becoming associated. Antifa? We're supposed to be anti-fascist, but why does it act and feel like fascist? 
Right. It's it's this very interesting, and we're in this interesting liminal space, a time between times, a time between stories, as Rabbi Gaffney says, like a time between stories. And in this time between stories, polarities are up in the air and different things are all all in flux. And it's the most interesting time. Well, think about it. It's like we look at North Korea. Is North Korea a social communist regime? No. As they claim to be? A social democratic party? Have you ever noticed that that's the way it's positioned. Even Hitler ran on a social democratic platform, but he very quickly becomes a fascist. Every single time throughout history, we'll see this rhythmicity. We'll see this cycle. Mm -hmm. Whoever it is, whether it's Castro, right? Chavez, whoever it is that becomes authoritarian and fascist. And the way you know it's fascist is when you look up and you see on the walls, giant photographs of the father figure. Mm-hmm. Right. Whatever. When you go to a country that's got like this gigantic picture, like you go to Tiananmen Square in Beijing and you see at the Forbidden City, this gigantic photograph of Mao Zedong. Then, you know, you're in a fascist regime. Mm-hmm. This is not communist. You know, everyone's equal, united order kind of concept. No, it's like everyone's equal, but some are more equal than others and in absolute control. And it's authoritarian. And so what's happened is you notice that it's not linear. You know, when someone is to the far left, they make one step and they're actually popping out they on the, the other loop. side they make the because it's a circle or mm-hmm. it's a sphere. Yeah, we think of the pole as a line, like a pole, but it's not. It's a hoop. It's a hula hoop. And this is what my own journeys through the darkness showed. It was they were harrowing journeys that I've been on where I'm going in to see the dark and darkness in all levels from even the disgust impulse was an interesting portal that I went into the, the, all of the things I was disgusted at, because if you're disgusted by something, whether it's feces or whether it's bugs or whatever it is, then that thing is something you judge, you know? And so until you get beyond that, you're going to be still lost in judgment. You're not going to have any hope for right. unconditionality. Mm-hmm. So it was showing me. And as I walked through this, it was like, you know, there's a quote from Nietzsche, like, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, Beware, be wary of staring in the abyss, lest the abyss stares back at you. But then what they for, what they missed was like, OK, then what happens? Like when the abyss is staring back at you, then what happens? Well, keep walking and keep walking and, and hold the faith that you're going to make make the loop, make the loop of the pole and find your way around the other side. And that's one cycle of the hero's journey. One cycle of the hero's journey through the darkness, back into the light, bringing back the home, new wisdom, new insight, new discoveries that you found. Guess what? Back again, back into the darkness, up into the light. This is the process of evolution. Yeah. This is the principle of rhythm just shown in a circular pattern rather than in a sine wave form. Yeah. It, and that is circular in a way. It's yeah. just looking at a two dimensional view of that circularity. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's another thing that Matthias says is what we're trying to do now is, is the fact that we're in another cycle where things are being torn down and this is, we're in this cycle. It's like a, the down, call it, up, down, whatever. This is a very mammalian perspective, but up, down, down being down being the bad. When likely that could be easily reversed. Could be good, you know. But but ultimately, like down being the down cycle. The goal is to just minimize the extremities of the of the cycle of of the principle of rhythm, so that the work that we're doing is to try and keep us from crashing so deep and so far down that we suffer more than is necessary. 
So it's like just kind of holding things in love together and making the transformation so that we can find bottom faster and then level out the swing and then be wary lest we get to the top too fast and there needs to be a deep, steeper crash. Just trying to kind of level things out a little more balanced because the extremes are just gnarly in our density of polarity. They're, they just are. They may be fine from a cosmic perspective, but they hurt. People starving hurts. You know, people suffering hurts. People dying hurts. Hurts. So like trying to minimize that as much as we can. That's the bodhisattva compassion. That's like, no, let's just hold each other. Even though we can't stop the cycle, let's hold each other. And that's what they talk about in the principle of rhythm. It's like, can you polarize yourself in a different position that you're not actually stopping the principle of rhythm because you can't stop the principle of rhythm, but you can polarize yourself in a way that the principle of rhythm doesn't affect you. You can raise your vibration. You can raise your vibration. And which that's exactly what you principle. described with the woman who got raped on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Yes, she'd so go. She, she raised her vibration, was able to go through this very traumatic, difficult experience and change the lives of all of those people in the process. That's also Yeshua. It's the same, same concept. You know, principle of polarity and rhythmicity tied in together. So here's how we can apply this to something that's what we live. Does the earth spin clockwise or does it spin counterclockwise? I don't know. I should know that. It spins counterclockwise, right? So that's what people would say. Of course. But the the real answer, the real answer is it depends. I thought my whole life it spun counterclockwise. And then I realized that, no, that really just depends what your reference point is. Because if you're looking at the earth from the North Pole, then it spins counterclockwise. But when you're looking at the earth from the South Pole, and who determined what's upside down in space? Right. There's no upside down in space. I mean, it's not like we're imagining people that are upside down in Australia or semi upside down or Antarctica. (laughs) If you look at the reference point and change the perception and really change the polarity of your perception, because perception is polarized. Mm. And that is your collective conditioning biases and all the things that go into (laughs) how you determine who you decided to be and how you will see the world both maybe in this life and maybe several past lives as well. You're carrying this accumulated baggage of perception so that we look at it and say, well, maybe this is really just a point of advantage because the people that were setting up school curriculums and in, in universities and in, you know, the Nobel prizes and everything, they all say it's counterclockwise because they're all in the Northern hemisphere. Mm. It's a point of advantage. So yeah, it's, it's a like, different way of looking at it. For us, we think, oh, the sun's up. Sun's up. Well, not at night. Sun's down. <laughs> sun's, right. sun's underneath our feet on a different part of the world where for them it's up. That's you right. Know, but for us it's down. That's why when you flush the toilet in Australia, just like on the Simpsons, it actually does spin the opposite direction. Just yeah. like cyclones spin the opposite direction from a hurricane in the northern hemisphere. It all depends on your point of reference. And we can take something and say, this is scientific fact. It's scientific fact. It spins counterclockwise. No, it's, it really depends. Let's change our polarity. And is it negative versus positive? I don't really think so. You know, people all say, well, wait a minute. You're saying that women are negative because it's a negative pole? Isn't that, isn't that oh, a we gotta, term? We got to get to that. I got a lot to talk about. That's the seventh principle, the principle of gender. But I'm not finished with the principle of vibration here. Let's stick with number three. And uh, the principle of gender is really interesting. It's a seventh principle. So principle of vibration, number three. This was one of the quotes from the Kabbalion. The atom of matter, the unit of force, the mind of man, and the being of the archangel are but one degree in one scale. 
and all fundamentally the same, the difference being between solely a matter of degree and rate of vibration. So basically, referring again to the principle of mentalism, all is mind, all is mind that is that is articulating and manifesting in just different degrees of vibration. You know, and that's the principle of vibration. Now, vibration could probably be exchanged with other words that are synonyms for vibration, right? But nonetheless, frequency is another way to say vibration. But that's basically what I'm saying. It's like it's all the same thing. It's just at a different rate of speed, the different, different either. and, And also the most incredibly rapid speed appears very solid, like the atoms moving in this table that feels very wood like. It's just moving so fucking fast, solid. You know what I mean? And it's 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 yeah, very I, I interesting. Look at, I look at matter as light that is suspended between the centripetal force of gravity and the centrifugal force of radiation, and it's basically light. So the, the, that's that's the way to think about it. That it's suspended light, and we have this, you know, probably luminiferous. Ether is what people refer to it as. And I'm a believer that, you know, it was a real travesty when Einstein kind of said, there's no ether. And I think he wanted to revise some of that thinking towards later in his life when he couldn't figure out an answer to gravity still, right? Even though he, he purported to sort of, sort of support uh, called the Kaluza-Klein theory. But, but the point is that each of us can be deliberate about our own vibrational experience. What holds us to the lower dimension of vibrational experience? And what is vibration? It's cycles per second. It's a way to think about it. So cycles per second. So if I do a vibration and I do a beat, it would just be, uh, 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 uh. it might be, you could count how many of those sounds I could make per second. Maybe it was like one and a half or maybe it's less. I don't know. But if I take it up to like 432 cycles per second, it's going to play an A note mm. in the fifth octave of sound. So as you take it up further, let's take it all the way up from where we're looking at sound by another 55 octaves to get it up to the Terra frame. Now you're in light. So sound and light, even though the scientists on the call say, well, wait a minute, on this podcast would say, wait, you're talking about you can't mix longitudinal waves with transverse waves. Well, yes, actually you can. They're they're related. You have an uh, an artifact of sound, which is phonon, and you have an artifact of light, which is photon. Phonons carry mass. Photons are massless. The two are related. One is just traveling at different speeds. The speed of sound, depending on what medium is going through the, through the air, it goes 343 meters per second. When you look at it in terms of that would be about 730 miles per, per, uh, sorry, 730 miles per hour mm-hmm. is the speed of sound. So when you have a jet that's like traveling, you'll hear that boom sound right behind it. They used to have that. That happened a lot more when there was Concorde jets, but now they kind of retired. Well, I just things. saw the latest Top Gun movie, which is kind of interesting, right? It's like uh, got it to Mach 10. It's like 10 times the speed of sound, <laughs> uh, which was like so incredulous, but also kind of fun to watch this movie. <laughs> but but basically, we have light speed, we have sound. The two are actually connected. One is just a transverse representation of the other. One is a reflection of the other's absorption. The two are connected, absolutely connected. So when we think about our own vibration, does this mean then that if we could raise our own vibration, we all have these feelings of like, okay, I can get into different brainwave states. So you've got kind of like 
delta brainwaves, you've got theta brainwaves, which is, you know, what we're doing with sleep and, and sort of subconscious responses, autonomic bodily responses, et cetera. And then you go beyond that to alpha state, which is what happens when you go into a meditation. Alpha state is between 8 and 12 hertz, right? So cycles per second. So I close my eyes, and if I get to above 8, and earth is at 7.83, it's called the Schumann resonance, okay? If I get myself to get in that place, and the fastest way to get there is to either get on your knees and pray or to just close your eyes in meditation. And as you close your eyes, you're still conscious, you're awake, but you close your eyes, you can get your brain to the coherence of this higher state of vibration. That's when you start getting a whole new experience of life. And that's why meditation becomes so critically important. And this has been around for thousands of years. They weren't counting the cycles per second, but that's actually what it's doing. And another interesting thing that I think about with these brainwave states is actually, so there's certain psychedelics that can get you to waking delta. So delta is between one and four mm-hmm. hertz, it's the right. slowest mm-hmm. brainwave state. And when you're in waking delta through a ketamine experience or through a nice experience, it's very much a unicity experience. But you also get a very similar experience when if you're talking to Joe Dispenza's top meditators, he's hooked up to the EKG machines and Mm -hmm. and they're looking at it. It's EEG, actually, right, for the brain? Electroencephalograph. Yeah. Um, So they hook them up to the EEG and they're actually in high gamma of several thousand hertz, Mm -hmm. which is very much mimicking what you're experiencing in the low delta range, right? Yep. And so the low and the high are it's actually giving you a, a very similar experience. Yeah. And then somewhere in between, you find your spot. You know, obviously in beta, we're handling beta shit and stressed now. out. And, 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 yeah. you know, it's kind of good Maybe for... Maybe you, bro. I'm fucking straight out for the whole way. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's get back go. to the shuffleboard right. table. That's why I like there was those Muse headbands where you yeah. could like gamify and compete with people about how deep you could get into alpha state or even if you could oh, I'm building state. right now a spiritual game, mm-hmm. like a, a spiritual game, which is called Cyberverse. It's going to be like really cool. And in this game, you can pick your avatar. You come to Earth. You could pick all of your, you know, your, your zodiac, your numerology. You could pick all of your different aspects of your avatar that you want. And that will then dictate a lot of the types of experiences that come your way. Sound familiar? Hmm. Right? It's literally recreating. It's, it's like training wheels for you to look at the world in a virtual reality or an augmented reality world. It's a different way for you to look at our own experience now. Yeah. And then how each of those experiences that come at you, and it's all built, built on the, the base principles are the seven hermetic principles as well. And I thought there's no game like this. So we learn through games. We learn through experiences. It's more than just didactic. Right. So I thought this could be kind of cool. You know, people like this type of stuff. Who knows? So we're building this. And the the thing is, is that I believe that you can raise your vibration. You can get to these higher gamma states. You can get beyond beta. Right. Beta is between 12 and, say, 30 hertz in that rate. But then when you get up to kind of the 100 hertz range, then you're looking at gamma brainwave states. And that's where you get this bliss kind of feeling as well. It's like this total bliss feeling. You're then going into another dimensional frame and very likely as you go higher and higher because the way the the comment you just read there is that, you know, the angelic being, right, is really the same thing just in a different vibrational state from what you and I are. Mm-hmm. That to me gives me hope because yeah. it basically says, okay, then I can raise my frequency no matter what happens to me. I, I saw something recently was like, 
I, I love the post that you did. It's like, if you want to see joy, then be the joy, mm-hmm. right? If you want to see love, then be the love, right? Mm-hmm. Be the change you want to see in the world. I love that. And to me, enlightenment is when you can cross the street and someone could hurl all kinds of terrible insults at you and you're unfazed. You're completely unfazed. You're not anxious about the future. You're not, you're not anxious about the past. You are in this place of Zen, which is like, nothing is going to phase me. I'm determining my experience with my surroundings, not the other way around. And that requires, first of all, the conscious decision that you know that your vibration impacts the experience in the world around you. And you can raise that no matter what that experience in the world around you is. And if you don't, then you'll just continue to feed into that same loop cycle. And then, you know, the hammer and the nail analogy comes back again. It's like, oh, there I am again. I'm getting victimized again. Damn it. They always hate me. You know, why is it I'm always treated unfairly? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, you know, can't do, can't do, can't do. The only real obstacles we face in this world are the ones we truly believe in. Yeah. Yeah. If whatever you believe, you're most likely right. <laughs> you know, like if you think you can or you think you can't, you'll be right. Yeah. That's that's the Henry Ford famous quote, right? You think you can or you think you can't, you'll be right. And it goes back to the whole story of Star Wars, which is another hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker had to find his own darkness. He had to go and battle Darth Vader, who later he finds out is his father. And he had to crack his mask and then see that it was his face inside the helmet. Mm-hmm. We all have to go through that moment. We all have it, and that's the shadow integration part that precedes being able to raise to higher states of conscious and awareness. If you can integrate your shadow, that's what hermeticism absolutely teaches above all else. Integrate your shadow. Understand who you are. Understand these principles are all like principles that must carry through. They're like the base fabric of this existence or what you know I would refer to as like a construct. And as I've been making this game and designing this game architecture with my teams – I'm like, whoa, this is like kind of trippy because I don't know that I would make much of a different world than the one we live in. Yeah, it's, that's the whole Alan Watts thing about dreaming. You know, you dream something farther and farther, far out until actually you forget that it's a game and there's actual chance and that there's things that appear to you, not by cause and effect, but appear, appear to you as chaos because you can't even recognize the law because you don't have the purview to see the law. So it feels very real to you. You've got blood in the game and i think that's one of the things i realized too is we want to have blood in the game it's the argument that sebastian Junger bases the book tribe upon the thesis that we want blood in the game we actually do want blood in the game and so it also helps you understand you know i got a i got some friends who are preppers you know who are like building their own bunker and their own thing and i got a farm and stuff and I know I'm down, whatever. Like, I have this friend also, uh, Billy Carson, who literally built an entire city of underground, three, three, underground like 500 <laughs> feet underground yeah. in Georgia. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, like, I get it. But there's also what, another thing that you have to get is some the, the part that it's a little disturbing to me and has kept me away from it is, you know, that some part of them wants some shit to go down. But then, so so then I would find myself judging that, like, oh, man, like you want something to go down. Why else would you be doing all of this stuff? Some part of you secretly didn't actually want it. You know, they never admit it because it's horrible. It's a be horrible experience, totally. right? And but there's some part that wants it. But then I just realized, well, they're wanting something to go down. It's probably just because they want 
to feel like they got skin in the game. Life is too easy. Everything is too comfortable. Everything is too in its same routine and its same pattern and it's boring and they don't feel alive. You know, like <laughs> I just was rewatching game of Thrones and uh, you know, my, my buddy Ed Scrine, mm-hmm. he shows up in season three as Dario Naharis fucking such a great character. I hated it so much when they changed him. Dario is not the guy that died in the, the Khaleesi, battle. Khaleesi's, Khaleesi's boyfriend. Oh, oh, yeah, that guy. Khaleesi's, yeah, yeah, Khaleesi's yeah, boyfriend yeah, with the long speaks, right? Well, Ed's character spoke, but he goes, he says, uh, he says, I'm a very simple man. I'm a very simple man, Khaleesi. Uh, I live for fucking a beautiful woman who wants to be fucked and killing a man who wants to kill me. And like that was the simple, that was his like simple life philosophy. I thought right? you were gonna say killing a man who wants to die. <laughs> <laughs> nope, that was not. That wasn't gonna cut it for him. Doesn't want to be an executioner. <laughs> but but this idea of what he's talking about is he's he lives for radical aliveness, eros or dark eros, as, as Rabbi Gaffney would call it, which is the eros of experiencing the erotic through the entanglement of a goddess who wants to make love to you, right? Like he was contrasting it with his other leaders of the second sons who just paid for whores back in there in this, in this world that we're creating. He's like, not for me. I wouldn't do that because mm-hmm. I want, I want to fuck a woman who wants to be fucked by me. You know, like that was, that was, that's Eros. There's a, there's a certain like attractiveness in that. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to say the very least. Right. So, so like that or the dark arrows of, Oh, you want to kill me? Excellent. I have a sword and let's go. Because both, if you do both of those moments right, you are so radically in the moment. I mean, I've never been in an actual sword fight. I do kendo matches, which is like a approximation. Oh, yeah. But the worst consequence is that I do, we do them like without the armor. So we get, we have just a helmet. So we get slapped helmet and gloves. So it hurts, but whatever. It doesn't really matter ultimately. But nonetheless, it gets your blood up and there's nothing else that you're thinking about, but your bamboo shinai. And the other person's bamboo shinai and the combat that you're in. And I can it, only imagine. It, it, it hurts when you get hit. With of arms. course. And, and I you hit hard. With yeah. I could only imagine how much more into it and how much more alive you would be if those swords were metal and their swords were real. Like we can't even fathom that. I mean, I think the closest approximation would be MMA or something like that. But and 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 I haven't also stepped into that world in a serious enough way beyond training. Are you making an announcement? I don't know. We're gonna do it. Now. <laughs> no, no. I actually thought I was. It's a live kendo no. with swords. Yeah, and <laughs> they do have those. And, they do have in those. a decagon. Okay, they do have to be They're all in Russia. That's they have right. like are like medieval knights that fight each other. But nonetheless, the the point being is that like we want to feel alive. Like we want to feel alive. Basically, what he's saying is. I want to feel the most alive. And these are the two portals. These are the two doorways that make me the most alive. Well, and it's a very honest, it's a very honest way of him saying, you want to understand me? I'm quite simple. I want to be the most alive. And the ways I get most alive is by fucking a woman who wants to fuck me or killing a man who wants to kill me. So take that exact same thinking and apply it to mentalism. Holy cow. Yeah. So we're building a game. <laughs> Would I want the game to be absolutely real? Like, I would think it's so damn real. And after I, like, got to a stage, I'd be like, I want to go back. I can do that again. I'll do better next time. <laughs> right? And it's like, it was so real. Yeah. I, I just got this pair of Oculus Rift goggles, right? Mm-hmm. And I met with uh, dinner with uh, this Palmer Lucky, fantastic, interesting guy. He's the founder of Oculus, and he got fired from Facebook. And he's, he's like a ball of flames guy. Like, I'm really 
very interested in how he, he thinks. And I put on my Oculus Rift goggles or whatever, and they took me to uh, the guy. Do you remember that that, that 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 TV show that was the one where he climbed El Capitan with no, Alex? Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. with no ropes, with no ropes. Like wow, wow. It's like most people spend days trying to climb this thing, and he's like, nah. If I can't do it in like four hours, then you know, yeah, with no ropes, I'm just gonna like go do that thing. And I think to myself, I that's not a sport that I would probably choose, even though I've done rock climbing before, and it's it's scary as hell, right? It's literally scary as hell, especially when you're up there. And I was climbing in Idle Wild, and there's like helicopters. I was like, what are the helicopters there? Oh, somebody fell. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, but the shit feels really real. You're, and it's that radical you're aliveness. Like, you're sleeping on the edge of a knife. It's that radical aliveness. And for me, I didn't choose that. But if I had chosen to be you know, a climber of Mount Everest, and as you're climbing up and you're seeing all the frozen dead bodies along the way, there is something about this that is like it's that radical aliveness. And we get kind of very attached to that radical aliveness. But if you are designing a game construct, right, let's say you're putting yourself in the shoes of the higher self and the lower self would say, well, this is, is this like destiny or my free will? And you were designing this game as your higher self. And you would say, okay, Aubrey is going to have a certain experience. And he's, you know, I've chosen for him. He's going to be, you know, uh, Aries or he's going to be whatever Zodiac sign you are. Right. And he's going to think that it's all chance. But actually, because astrology, alchemy, all these things, esoteric wisdom, they're all tied together. The weights and measures, all of this. Because also Thoth, Metatron, these same figures throughout history are ones who actually gave us weights and measures. We think that it's all arbitrary. They're actually all mathematical constants. Mm -hmm. All of them. Do you know that six feet, which is a fathom, which is really just father and mother, fathom, Mother backwards. Six feet minus one meter is the Euler number. Euler number mm-hmm. is the second most important mathematical constant that there is. Right. Right. And it's the, you know, it's probably equally important to pi. But we think that these are all just arbitrary units of measure. You know, isn't the foot just some king's foot? No. In a mental construct, in a game of mentalism, all of these things are deliberate. So maybe by the choice of your Zodiac in this game construct, Maya, it determines how successful and abundant life you'll have. You thought that this was all just your own work. Things maybe just came easier for you in some ways. And other things were harder for you because this was the path you chose along your hero's journey. And it's beautiful when you start to look at it from that perspective. You start to become one with this higher mind. And realize that there is a purpose to my life. It's not just to be here and die. I'm here to learn something. I'm here to learn love. I'm here to learn acceptance. I'm not here to learn judgment. I'm here to learn and transcend judgment and experience love. Yeah. And does that resonate? Of course. And, you know, as you're talking, I was, it it brings me back to this idea that, you know, when we had this idea that a foot was actually the king's foot, and it would constantly change. And this idea that, oh, how fucking annoying. It's a foot. This is a, used to be a foot, and now it's not a foot. And we have to change our measurement, put out all whole new rulers, and redo the whole structure of everything. How crazy that would be, because it's the denial of law. 
It's saying like there is no law, everything is subjective. However big this king's foot is, that's how big the foot is for now. Whatever this word means now is what there is no law. There was no absolute truth, first principle, first value. This is, I think, the flaw of postmodernity is, yes, question everything and recognize that everything is a story. However, we still have to hold true to the laws like these like these principles. And it doesn't mean that we can't maneuver within the laws. I mean, one of the guiding points of the Kabbalion is use law against law. The master knows how to use the, the principle of vibration to escape the principle of cause and effect to a certain degree. Like you can play within the rules. That's what a master actually does. But you acknowledge and respect the laws. It's the creative constraint to life itself. And that's fucking beautiful, too. And I think we can go far too I think postmodernity has gone way too far in saying nothing is real. Everything is subjective. And no, wrong. Yes, lots, lot is subjective. But there are there is law. One of my favorite lines from the Declaration of Independence is we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That they are basically endowed with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to ensure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers, interesting, the use of the word just powers, from the consent of the governed. There's always a balancing act. Even the founding fathers, when they're looking at this, and by the way, all the founding fathers, all hermeticists. If you look at the list of people that were the signers of the Declaration of Independence, they were all almost to a person. They all believed in these same principles, whether it was Benjamin Franklin or George Washington who said, I, I don't want to be a king, even though they want to make me king. He wanted to step out of that role. He's like, okay, I'll subject to being president, but because out of duty. And then he's like, I want out of this thing as soon mm-hmm. as possible. And he, he lived to his word on that. And he died not long after, you know, he spent only a few more years after he was no longer president that he, that he passed away. But the, the point being that what we look at in the world, we have to be able to take a step back and say, okay, this is the laws of the land. And then also here's the laws in the context of the universe in this hermetic principle, whether you ascribe to this or not. I think everybody can probably look at some of the seven hermetic principles and say, okay, there's probably some wisdom in there, even without accepting the first one, which is the most important. And that is that it's a mental construct, that it is a Maya. And it's not only Hermeticism that says this. Maybe Hermeticism is what permeated into the concepts of Hinduism, right? That permeated into Taoism and Buddhism. Who knows? Maybe it's that same reincarnation or that same matching of frequency over and over again. But if we can be able to step back from that and realize that everybody that ever did anything horrible through society, for the most part, if you interviewed them, genocide, right? People that were despotic autocrats that kill people that were against them, they would probably say they believe they were doing it for a greater good. Mm. Like and Thanos. Thanos. It's their point of advantage. It's not their vantage point. It's their point of advantage. And what Hermeticism is about is being able to see that in yourself and say, whoa, it's not the world around me that needs to change. It's me mm. that needs to change. Yeah, and here and it gives you some keys that you can start to use to try to start and to alchemize. Keys throughout history. Keys of Metatron. Keys yep. of Melchizedek. Keys of 
of Thoth, right? Keys of Peter, keys of, of, uh, of Saint Germain. There are all these different keys and that term key keeps coming back over and over again. And you'll read it a lot as well in the Emerald Tablets. So we're talking right now about alchemy and these are some of the keys that are beyond the laws. And we got to get back to principle of gender. We will. Uh, it's, that's the seventh principle. I'm just going to read a couple things here from, from alchemy. Use law against laws, the higher against the lower, and by the art of alchemy, transmute that which is undesirable into that which is worthy. And they give two examples. To change your mood or mental state, change your vibration. One may change his mental vibrations by an effort of will in the direction of deliberately fixing the attention upon a more desirable state. To destroy an undesirable rate of mental vibration, put into operation the principle of polarity and concentrate upon the opposite pole to that which you desire to suppress. Kill the undesirable by changing its polarity. And so some of the examples that come to mind is, all right, you're afraid. If you try to go kill your fear, that's not using this hermetic principle. You don't go try to kill your fear. You apply the opposite pole, which is bravery. Or love. Or love. Bravery, courage. Yep. Uh, or gratitude. Mm-hmm. So you apply a different thing. And then that's actually what counteracts. That's alchemy. That's alchemy. Or focusing your attention on that's a different thing. That's led to gold. That's led to gold. And this is also where I think I find some <clears> – recently had a discussion with someone. He's very focused on the darkness of the world. He's into this kind of – you know, the every there's this giant, you know, conspiracy of sorts that's trying to derail us and fuck us up and lizard people. The whole thing. We've heard it before. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's all all of its different variations, some more plausible than the others. And some part of me is like, yeah, dude, maybe, maybe. However, the more that you try to focus on that thing and kill it, it's not going to fucking work. Like you might be right. You might be like, you might be smoking bath salts. Like I'm not sure, but there's some good reason to think that maybe you have some of the things you're saying are correct, but the pragmatism of what you're doing is where I draw some question like, yeah, okay. It's good to be in awareness of it, but to continue to focus on that Mm -hmm. thing and try to destroy that thing rather than try to apply the opposite polarity to that thing, which is like, we have this principle of the antichrist. What about the, anti-satan or the anti-distortion well then you get to the christ anyways right so you're you're actually applying the opposite you want to you want to fight the darkness well fucking be the light you know apply the light Mm -hmm. like that's don't fight darkness with darkness and there are certain instances where fighting fire with fire actually makes sense sometimes you do need to actually contain something they do this in forest services a controlled burn to stop a bigger burn I get it. I get it. There's times in which things are needed. Sometimes actually eliminating someone or putting someone in print. I understand all that. I'm not saying like this is some Pollyannish world where you can just apply this. Again, we're talking to mental principles. Sometimes in the 3D actions need to be taken, you know, fully understand that. But overall, from a meta concept, you know, looking at the whole thing, these principles are actually going to get us where we want to go. You're so right on this. Um, the best example I could think of this is when I was leaving Bausch and Lomb. I had left Allergan, which is a giant company, and I was I had a very successful career selling Botox and Juvederm and Lapan and Latisse and launched all those products. Mm. And 
I took a job. I got recruited by one of the largest private equity funds in the world. And I was at that stage in my life where I was like, okay, I was living out my persona, right? Here I was, 40-year-old, like, you know, being a like a badass dude, balling, right? I'm balling. I'm running a multi-billion dollar organization. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this is badass. You know, I'd come to my national sales meetings. They'd be playing like Tony Stark music and I'm coming down on the platform <laughs> type thing. They got a video of me. Like they've got my face superimposed on like Tom Cruise, like, you know, and El Capitan or something like doing this, you know, Iron Man type of a climb. And I'm like, yeah, this is my life. I'm like, live it. And I get recruited by Bausch and & Lomb and, and by uh, Warburg Pincus, one of the largest private equity groups in the world. It's like the one that's like a badass group, you know, like kind of KKR plus, even more boutique-y, but the same size. And there were seven people who knew what you just said. But yeah, that's right. So there were like, seven who understood who KKR was. Good, good yeah, KKR is a large private not, equity not group. Props. Yeah, yeah. So the point being that I'm living this. And then all of a sudden, my hopes were dashed. Because I was going to take this company public and spin it out, take it public and be, you know, live my dreams of, okay, I'm create this thing. And now I'm really personified, right? This is what I want to achieve. And I was 41. And all of a sudden they changed their mind. Like, no, now your business is doing really well. We're not going to spin it out. We're not going to take it public. We're going to sell the whole thing to the arch enemy of arch enemies, which was this company called Valiant. And it was not Valiant, which would be V-A-L-I-A-N-T. It was with an E, like L-E-A-N-T. It's like, oh, wait a minute, does that mean it's really Valiant or sort of like askew? And the company ended up going through a lot of stuff, and they really were not customer-oriented. It was just a total anathema to what I wanted to be mm-hmm. working with. So I decided to to leave, right? And, you know, here I was. I basically got fired from this company. And even though I'd been very, very successful with it. So I fly on the way home. I'm on this plane and I like throw up in the bathroom. I'm like, terrible life is like broken for me. And I'm like, what the heck did I leave the job that I had for? Cause I'd only been there for like not even two years yet. And the next morning I woke up, I was feeling this depression sort of set in and I walk outside of my house in Laguna beach and go to pick up the paper. Cause we still had newspapers back then. It wasn't that long ago. And I go to pick up the paper and I remember reaching down. I'm in my ropes. It's probably already like 10 o'clock in the morning, but I'm kind of in this depression. And something triggered in me. And I thought to myself, today will either be the best day of my life or the worst. The choice is mine. Mm-hmm. High stakes bet. And how do I then transpose this thing that was terrible that happened? I made a bet and I lost the bet. Right. And I thought I'm successful in this. I'll be able to do the things based on the success that I had. No, it was exact opposite. And so I had to think about this differently. And I said, how could I recreate this circumstance to make it the very best thing that ever happened to me? And that was the moment I decided to start my own company. And it turned out to be one of those seminal moments where I was like, because of this, I am free now to go and build whatever I want to build. And it became that like, absolutely crux moment, which was like, now I can go do and and do all the things I really want to do without having to compromise, without having to, like, I really want to be able to experience this. And that was actually what set me on, in a way, a spiritual path. Because up until that time, I couldn't really speak about my own spirituality or what I was experiencing. I was already going through it at that time, but I couldn't speak about it. Now I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to compromise 
what I believe would be the ideal situation. I want to create that situation. I had other bumps and difficulties and crises along the way, but it was one of the best things that I ever did. So everything that happens to us, we can flip the polarity of it. Yeah, or and change your mental state by by an effort of will, by an effort of an, you made through effort of will decided to make that day a different day than what the what the path was laid before you were said no. And this is something that I've been following all the way back to one of the first teachings I came across when I was in high school was Carlos Castaneda's work, and they talked about intent. Don Juan was always talking about the power of intent. This was the power of the Nagua, the one who. Okay. We got to stop. We're on Carlos Castanado, so we'll get back to that. <laughs> I hope this has been something to contemplate, I would think. Mm-hmm. What, Rama? Well, what they're bringing up is very deep. What Alan Watts, they mentioned him a few times, going into that nothingness, the void, the antimatter, the black hole. <laughs> Mother has shown me what black holes are like. They are entrances to the other side of another realm. And we are surrounded by nine realms, as in the stories of Asgard and Odin. And there are multi-dimensional realms beyond that. And it's huge. I'm just saying we are on our way to ascension. <laughs> and that's the word for tonight. I just, you reminded me of when Micah was younger and we were traveling uh, I read him the children of Odin a little bit every night and he fell asleep very well to those yeah. kinds of things. And, uh, what a, I'm complimenting the gentleman taking the time to delve together. So we will take a little break right now. And when we come back, we'll have some music from the stars. And a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Tanya Gabrielle and Kay Pacha and on we go. And until we come back, have a good break and we'll see you shortly. Namaste everybody. How's the talking stick to you, Richard? Hello, and good evening. Good evening, Richard. All right. One more hour of (laughs) astrology to take a look at. Okay, where shall we start on this 17th day of December 2022? Yeah, all right, let's start with, uh, let's start with the sun is at 27, Sag, and the moon's at 16, Libra, 
And then you got Mercury leading the way at 16 Capricorn square Uranus at 16 Taurus. And Venus is at 10 Capricorn. Oh, Mercury is sitting on my moon. How about that? Venus is at 10, 10 Capricorn. Mars still retrograde. It's down to uh, 12 and a half degrees. Jupiter's last. It's 29 degrees and 47 minutes. So it's right, right there getting ready to jump into Aries. In uh, probably in a day or two, Saturn's up to 22 Aquarius. So that's a loose, loose trine. It's you know, Mars at 13, Saturn at 22. That's 11 degrees apart, but uh, that's probably operative. Of course, Mars being retrograde. You know, communications are delayed and screwed up. And da, da, da. Neptune's 23, Pisces, Pluto 28, Capricorn. Now, let's see here. When we go to the uh, the trouble spots, the big trouble spot is uh, Venus and Mercury. Uh, square Neptune and Jupiter as they came out of the they came out of Sag and now they're going to try and they're trining Uranus so uh, I don't know uh, it should be a process of resolving issues But I don't see it anytime soon. Uh, really? What does that mean, Richard? Anytime? Well, well, see, you got Pluto is still governing uh, so social systems. Mm-hmm. All right. The culture of government. Oh. Right. Yeah, and we're we're kind of you know kind of waiting for well okay maybe when Pluto gets into Aquarius you know maybe we'll see some movement here on the uh, uh, changing relationships between the governments and the people, right? Yeah, but unfortunately, and I looked this up because. Rama made a comment at the end of last week's show and said, "Well, Pluto get out of get out of Capricorn this year." And I, I went and checked it, Rama. I looked up. I punched up the uh, next year's winter solstice. All right. Uh huh. And on the twenty first in twenty twenty three, Pluto will be at 29 degrees and 
two minutes of Capricorn. <laughs> so Pluto is it may go it may go into Aquarius temporarily during the year, mm. but next next solstice it's still going to be at the thirty degrees of Capricorn. And in a well, year's time, and a yeah, and in a year's time, Mars is going to be in Sagittarius. Well, that's good. Well, it's going to move from Gemini halfway around. Yeah. Yeah. So we got you know Mars in that portion of the zodiac anyway. Um, anyway, maybe more about. The coming year later on, but for right now, okay. for right now, I'll say, let's see what Kaipach is up to. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Batman, we're surrounded. <laughs> Sky Pacho with the weekly Bailey Report, Astrology for the Soul, December 14th of the great year 2022. Woo! Lots going on, Sun Square Neptune, God of the Oceans, God of the Waters. We got the water flowing. You may be feeling some Neptune. Mercury's a square Chiron today. We got uh, Mercury up there in Capricorn with Venus. Talk more about that. Moon's in Virgo. Yeah. Uh, today, just went in there. All day tomorrow. Friday, Moon goes into Libra. Then into Scorpio on Sunday. Finally heading into Sag by next Tuesday. So Mercury, first of all, square Chiron today, in conjunct Mars tomorrow, trine Uranus on Saturday. I mean, what, what you can see here going on, if you look at the chart at the beginning, is the south node of the moon is making a yod, the fickle finger of fate over there, with Mars and Gemini at 11 degrees, Chiron and Aries at 11 degrees, and on uh, Monday, the moon hits 11 degrees. I almost use that for the chart. You know, if moon conjunct her own south node, uh, also making a yod, right, with Mars, and not only Chiron, but then Venus is up there at 12 degrees of Capricorn. So if you have any planets, you know, at 10, 11, 12 degrees, uh, you know, you're really uh, experiencing some deep, you could say, healing. Yeah, maybe talk more about that. But uh, the big thing, and I'm so excited about it, and I want to read to you uh, the Sabian symbol, for Jupiter entering Aries for the first time in 12 years. 
Yes, he ventured forward into there uh, a few weeks ago, but you know, he went back into Pisces. This is the this is really it. Yeah. So I want to talk about that. Venus then uh, by next Monday comes up to square Chiron, you know, and do the same thing that Mercury did in conjunct Mars, square Chiron, trine Uranus. So Mars comes into an exact uh, sextile with Chiron on Monday. And, uh, yeah, we have that third quarter square moon on Friday. So... I will be talking about the third quarter square right now. All right, you guys. I got to start off with the very first degree of the zodiac, the Sabian symbol for zero degrees of Aries, Jupiter, just now going in there next week. And it will be there for 17 days. So this Sabian symbol, this energy, Jupiter is shining down upon all of us for 17 days is super awesome. And so I went to see when was the last time Jupiter hit zero degrees Aries? 12 years ago, I'm thinking 12 years ago, I go back onto my YouTube channel and I go back, back, back. The very first Pele report was in June of 2010 when I, and I was talking about Jupiter going into zero degrees of Aries. Joined by Uranus, there was a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction at zero degrees of Aries in June of 2010. I don't know if you go back that far, but, you know, that was also Fukushima. I remember Uranus uh, going into Aries on the same day that, you know, Fukushima blew. So that was very powerful. Think of everything you've done over the last 12 years. It's a long time. I did not see coming what has come back in 2010. I had a different vision of the new paradigm. And, yeah, live and learn. <laughs> but... Here's a, the start of a new 12-year cycle. This is really big. This is big stuff. Think about where you're going to be 12 years from now. Did you think you were going to be here, where you are, 12 years ago? Or that the world was going to look like it looks like now, 12 years ago? Think of how much has changed and how much is going to change. It's big stuff. These are big times. We incarnated at a big time. So the first degree of Aries, a woman just risen from the sea, a seal is embracing her. The keynote is an emergence of new forms 
and of the potentiality of consciousness. This is the first of the 360 phases of a universal and multi-level cyclic process which aims at the actualization of a particular set of potentialities. These potentialities in the Sabian symbols refer to the development of humanity's individualized consciousness. The consciousness of being an individual person with a place and function, a destiny in the planetary organism of the earth, Gaia, and in a particular type of human society and culture. It's going to be a long report. I got so much to say. There's so much to pack in here. This is like, yeah, unpacking this is really going to be something. <laughs> a lot of cycles, a lot of things going on now. This Jupiter, even this 12-year cycle, is operating within even larger cycles, and I want to get to those too, but this is a long interpretation. To be individually conscious means to emerge out of the sea of generic and collective consciousness, which to the emerged mind appears to be unconsciousness. Such an emergence is the primary event. We need to consciously emerge out of the wetico, out of the collective psychosis, out of the collective unconscious, if you know what I mean, out of the matrix. It is the result of some basic action, a leaving behind, an emerging from a womb or matrix, here symbolized by the sea. Sun square Neptune today. Such an action is not to be considered a powerful, positive statement of individual being. In the beginning is the act, but it is often an imperceptible, insecure act. The small, tender germ out of the seed does not loudly proclaim its existence. It has to pierce through the crust of the soil still covered with the remains of the past. It is all potentiality and a minimum of actual presence. You get it? We're not at Gemini thinking, you know, we're not in Virgo thinking, we're, we're not in Scorpio or Capricorn. This is, this is the very beginning that is just instinctive, impulsive, spontaneous desires emerging from the soul and they are right out of the unconscious. Boom. 
This is the time we're in right now. We need to get ourselves some guts and act. In the symbol, therefore, the emergent entity is a woman. Symbolically speaking, a form of existence still close to the unconscious depths of generic biological nature. Filled with the desire to be rather than self-assertion. The woman is seen embraced by a seal. Check this out. I never knew this before, but I trust Dane did his homework before he said this. Mm. Because the seal is a mammal which once had experienced a biological, evolutionary, but relatively unconscious emergence yet which retraced its steps and, in quotes, returned to the womb of the sea. The seal, therefore, represents a regressive step. It embraces the woman who has emerged because every emergent process at first is susceptible to failure. This process is indeed surrounded by the memory, the ghosts of past failures during previous cycles. The impulse upward is held back by regressive fear or insecurity. The issue of the conflict depends on the relative strength of the future word and the past word forces. The possibility of success and that of failure is implied throughout the entire process, all 360 degrees, the entire zodiac, every single one of us, <laughs> and our whole cyclical life in this body on this planet is susceptible to failure. <laughs> The possibility of success or failure is implied throughout the entire process of actualization. Every release of potentiality contains this two-fold possibility. It inevitably opens up two paths. One leads to perfection in consciousness. The other to disintegration the return to the undifferentiated state, the state of hummus, manure, mm. cosmic dust, <laughs> to the symbolic great waters of space, to chaos. This stage represents the initial statement or theme which refers to the first level the impulse to be. And this is Chiron in Aries. For eight years, right now in a yod with Mars, the ruler of Aries, 
this impulse to be. I am. I deserve to exist. I deserve to be. I deserve to assert. Charge. Go. Take. I am sovereign, independent. I am powerful. I am potent. This is Jupiter entering Aries. And it will con it'll come up to conjoin Chiron. The amazing thing is, it's only there for five months. Woo! Out of a 12-year cycle, Jupiter is now whipping through Aries. By May, it's going to go into Taurus, right? So for these 17 days coming up here, I just want to say, I want to encourage you, freaking be, man. State it. Say it. Show it. Do it. Act now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> it's time to emerge out of this collective unconscious of mainstream media, of the matrix. I'm giving a whole talk on the, on the 28th, the astrology of 2023. I'm going to be going into much greater detail than I will here in this short little Pele report on YouTube because this will be posted on my website, not YouTube, not where I can be taken down. So I got things to say. There's things coming up. The failure, the return to the matrix, to the unconscious, to the weakened immune system, to, you know, to diving into these social structures that are seeking to simply, you know, use a social credit system and facial recognition and digital identity and digital currency to just control the matrix and co control the collective. No, no, no. We need to emerge out of this Saturn in Aquarius, the conservative establishment trying to suppress the future, hold back the liberation and enlightenment of humanity. No, 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 no. That's not for us. That's not what this mantra is about. That's not what this time period is about. We've got different points in this cycle, this 360-degree cycle. Let's look at the sun. We're coming up to the solstice point. We're coming up to the sun entering Capricorn. We're coming up to the ninth month from the sun starting in Aries and impulsively acting unconsciously through the first fire, earth, air, water into cancer. And then, boom, giving birth to the individuality, Leo, 
Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, that individual dying through relationship and intimacy to join the collective consciousness and culture in Sag, Capricorn, Aquarius, and then finally exiting into cosmic consciousness in Pisces. So the sun is culminating. The sun is at the highest, you know, that 270 degree Capricorn is a crisis in consciousness, a need to break out of the limitations imposed upon us by culture, society, and external authority. Boom! To let go of the past, like this says, to not be limited by what the outside world, even partners, even our intimate others, to, to really step into our individuality now. Now, the interesting thing is that the moon is moving through Virgo, humbling herself, preparing for intimate relationship and partnership, going into Libra, and then going deeper into soulmate-soul union, alchemical transformation through that union in order to emerge into a socialized being. You know, it's we have these stages of evolution. It's like we don't get out of here until we go through each one of these 12 steps. <laughs> 12 steps of the zodiac, that is. Ow! It's like my book, What is Love? The kids go through. Each sign, yeah, and each sign holds great mystery. Each sign holds great teaching, and they all build up. So Pisces is the beginning, but it's also the culmination, the end. But we're in a time period this week now to come into this week's Pele report, okay? This is about... First we act unconsciously, then we become self-conscious in Leo and Virgo, right? Cancer, Leo, Virgo. Then we get a mirror, we get relationship, we get partnership. There's things, that, there's shadow elements that other people show us that we would not know, we would not see without a mirror. So there is a stage, Libra and Scorpio, where it is super important to, to, to go into this heart space to open these chakras to experience ourselves in and with through intimacy before we can go on to the next stage of Sagittarius of the quest for the Holy Grail and expanded consciousness we need to go down into the depths of shadow, yeah, in relationship and partnership. That's this week. And I'm doing this whole relationship course starting in January 
and I just finished this relationship course. And I got to say, I've been doing a lot of workshops over these last 12 years of the Jupiter cycle. I've met a lot of people. I've sat in a lot of circles. I've watched this planet change. I've watched society change. And I've watched a growing sense of loneliness, a growing sense of isolation, an increased amount of sorrow and sadness at a lack of intimacy and a lack of connection. The technology is not serving intimate connection. Society, the, the corporations, the governments that seek to divide and conquer want to break up. They know we are stronger when we are unified. They know that in community we are more powerful when we combine and unite our forces. And there is this social distancing and there is this lockdown and there is more, okay, division happening and it is consciously intended and manipulated by certain of those who are in power. Make no mistake, this is, there are no accidents. So we need to step into not just acting but consciously acting to create community, to unite ourselves together. And I really want to be working towards this and for this and working with communities, global communities, to make, yes, a subculture, an alternate network, an underground railroad, yeah? You know, an off-grid web, the web of life, the web of nature, the psychic web, the, the ley lines of planet Earth, the whole psychic, you know, underpinnings, working with subtle energy. That's what this mantra is about. We need to really go outside the technical, artificial realms. We need to use cash or other trade and other forms of exchange. We need to create new supply lines, new ways to travel, new ways to communicate, new ways to gather. We need to weave a whole nother web. And that web is a garden of delight. <laughs> we have to keep the light. We have to hold the joy for Gaia. We have to smile and dance and sing in the midst of the bullshit. <laughs> I was just thinking about it, you know. It's like, you know, you're, you're listening to music in a construction zone or you're driving through a, you know, a honky, tonky, funky, noisy city or something. What do you have to do? 
You got to turn up the music, baby. <laughs> I mean, hello. We got to we got to sing louder. We got to we got to dance. We we got to we got to spread the music. We we got to take our heart space. We got to take our love and we got to shine it out there. We got to connect with the lonely hearts. You know, we got to knock off. We got to you know, punch holes in the plan. Yeah. Of this BS that's going on around down here, man. Ow! <laughs> oh, God. We gotta get down to the river. Take me to the river. So today's song. I just got turned on to Xavier Rudd. I know I'm slow. I'm out of it a little bit. I, I don't always stay up with everything, man. There's a lot to stay up with. But yeah, Xavier Rudd, follow the sun. Follow the sun. There's a new moon. There's a new sun. There's a new Jupiter. There's a new paradigm. There's a new earth. It's coming. It's happening. We are it. Ow! Yeah, baby. I will help build a new network supporting the web of life. That together we can co-create a garden of earthly delight. Let's repeat that together. All week, all around the earth, all around the globe. We want to create, you know, a network that supports the web of life. It doesn't destroy it. It doesn't try to genetically modify it. It doesn't mess with it. It doesn't abuse it, exploit it destroy it and pollute it. No, 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 no. We, we, we want to give a planet to our children and their children that is beautiful. And that, that is a garden of delight. <laughs> yeah. We can do this, man. We can do this. So. And you know how we're going to do it? We're going to do it by spreading joy and light and by having fun. Not by blaming and punishing and correcting and, you know, self-righteous pontificating. No, 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 no. No. You know, people, you know, people get turned off by, you know, some people don't like it when I do my preaching. <laughs> get on my soapbox. You know, but like when, when you're partying, when you're dancing, when, when, you know, when you're rock jumping in the river, man, people are like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to go there. So I want to encourage you, get together, get together. Maybe, you know, all at the next new moon or something. Let's all do new moon ceremonies, you know. Let's all do solstice ceremony. 
get together. If everybody listening to this report got together with a circle of 10 or 20 people, right? That'd be a lot of people. I want to, you know, it's like every workshop I do, I say, you know what, go off, do your own workshops. I mean, we got we to gotta spread the astrology of the day. Yeah. Build community, make community, and then we're going to get lists of communities, and we're going to weave together all these communities, and it's going to just organically just like grow like the mycelium of all the mushrooms that communicate all the way through the subterranean networks of our planet Earth. That's us, baby. We'll be connecting. I'll be connecting with you in the dream time. Boom. One more time, let you go for today. Yeah. I will help build a new network supporting the web of life that together we can co-create a garden of earthly delights. Ow! Yeah! Follow the sun. And there's another song too. Uh, you know, earthly delight. It's kind of a, it's an old funky, you know. Anyway. <coughs> Namaste. Aloha. So much love. <laughs> Talking to you, Richard. All right then. I'm uh, inclined at this time to just go ahead and uh, let's listen to Tanya, and that'll give me a few more minutes to get into, uh, let's call it a different perspective. Okay, just a minute, I'm getting there. All right, so what we're looking at here in the next couple of weeks here is Mercury and Venus conjunct Pluto. All right. And what I'd like to see is more intelligent thinking and um, more understanding 
of this whole emotional environment because we got we 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 can we can all pretty much admit that we've got a a, a body and then we got our feeling aspect and we got our thinking aspect and then we got our higher self or our soul which is the soul is the true human having an experience in this uh, biological body powered by an electric etheric body made up of seven forces represented as circles rotational circles of force and those seven those uh, seven chakras energize the seven glands in the biological body so if you've got a chakra that's not operating the way it's supposed to operate, then you get a glandular problem. I see. Oh. Yeah, it's like thyroidism, you know, that's a throat chakra um, thing, and the thyroid doesn't work right, you know, and has to do with the, the voice and the power of the word or sound, right? And we've also found out, I believe it to be true, that uh, you can contact your soul. And the way to do that is through meditation. Mm -hmm. And there's a scientific way to do that. But anyway, how long is Miss Tanya's uh, presentation there, Mr. Rama? 17 minutes. All right, then let's go for it. Here we go. Hello there, it's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrumorologist. Welcome to Star Codes. This is where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers to help us to navigate the amazing energies in play as Earth goes through this big shift that I'm sure you're feeling. So in this case, it's the Capricorn new moon, and it's such an important lunation. It's actually the final new moon and final lunation of our year 2022. And there's so much incredible energy with this new moon. We actually began 2022 with the Capricorn new moon, and now we're ending with the same sign, which is actually quite indicative of what this whole past year was about, which was a lot of work and taking responsibility and stepping into leadership out of victimization. So that theme is really taken to a new level in a very beautiful way for this particular new moon, which happens on December 23rd at 10.17 a.m. Universal Time. That's in London, and that is 5.17 a.m. New York and 2.17 a.m. Pacific Time, L.A. 
Now, I want to look at the two numbers first because the 23rd of December, 23, is the royal star of the lion number. And we're about to move into 2023 where that number will be active all year long. And that is the most powerful number in numerology. Lion is the king of the animal kingdom. 23 represents that leadership and strength, courage and confidence and the flexibility to be able to navigate any shifts in play. And then we have the time, 10, 17, 5, 17, 17 behind any hour, basically, no matter where you are on planet Earth. And 17 is the immortality number and reduces to eight. And that's the other number of leadership, strength, abundance, overcoming obstacles. And so this is a hugely dynamic code. And then we also have the number one activated. So last month we had the Sagittarius new moon at one degree Sagittarius. Now we have the Capricorn new moon at one degrees Capricorn. These two new moons end the year at one degrees each. And then we have three more new moons at one degree to start 2023. So in total, five new moons at one degrees and what is a new moon and what is the number one they both signify new beginnings fresh start so there's so much new beginnings energy that's coming through these next few months it already began of course but you're really going to feel it now because of the acceleration into 2023 and the fact that we also have the solstice coming up, which I'll get into in a moment. So Capricorn is the sign of dedication, responsibility, leadership, manifestation, and building something that lasts. So we have for this new moon, five planets or four planets in the sun. The sun is a star in Capricorn, Sun and Moon, Venus, Mercury, and Pluto. And this is a very important time because Pluto is at 27 degrees, 23 minutes, and in the last stages of its time in Capricorn. Pluto will be moving into Aquarius next year, dip into Aquarius for a few months, and then retrograde back into Capricorn but this is really the time where Pluto is now acclimating to that shift of a tr- tremendous uh, awakening when Pluto ends up in Aquarius. And so that is coming up. And so we are now, again, at the precipice of new beginnings just by virtue of that planet. This new moon is also significant because it happens a couple days after the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, summer solstice in the southern hemisphere. And the solstice is a time in the year where we undergo a rebirth. It really is three days of stillness that is very important. And I'm going to create a special solstice star codes episode next week. And it will really focus not only on what's going on in general around the solstice, but the fact that Jupiter will be at zero degrees Aries in a very, very special degree uh, because of how it aligns with 2023. So we're going to cover all of that in the next episode. But right now, we're going to look at the fact that Jupiter will be at an Aries point. So zero degrees Aries is 
called an Aries point. And we have four of these points in astrology that begin the four seasons. They are zero degrees Capricorn for winter in the Northern Hemisphere, zero degrees Aries, beginning spring, zero degrees Cancer, beginning summer, and zero degrees Libra, beginning autumn in the Northern Hemisphere. And they're very powerful points. And when we have a planet on one of these points at the moment of a new moon that is ushering out a year and bringing in new energy, it's very significant. And in this case, the sun and moon are at one degrees in Capricorn. So they're in a very tight 90 degree connection, which is called a square to Jupiter. So we're talking about cardinal signs of action, Jupiter and Aries. We're talking about new energy with the new moon, the one degrees. We're talking about the signs bringing in a fresh new season and Aries, where Jupiter is, is the first sign in the zodiac. So you can see there's so much energy here that is taking us out of the past so we can literally say goodbye much more easily and just be very present with our lives, which is the zero point, experiencing the zero point moment by moment. So the significance is really quite stunning. Now, Jupiter governs trust and hope and faith and expansion and a sheer enthusiasm about your life and a lot of joy, prosperity. So it's a really lovely way to celebrate not only the new moon, but the solstice because Jupiter will be even closer to zero degrees Aries on the solstice two days prior on the 21st of December. So this indicates a really beautiful theme of expansive, joyful, fresh new beginnings. This is, as you can see, a celebration in many ways because as it happens, Jupiter makes a direct, very powerful contact, a square with the new moon. So it's even the new beginnings are even more activated because squares are all about taking action. They create tension in order for you, for all of us, to take that action and move forward. Now, at the same time, we have some retrospection as well because Mars is in its retrograde cycle currently. It started October 30th. Mars, the ruler of Aries, and that's the sign Jupiter is in. So that's retrospection. And that retrograde, by the way, ends January 12th. And then Mercury stations retrograde on December 29th until January 18th. So we will have a period of time, two weeks, where both Mercury and Mars will be in retrograde. And I will go more into this in a future Star Codes podcast. However, the fact that Mars rules the actual sign of Aries, where Jupiter is creating this big dynamic uh, square to this new moon is significant because it also indicates that the retrospection that we will partake in will help us to really gain a lot of neutrality and balance because we have both the new beginnings take action and then we also have at the same time the look within and listen to my heart at all times. So it's really looking at this new surge of light 
spiritual light that is streaming through and infusing our hearts and really wanting to be integrated. So we can stay now very much and and more easily in a place of calmness and neutrality to allow everything to unfold, allow it to integrate in the final weeks of the year. So you want your focus to be on breathing, on seeing, feeling, living, creating through your heart and remembering since this is a new moon at one degrees, that every moment is a new moment. And there's no reason to hold on to the past. There's no reason to go back to the old, even just a minute old, and keep recreating it. Every day, every moment is brand new. And the moment to create the new while being in your heart is being in a place of love. That's where we see everything and everyone as love. Now, to help us with that, too, is there's a very important transit in this new moon between Venus and Uranus. So Venus will be at 16 degrees in Capricorn. It's one of the five planets in Capricorn. And Uranus is still at 15 degrees Taurus. And these are Earth signs. And, you know, this this Capricorn new moon is in an Earth sign. So it's very grounding. And so this, this trine between Uranus and Venus is important because Venus rules Taurus, where Uranus is. And it helps to balance this energy of just feeling secure internally, feeling taken care of. It's all good, right? So it's very lovely energy to support us getting into that place of trust and surrender and knowing that all is taken care of. And there's also another lovely sextile, and that's from Mercury to Neptune. And Neptune is in its own sign of Pisces. It's been in Pisces for many years. Uh, But it's significant because Mercury will be at 21 degrees Capricorn, And if you remember, if you've been following me or following astrology, to start our current decade, 2020, we had that major event, the stellium in Capricorn with Saturn, the sun, Saturn and Pluto, I should say, and then the sun and Mercury were there as well. So it was four coming together and the Pluto and Saturn conjunction in Capricorn had not happened in 500 years. The last time was when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church. That was 500 years prior in, I believe, 1518. So that began our decade. And we all know what happened uh, at that moment in January 2020. So now that Mercury's triggering, activating that point again, it's going to bring through how you've grown, what you've learned and understood, especially about how you think about life because of Mercury, right? Mercury's in Capricorn. So it's like, are you taking responsibility? Did you see how you perceive the world and how you speak and the words you use and the messages you're sending with your body language? It's all about communication, right? But because there is such a gorgeous sextile to Neptune, 
It's all about moving now into love, into unconditional love, into compassion, and to feel everything on a much more galactic level and to move away from the myopic way of thinking. Neptune is very galactic. Neptune has no borders. And Neptune likes reaching out to other frequencies and open up many, many possibilities. And Neptune is really about true love, where we are all one, we are whole. So Mercury's placement at 21 degrees Capricorn, we are also in the 21st century, and 21 means the truth shall set you free, act activates that point. So you want to just focus on the renewal, the shift, the integration that awakens the meaning of the last three years. So you move and we all move into the next three years of our decade in 2023. Now, one more thing about Jupiter's impact, because it is so big, being almost exactly square to this new moon. Jupiter is about faith and When we have faith to the connection to our heart, we have a knowing. It's a natural knowing. And that knowing allows us to navigate any energy, any experience, and turn what seemingly is an impossible situation into a great opportunity that brings harmony within. And that is really what you want to focus on is that faith in your heart that brings harmony within. And Jupiter plays a hugely significant role in 2023. And I'll be covering that amazing impact in our 2023 Ultimate Yearly Forecast. So if you want to know more about that, we go live next week on Wednesday, the 14th. Go to 2023forecast.com and watch a short video on it. And we'll also, of course, have an instant access video for you to watch after the live stream if you can't make it. But we're really going to focus on so much of the harmony within theme because the spiritual number seven is activated all year. 2023 is a seven universal year. And that literally means The horizontal line at the top of seven is heaven and having heaven inside of you, not seeing it as separate. So a huge, wonderful four-hour event that we will be sharing on December 14th. I hope you can join me. Have a look at the video at 2023forecast.com and have a beautiful new moon in Capricorn. And I will see you next week for our solstice forecast. Lots of love. That was the wrong one, Rama. That was for last week. Mm, I don't think so. He said, good morning, Capricorn. Huh. Well, she said the... I don't know. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. All right, all right, all right. Was that the right one? Who's the guy that's famous for saying, all right, all right, all right? Who was that? I think it was... 
I think it was. It wasn't Johnny Depp, but it was another another male another male lead. Anyway, uh, we got a few minutes here. I thought I'd uh, uh, maybe start a, a newish kind of topic here. The book that I have been studying for the last couple of weeks. It's another book by my favorite author, the Tibetan, D.K., the Master D.K., working with Alice Bailey. And this book is called Glamour, G-L-A-M-O-U-R, colon, A World Problem. Yes, indeed. And it was first printing, 1950. And it's now available in paperback. I remembered that from a long time ago, and you brought it up, and now they're going to put it in paperback. I see. Yeah. Glamour, a world problem, indeed. <laughs> yes, and the and the the topic, the the topic is what's called the the astral plane. And uh, actually, he starts he starts looking at the table of contents here. He's got twenty five pages of preliminary clarifications, and then part one is the nature of glamour. What is it? Glamour upon the mental plane is called illusion. And glamour on the astral plane is glamour. And glamour upon etheric levels is maya. So the, the, the the three are related, and they're related to the three parts of the human vehicle. And then part two, beginning on page 94, is the causes of glamour. The racial and the individual growth of glamour. The causes producing world glamour. The contrast between higher and lower glamours. And then we've got, under that, you've got illusion and intuition, glamour and illumination, maya and inspiration, And then you've got this really interesting topic. It's called The Dweller on the Threshold and the Angel of the Presence. And then part three is the ending of glamour. And this is the outline of the technique of the presence. And under that, he's got in, the intuition dispels 
individual illusion, group intuition dispels world illusion, and it it wasn't until I got to this that I actually found out what he was training his group for and he was telling what he was doing in Discipleship in the New Age, Volume 1 and 2. He was working in those with those groups. I think there was probably one or one or two groups that he was working with there. He was trying to get these these uh humans to work together and coordinate their efforts to dispel world illusion. All right, so now he's doing this in the in the in the, in the 30s and 40s and he fi- he finally he finally lets it you know this is like the the third volume of his instruction to disciples and the task he set these this group for was to dispel the glamour of separateness. Which is uh you know, both a both an illusion and a glamour, right? And then you got outline of the techniques of light and outline of the technique of indifference. And then you got the technique of fusion. And what he's instructing us on here (coughs) is how in human development on the evolutionary upward bound path, he talks about the stages of human development. And the first thing that you got to get to is the uh, unified personality where you uh, deal with Maya, become aware of the fact of glamour and the fact of illusion. Glamour primarily is... uh, Magnetic and one's feeling nature, and this is what dictators and authoritarians use to control the people. They want you to feel a certain way, they want you to think. Certain things are true, so they're using deceitfulness to keep the population 
enthralled so that they can be the boss. They can wield the power. And they can tell us what to do. And we're supposed to go along with it. Because we don't know in the beginning, we don't know that this planet is in a great big fog of glamour. And on the mental plane, you've got ancient thought forms that are thousands of years old, you know, thought forms about how it is, how the universe works, and things like that. And then you got all these other feelings and emotional states that people adhere to or follow, right? They, they follow these these uh these these feelings about you know right behavior and uh, blah 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 you know so this is very very interesting book so i'll let you go for that and i'll pick out i'm planning on in this second section the causes of glamour i think that's uh i'll pick out some uh some of these uh fascinating things is the uh, the difference between illusion and, and the intuition. How do you get to intuition? How do you become illuminated? Uh-huh. Right? How do you get the how do you get the light? Right? right. With with the right okay. sorts of practices you can bring in the light of your soul so that your personality can understand. Yes. Going, yes. Going then, beyond the glamour, beyond the beyond. Beyond, that's right. It's, <laughs> well, again, we, we use the, the term The Matrix because of that famous movie. Yep. That Matrix was, it was all about Glamour and illusion. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, be careful which pill you take. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you know, you know, you know the thing. Or <laughs> yeah. The red pill or the blue pill. Oh, or yes. the white pill or the black pill. See. There's actually, yeah. Anyway, that's enough for me for tonight. Thank you, Richard. I'm going to wash my face and go to bed. Yes, sir. Hey, you all have a great conference call, and we'll talk some more next week. Yes, and next next Saturday it'll be Christmas Eve, right? Uh, yeah. You're still going to do. You're still going to get together, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. It's just going to be an interesting. Certainly, certainly. Until we meet again. What? Until we meet again, Richard. All right. Namaste. I love you all. I love you back. Namaste.
All right, everybody. Mama, what's this famous number we need to um, call? 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POW. Okay, everybody. So we will see you on the conference call this evening. And share from our hearts for about an hour. And there's so much going on here in these, in this season. Uh, so we'll see what comes up, won't we? <coughs> so we'll see you there and we'll be right back here at BBS radio, the best radio in the universe at the top of the next hour and we'll remind, uh, Dougie, that it's his birthday coming up here in a few hours. Happy birthday, Dougie, and Don, too. We've been saying this for a while, but I think Doug has been doing lots of other things. So here we go. Happy birthday, Doug, and uh, namaste, everybody. See you on the conference. Namaste. That's it, right, Rama? Yeah, I figured. Okay. We've been changing the schedule every five minutes, everybody. Mm. We're going to let Ebenezer Scrooge go because, um, just because, but, but Regina Meredith has some wonderful things. So we're going to finish. We got 38 minutes to finish with here. Did you turn it back just a half a second here, though? Mm. Uh, just a tiny, tiny. Okay. All right, and then we'll uh, oh, we'll go and we'll. It on me. What? It, but I'm gonna have to play with it. What do you mean it changed it on you? Uh, by trying to put it back, it moved it to the beginning, so I gotta find it again. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember what number it was on? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Did you know that it was going to do that? No. Okay. Well. (laughs) Okay. We are adjusting everything. Yeah. You think you got it right? Yeah, I okay. Got it. Let's just start it wherever it had. And it ended up. Oh. Okay. Just... All right, uh, here we go, everybody. Here we go. Good morning, but I'm kind of in this depression. And something triggered in me, and I thought to myself, today will either be the best day of my life or the worst. The choice is mine. High stakes bet. And how do I then transpose this thing that was terrible that happened? I made a bet and I lost the bet, right? And I thought, I'm successful in this. I'll be able to do the things based on the success that I had. No, it was the exact opposite. And so I had to think about this differently. And I said, how could I recreate this circumstance to make it the very best thing that ever happened to me? And that was the moment I decided to start my own company. And it turned out to be one of those seminal moments where I was like, because of this, I am free now to go and build whatever I want to build. And it became that 
like absolutely crux moment, which was like, now I can go do and, and do all the things I really want to do without having to compromise, without having to, like, I really want to be able to experience this. And that was actually what set me on, in a way, a spiritual path. Because up until that time, I couldn't really speak about my own spirituality or what I was experiencing. I was already going through it at that time, but I couldn't speak about it. Now I said to myself, you know what? I'm not going to compromise what I believe would be the ideal situation. I want to create that situation. I had other bumps and difficulties and crises along the way, but it was one of the best things I ever did. So everything that happens to us, we can flip the polarity of it. Yeah, or and change your mental state by by an effort of will, by an effort of you made through effort of will decided to make that day a different day than what the what the path was laid before you were said no. And this is something that I've been following all the way back to one of the first teachings I came across when I was in high school was Carlos Castaneda's work, and they talked about intent. Don Juan was always talking about the power of intent. This was the power of the Nagual, the one who paints Mm -hmm. their own masterpiece of life. Nagual meaning artist, Mm -hmm. tonal, being basically the canvas upon which life paints you. Mm -hmm. And the defining characteristic of the Nagual, of the, the, the one who can paint their own masterpiece, was that they were able to apply intent. And really, that's again, another hermetic principle of saying, by this force of will... By will, you can change, and by what you focus on, and by all and, of this, flipping the polarity of your perception. Yep, you can you can shift things, and you have agency, more agency. And you would they called those people wizards because of what they were able to manifest within themselves and also in the world. That's that's magic, and that's actually what you're bordering into now. Are the next stages? You know, if you go back and look at what was the first historical reference to astrology. <laughs> It was the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it was almost identical to the Western astrology we have today. So who started this? Because it does seem like remarkably accurate on so many levels, right? Numerology can be like crazy accurate. And so when you start digging into it, you're like, who established all this stuff? The 52-card playing deck even, right? Where did all this stuff come from? You're going to find that literally all of it, this esoteric wisdom that seems to have withstood the passage of time all came through Hermes Trace Majestus. Hmm. We've left one principle out. I'm going to cover it because this is uh, this is an interesting one. It's the principle of gender. And they write, gender is in everything. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Everything, let me say that again. Everything has its masculine and feminine principles. Gender manifests on all planes. Now, of course, we've reduced gender to a discussion about biological man versus biological woman. But that's actually, and I think this is something that actually current post-modernity culture has got right, is like, yeah, it is kind of silly, actually, to determine your gender by your genitals. That's another thing. That's a biological thing that we can, is important. And that's one of those laws like, no, no, this is still important. We can't erase the fact that this is biologically a man or biologically a woman, there is no pregnant man. Some have tried. However, <laughs> however many emojis you want to put on my fucking phone, there's not going to be a pregnant man. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> I saw a picture of one. Nothing's anything wrong with that. Was just it. Just it's yeah. It's 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 the law. It's the law. It's the Tao. It's mm-hmm. old. You know, there's there's certain things that are the law that we can't 
that we can't change. But nonetheless, to understand that there's a spark of truth in that being that, yeah, gender is in everything and within us is all an infinitely complex, unique multiplicity of genders, a unique gender. And so it is reductionist to say, oh, you're a man because of this, you know, genital package that you have and this testosterone ratio or whatever the fuck biological measure, which is all true. But there's also something to say, ah, well, let's look beyond that and let's look a little deeper and understand the deeper principles of gender, which apply all the way through the universe and try to get out of our mammalian biological frame of man versus woman, you know, and get into another frame where we see these as archetypal energies of the universe that we all participate in to different degrees. So I see this also as another form of metaphor. So we talked about the optic chiasm. Right, it's shaped like an X. That's why it's called a chiasm. Chi is the Greek letter X. And if you look at the left brain, which then connects to the right eye, and the right brain, which is the creative seat, connects to the left eye. So we talk about in Egyptology, we talk about the eye of Horus. Right, this is the myth of Osiris, and and actually Osiris is relative to Orion, the constellation Orion. That's why the belt of like the, the Orion is the exact match to where the pyramids were or are, where they're placed. Not only there, but also in Teotihuacan, Mexico, in China as well, where there are pyramids and several locations around the planet. This Orion representation of Osiris is telling a story. Now, the story of Osiris is Osiris was this Greek, uh, not, sorry, he's actually represented across many, many different pantheons. So we start with Sumerian. Sumerian had seven gods in their pantheon. And then you've got the Greek gods that come out of that as well. They're all the same. They're just different names. Same thing with the nine gods of the Egyptian pantheon. And then you go to the Norse gods, and they're also the same. They're just under different names. So you've got Wotan, Odin, right? All of the Thor, right? Thor's day. Thor is relative to Jupiter. That's why it's Judy for French, which is Thursday. They're all relative. They're all the same. And you could go across cultures, and it's since the beginning of our recorded history like this. It's fascinating, and I've studied this stuff. You could spend a lifetime just studying the etymology of these things, literally. But the point I'm trying to make is that when you look at this context reference point of all of these things through history, it's basically giving us a story of Osiris, Osiris going through periods of reincarnation. Maybe Osiris is also relative to Thoth. Who knows? The story includes Thoth. And the way the story goes is this. Osiris has a brother. His brother is Set. Seten. Set. It's the same kind of concept as, again, etymologically, it's a match. So Set is this guy with this hooked nose. He's not very popular. He's kind of like dark. He's always represented as very dark in his complexion, even though probably Osiris was also dark as well. But he's always represented as green or blue. They just chose a different identification point in their polarity. They just chose a different identification point. Maybe they were point. the same being of different <laughs> of opposite polarities. So here's how the story goes. People don't ever talk about it, but Osiris slept with Seth's wife. She rude. was hot. Rude. She was hot. It's very rude. That's not cool, right? And that's his brother. So he slept with his brother's wife. Okay, not a cool thing to do back then. Not cool today. What was his wife's name? Neftis. Neftis. Neftis was super hot. And <laughs> Neftis was in the Greek pantheon was actually Athena. Right. Oh. So she's got she's got some moxie. So your mother Inanna Ra. was the god of Sumeria, who was both. Aphrodite and Athena wrapped into one. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so she was the goddess of love, sexual love, and war, and romanticism, all these things wrapped into one. That broke in the Egyptian pantheon, from because they only had seven gods in the Sumerian pantheon. Then it went to the Egyptian pantheon, where there's nine. And, and then that breaks into Isis, which is analogous to Aphrodite, and Nephthys, which is analogous to Athena, mm-hmm. right? And so, again, a goddess of war and sexual love, but also represented as a virgin, yeah, interestingly. Right. So he not sleeps not after Osiris. So that's right. Osiris, he, he handles that. And Set finds out, gets really upset. And Isis is sort of like, you know, boys will be boys type of thing. She's Isis pissed off. Is, is the wife of Osiris. Yes, yeah. the wife of Osiris. And this is Aphrodite. She's like, look, I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. And you're like going off with Nephthys. So he sleeps with Nephthys. And afterwards, Set and, and Osiris are at this party, like a banquet festival or something. And, and Set wants to give a gift to his brother. So he makes this coffin for him. And this coffin is like this big wooden box type of thing. And he says, the person who can lay in this coffin and fit in this coffin, you know, deserves the, the kingdom type of thing. So he has Osiris lay in the coffin. And as soon as he does, it's kind of like a slapstick comedy, closes the lid on him, nails it shut, throws him in the river. <laughs> right? He then gets the box, takes him out to make sure he's dead. He cuts him into 14 parts. <gasps> I cuts him into 14 this. parts. Now, it's interesting that the Vitruvian man on da Vinci's you know, very famous, iconic illustration of the man within the circle and the square, the circle representing the feminine, the square representing the masculine, cut him into 14 parts also. It's a representation of Osiris. It's Egyptian mythology now. So what does he do? Cuts him into 14 parts, and the one part that gets lost, and it goes to all different parts of the Nile and across the valley and everything. The one part that's gone is his penis. Oh. So Isis recruits the help of Nephthys, the woman who slept with her husband. Like, you know what this thing looks like. Help me find it, baby girl. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> to find the penis, right? To find the penis. And, and they don't find it. It's missing. So then the, the rumor is it must have been lost to the fishes. And some people think that Nephthys stole it and she kept it, right? She kept it. But Isis said, no matter. Nothing like that God dildo. When you, when that's you right. Really Isis said, no matter. I'm going to make a new one made of quartz crystal. Right. And this wow. is going to be like the magic form of it. And so when she does this, they end up he's resurrected from the dead. They have sex and they end up having this child called Horus. Oh. Horus wants to avenge his father years later, picks a fight with Set. And what does Set do? Set gouges out his left eye. Oh. This is why it's called the left eye of Horus. Now, who was it that brings back and fixes using magic this left eye? Thoth. Thoth brings it sometimes referred to as the left eye of Thoth as well. And what it's actually doing is it's connecting the left eye to the right brain. The right brain is the seat of creativity, intuition. So now we've got a linear side of our brain, which is our left brain, which is mathematics. It's rational thought. It's the no, not the yes. And then you've got the creative side of your brain, which is the right side of your brain, assuming you're right-handed. If you're left-handed, it's the opposite. And you've got the left eye that connects to the right brain, which becomes the eye of intuition. So the return of the left eye of Horus means that you're bringing into balance this masculine and feminine principle, one being the feminine, so the the right brain being the omega. The chi, the optic chiasmus, right? The optic chiasm is the X that connects the eyes to those different sides of the brain. And you've got linear on the left side, you've got 
uh, curvilinear on the right side and irrationality, right, on the right side, the feminine principle. So now we bring our brain into balance, alpha, chi, omega. It's in balance. So this is the balancing act that's going on. So I, I look at this from the standpoint of gender. I don't see one as positive and one as negative. That's just a, a convenience for us. Well, that's just, and I think it's actually a trap. Forces. It's a semantic trap. Yes, actually, it is. Because negative is, means many other different things that are quite frankly negative in the sense of that word. Yes. And so the association of negative with feminine, masculine with positive is something that the Kabbalion actually started me on a path to understand. It gave me a key to understand. Like, all right, so what does this really mean? And so they go into this feminine being the womb of creation, the place that actually sources energy, the source point of energy, the positive being that thing that carries energy for the evolutionary purpose of transferring data and information and energy, basically inseminating ideas, moving it from one place to another through that linear phallic line of let me go now impregnate this, whether it's DNA or whether it's a concept or an idea, but it all comes from the womb, from the source point of creation. And this is the principles at the higher level. And so we look at a battery and there's the negative part of it and then there's a the positive part of it. And what they're pointing to in the Kabbalion is like, all right, well, if we apply the principle of gender and stop just saying negative and positive, then there's the feminine part of the battery and then there's the masculine part of the battery. Like which point is the one with the little nub that's pointing out, well, of course, that's the masculine part of the battery. That would make sense. And where is the energy actually stored in the battery? Well, it's in the negative pole or the feminine pole. So that's where the feminine energy is actually from. And then that brought me down this whole line of thinking of like, you know, they talk a lot about how the health properties of negative ions mm-hmm. and negative ions are found. And I actually wrote this down. Negative ions are abundant in nature especially around waterfalls, on the ocean surf, at the beach, and widespread in mountains and forests. They neutralize free radicals. So that's the point. That's And you go into these natural places, and you're like, ah, the negative ions. It's like, no, that's not negative ions. That's no. feminine energy. Yeah. You're in it's Gaia. Semantics. You're in the great mother, and you're receiving negative ions. But it's feminine energy. It's at the beach. It's why Aphrodite comes out of the sea foam. It's why Venus was painted that way from Botticelli. Right. It's like understanding that in that different way and then saying, all right, well, what are positive ions? And I looked that up in nature. Positive ions are commonly formed by strong winds, dust, humidity and pollution. They are at their highest levels before an electrical storm. In general, anything that's toxic or has electromagnetic capabilities will generate positive, uh, generate harmful positive ions. So in this uh, in this point, we're like, oh, yeah, positive ions. Well, that's also neutralized. That's right. Mm -hmm. It's masculine energy and masculine energy can have a toxic effect when it's not being directed towards the right. It needs the feminine. And also like right before an electrical storm, like forget all the pollution. Right. But right before an electrical storm, there's the possibility of that lightning bolt coming and carrying information. And actually, when I got this this download, I talked to Matthias about it. I was like, when lightning strikes the earth, is it carrying information from one place to another and transferring it to the mycelial network because I actually heard Paul Stamets talk about this that when lightning strikes the mycelial network of the earth actually responds in a different way. Uh, yeah, so like it's the rece- tree network on the planet is, is no different than synapses. Right. And it's like receiving new information but also like the positive is transferring that information from one place from the ether from the clouds from the air down to the earth the mycelial network that womb of Gaia 
all spread throughout the surface is receiving that energy. And so now I look at the whole world in a whole different way. And I've started thinking about like, man, it's not just time in nature. They call it nature bathing or forest bathing. It's great, but it's actually bathing in the mother. It's bathing in feminine energy. And that's healing and nurturing and restorative. Of course it is. Of course it is. So is going, if you have a sweet mom, like going and spending time with your mom and like giving her a long, big hug. That's going to be restorative too. You're so right. And what's also interesting is you look at the seven hermetic principles. They're actually matching our chakras. So we, we think about the first of mentalism and how does that relate to the root chakra? Well, because we're born into this world and we're given a construct that's all about materialism. Mm -hmm. And we have to learn to transcend that Mm -hmm. and realize that there's a higher mind aspect to this. Mm -hmm. But the construct has to be that it's throwing projection at us all the time about the harsh reality, the suffering, the difficulty of being here. Adam will live by the sweat of his brow once he's ejected from the Garden of Eden. And, And each one of these different principles are different aspects of our own chakra system as it comes up. And the highest relates to the crown chakra is about understanding this principle of gender. Mm-hmm. Now, have you wondered why? It's funny. I saw this uh, excerpt from uh, Bill Maher. Do you watch Bill Maher at all? I mean, uh, it's been a while since he, I've seen he's him. He's got, sometimes he's like totally whacked out. Sometimes he says some really funny stuff, right? And the, the presentation he gave is he's like, okay, Here's the deal, guys. And he kind of, he tries to be more libertarian, I think, at times, but sometimes he veers more into the left side of things. And I'm very much right in the center. So I, mm-hmm. I just kind of look at it, I don't assign it to either party. But it, he basically gave this presentation where he had a PowerPoint. And he said, look, here's what they're saying, you know, that here's how much the population has increased in its sort of tendency towards homosexuality, right? And non-gender, non-binary kind of associations and all this pronoun usage, you know, you go on social media, she, he, shit, you know, him, whatever, right. All these different things. They, um, and, or X, now it's X, which I find also an interesting synchronicity of reflection because here we are with quantum computing where we're going from a binary code of ones and zeros now to advancing from one zero to X, Mm. a superposition. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, you may not know this, but the other reference to Hermes is the divine hermaphrodite. Mm. The rebus. That's right. It doesn't mean that Hermes is, you know, one sex or the other per se, or that you have to be like in between and become this non-gender, you know, non-binary type of person, although some may choose that. What it means is that he's in perfect balance. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. In perfect balance. And that perfect balance manifests itself because what it really is a reference to, I believe, is to the way we perceive information, take information in and how we process it. And then what we do as a result of that, it's left brain, right brain. The right brain is the feminine aspect of the brain. It's the creativity. It's the intuition. Right. It's the nonlinear. It's the wait. This doesn't make sense. It's like the emotional side being able to tap into that emotion. It is when we can embrace our subconscious mind, we can then move beyond in this individuation process from the conscious mind construct, which is very limited, to being able to tap into our own subconscious mind as well. And when the conscious becomes conscious 
of the subconscious and that being itself as well, then the superconscious mind emerges. And that's what the X, the Chi represents. Superconsciousness. That's why you'll see imagery, I believe, throughout society today, all about the X. You're going to mm-hmm. see X stuff everywhere. We're seeing it as well. And it's funny, Bill Maher's representation is, geez, if this trend continues, like, you know, 100% of the population by the year 2030 will all be either gay or transgender, right? <laughs> and he's like, that can't be right. So something's either wrong with this with this graph. But I think what it's actually showing, again, is this representation. We never had when we were growing up. I never. It was not this whole thing where transgender was this really, really huge thing. Now it's becoming this very, very huge thing. And to me, I look at it more as, again, in a mental construct of the universe, another reflection back of what is changing in the world. And you're going to see all aspects of that. It's not necessarily that it's all going to be perceived by us as this positive thing, right? There's always going to be polarity with everything that we see. And our perception will always be polarized until we can step out of that and say, okay, hold on a second. I'm falling in the same traps that I had before. Let me try to look at this differently and go to the opposite pole of judgment towards acceptance and love. Yeah. You know, it seems like in this gender change phenomenon, ultimately we're all, we all have the ability to express as any variety of different genders that's within our capability. That is the principle of polarity that we're the whole pole from masculine to feminine. Now, the body is only is binary. It's either has you either got well, I guess sometimes you could get a some kind of, you know, hermaphrodite actual literal hermaphrodite type of situation where there is, you know, actually literal blended gender in the body in, in some way. And I think people are creating that in a way. But the the challenge is is that if you keep trying to chase the body to match, you know, to match like what's in your mind, your mind might be a moving target that's going I feel like this gender now and I feel like this gender now. Like when I was a little boy, I would I would play with one hour with my little ponies and my older stepbrothers would look at me and be like, man, I don't know about him. I don't know about that Aubrey. <laughs> you know, and then the next hour I'd be playing with my He-Man, right? Like yeah. at one point I got my little brush out and I'm like combing little my little pony hair. And another point, um, you know, clashing different figurines together and holding my sword and pretending to be you know, master of the universe or, you know, whatever He-Man claimed himself to be. But nonetheless, like, this is something that's going to be playing throughout our life. And I think, I think where, and I think it's beautiful that we can actually, if we decide that we want to polarize at one point and be Caitlin instead of Bruce, great, fucking go for it. Like, go for it. Where it gets challenging is if your brain is still forming and you're all over the place in the polarity you know, then making a switch that is not, you're not able to switch because it's not the mind. You're actually surgically doing things or chemically doing things with the body. That's where it becomes a problem. And you may be right. You may be, maybe you got it right, but it's like, all right, yeah, just, just like chill for a little bit and make sure. And if you're sure, you know, my, one of my great, great friends is Dr. Curtis Crane, and he is one of the best sex change doctors in the whole world. He shows me how he actually grows a penis on the forearms by like bending it's unbelievable what he creates like he is a he is like the fucking botticelli of gender of gender change operations it's unbelievable what he's doing and also the stories about that you know people who are suicidal the lives that he changed he's really like deeply invested in in this and it's it's fucking beautiful 
to see that. And, and I just think it's an include and transcend and being that that's great, but also just be aware that we're all the genders yeah. all the time. I mean, we don't, we can tap into, I, I'm still a man, right? I'm very much like aligned with that, but I am now tapped more than I was before into the feminine aspect. What does oh, that right. mean? I'm more in touch with my emotion than I was before. Okay. I'm more in touch with my intuition than I was before. Mm-hmm. I can still balance that with all the logos. And it's when the pathos and the logos combine, then you have heart, brain, consciousness. That is what the true reference to me about understanding this principle of gender to move into the superconscious mind. Mm-hmm. The superconscious mind can tap into both sides equally, mm-hmm. right? But the physical representation you come into, it's more a state of thinking than mm-hmm. it requires. It doesn't need to be a state of physical being, although some may choose that, and I don't judge that. Great. I think it's yeah. totally fine. Great. You know, I grew up, my I didn't know my brother was gay until I was 27. Oh, my God. Because he was freaked out to tell me, which was one of the things that broke my heart, because I was like, why would you not even tell me? Yeah. And I had to, like, call one day. I was living in Australia. I was in the States attending the American College of Cardiology in, in Orlando, Florida. And I thought, I'll call my brother up just before I fly back to Australia, just say hello. So I called him up, and his I knew he had a roommate, and he was just out of college a few years. And his roommate answers the phone, and I said, can I talk to Michael? And he goes, he goes, yeah. Within half a second, my brother's like, hello? And I'm like, hey, do you guys have a room with, like, a small little table in between your beds or something like that. It was like that. I, I didn't even know what to think. I was like, wait a minute. That's like, whoa. So I called him up. I said, you know, are you, are you gay? He's like, he's like, yes. And I said, I love you. Mm. And he was so relieved. He was so relieved, but I don't believe that it, I agree with you on this, especially I live in California. I have a son who's three years old. My son, you know, he's got a sister. He's going to have another sister soon. And the thing is, is that I I don't want the schools to be imposing right. on him by basically saying at five years old or six years old, hey, uh, what do you more identify with? Yeah. I, I, and, and because literally because it's of the a point day by you just day made. thing. Yeah. Because it's a day by day thing. And it's not that. And it's funny because he's very different than my daughter. You know, I have three kids right now. I have an older daughter that's much older. And then I have two little ones, six and three, and then a new one coming. Oh he already is just this boisterous thing, right? And to me, that's not ta- toxic masculinity. I, I don't even like the term, right? Because I think it's assigned to so many things. Men don't even know what to be anymore. And to me, that's a really, really sad situation for society. They just feel like they've been the shit kicked out of them. Right. So many times. Guess what, guys? You can be in touch with your feminine side. You could still be a man. You can it be makes in, you more of a man. It makes you more of a man. It Honestly. You, otherwise, otherwise, you're just constantly afraid of some aspect of yourself, which is real. If you're afraid of the feminine side of yourself, you're it's such folly. And it's it lacks so much courage to, like, really embrace that element of yourself. That's what actually a true strong, solid man is able to do, embrace their darkness, embrace their femininity, and not only embrace it, but, well, in the darkness you embrace it, but you don't act on it, obviously, because mm-hmm. the darkness is dark. But on the on the feminine side, like, bring that forward, like, be nurturing and loving and listening and caring and all of these things we may associate with the opposite gender, but really it's not. Or be the, be the womb that other people can impregnate ideas to, which is listening 
Be yeah. open to change your mind. Yeah. You know, all of these different aspects of allow let me let me be impregnated by your ideas. Beautiful. I love that. You know, like allowing yourself to do that. That's I think the redefinition of masculinity that I think is happening. And again, we're in the time between stories where there was some elements of masculinity, which is way out of control, elements of the patriarchy and elements of different things that had long standing roots. And yes, it needed to be dismantled, but it also needs to be replaced, included, transcended, replaced with something that's actually better, you know, a better, a better, truer system. And you look at the last 2000 years, right? We've been in the age of Pisces. Now we've moved into Aquarius. But Pisces, the opposite sign, the shadow of Pisces is Virgo, six months apart from each other. So that means that a lot of the archetypes that we're going to see through society during the last 2,000 years are going to be venerating virginity. That's what Virgo means. So why do you think we worship the Virgin Mary, right? You think about chastity and chastity and all these things, right? There's a repression in society and the two fish swimming opposite directions that are tied together with a rope. That's what Pisces is. And, and actually, if you look back through history, you know, you got Moses who comes down from the mountain and says, Hey, what are you doing with the golden calf? Well, that's because they weren't in the age of Taurus anymore, right? They were now in the age of Aries. So now everything, all the symbology was the blood of a lamb, put lamb's blood on your door. Right. The lamb is going to come. But lions and lambs will lay together. This is a reference to the Messiah, the Messiah. But then by the time Jesus came, it was already Pisces. I shall make you fishermen of men. You see these macro patterns throughout history. And the shadow context is this chaste, virtuous, right, um, judgmental aspect across society, both masculine and feminine are looking at society saying, okay, well, it's better to be a virgin. It's better to be a chaste celibate monk, right? And what we don't see, or better to be a priest. The priest is, you know, you go back to Colossians or Corinthians where you've got, you know, the, the epistle of Paul is like, you know, if you're going to go be a missionary, go be a missionary. But, but people often misreference that because they think of it as, okay, you're going to be a missionary. You should be chaste and celibate. No, he's just saying it's easier yeah, to be a missionary. That hasn't worked out so well. That hasn't worked out so well because every time we repress some aspect of ourselves, we create darkness. We create ignorance of that thing. We believe we're only good, then we do things that are so horrifically bad to society. The moment that we can start to embrace and integrate those opposite aspects of ourselves, bring them out of the darkness. This is why the things that people are studying in society right now, dark matter, dark energy. I've got um, my own podcast, and I'm going to have Lawrence Krauss on that, who, you know, his work led to two Nobel Prizes on dark matter and dark energy. I see the understanding that we have of these aspects of darkness, the things we don't understand, as part and, par- part and parcel of the rise of the feminine. Because let's what, go. what's happening is that we're now starting to acknowledge intuition, magic, we're starting to acknowledge these aspects of society that we always looked at women and say, okay, she's tapped in. We've all said this. Like, I don't know. There's something. She's got some extra sensory capability because women are closer to that because it's part of the right brain context. And if you're a guy listening to this, guess what? The rise of the feminine is you too. Yes. You know, it, yes, it is. Yes, it is the goddesses and the priestesses and your, and your women and your daughters and your mothers. And yes, it's all of that, but it's also you. It's the rise of the feminine is within all of us. So it's a yes and it's like it needs to be universal. Universally, we need to embrace these feminine 
levels of consciousness because we've been out of balance. You know, the, the scales have not been balanced for too many years and there's been a lot of structures in place to make sure that the scales never got balanced. Yeah. And now we're balancing the scales and it's messy. And it's a, it's a messy, confusing, organic. challenging time. It's like life itself. You know, it's like birth itself. It's fucking messy. There's blood and placenta. And, and if you see it from that perspective, you can stop getting so riled up and find like the beauty in all of these impulses, even like the pronoun impulses. Like, yeah, it's beautiful. Like recognize how diverse and unique you are. And, and I've, I've said this before, but my encouragement is just take that all the way that you're actually infinitely complex in your gender infinitely complex in your expression of good or bad or honest or dishonest there's if you go back it's like the fractal geometry if you go back and look even more fine even more fine you'll see even more complexity to the answer to that question and so no amount of labels are ever going to do it justice however if you like this label fucking go for it like go for it and if you felt a certain way for a certain amount of time that your body is expressing the wrong thing for your psyche, great, change it. You know, just embrace also the full spectrum of who you are and just also have a little bit of humility for the complexity and confusion of the time that we're in. And you see that and and everything starts to look, wow, it's all beautiful. It's just a little messy. It's all beautiful. It's just a little messy. Let me just say one, one last thing, I think. And it relates to the feminine the women, it's also time for the feminine to embody that rise, right? It's, it's being acknowledged. It's real, but it's also important that you, you let go, that the feminine also let go of some of the hangups that the feminine might've accumulated along the way, right? These, these feelings of shame and guilt, particularly when it comes to things like sexuality, for example, that virginal construct is no longer the shadow of our society. Now the shadow in the background, what is it? Aquarius is Leo. The shadow is Leo. So we're going to start seeing more symbology in this mental construct of lions. We're going to start seeing more gold. Gold's going to become more popular than silver was, right? We see trend lines, little, little trend lines. Again, it's all about this rhythmicity. And with that gold represents this, crown chakra awakening that means that we understand the role of gender and how it plays. One is not negative and the other is positive. That's just a convenience that we've used etymologically that we've used in order to explain something we don't really have a different way of explaining other than it's just an opposite condition. Mm. That's all that it is. And when the feminine fully embodies that, then humanity will embrace the notion that when the heart thinks and the mind feels, then the river of wisdom flows. Hmm. To me, that's where society is now going to next, that we can get there. And and it's going to require just the most significant change is a change in perception, how we see ourselves. So we can address things like consciousness. And then as we address consciousness and get to higher awareness states and raise our vibration, then systems will start to morph and change in in ways that are more reflective of that consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is very much everything that I'm feeling right now. Same with my partner, Vailana, uh, who you know as well. You know, she's releasing her album titled Goddess Rise. 
about the rise of the feminine. Like mm-hmm. that's what she's working on. Our next fit for service summit in Sedona is bringing light to the shadow, you know, going in and, and becoming aware of the full spectrum polarity of who we are. And so these are the, these are the things that I think I innately feel. And I think so many people feel are the necessary remediation to where we've been applying the opposite principle. Okay. We've gone a little too far on the masculine gendered polarity. Let's apply the other principle alchemically and the feminine principle, and then allow ourselves to correct and find that chi point, find the balance point between both. And I think that's what you and I and so many other people are here to do is to, is to really help just do our best to lend our support, energy, love, heart, intuition, intelligence, everything we got, hands when necessary to bringing about this new shift of consciousness. Well, I think we had a great discussion about hermeticism. <laughs> we did. We could talk about a billion other things, but we got into it and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's no simple, no simple concept. So I'll go through the seven principles and we'll let you guys, I don't know, decide to explore or say enough of this shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First principle, the principle of mentalism. Second, the principle of correspondence. Third, the principle of vibration. Fourth, the principle of polarity. Fifth, the principle of rhythm. Sixth, the principle of cause and effect. And seventh, the principle of gender. And allow these, as you go deeper, just allow these to be little keys. See what they unlock in your life. Thank you very much. Good to be here again with you. Absolutely, me. brother. This All is gonna right, this is gonna become a habit. I know. I have a feeling. <laughs> I do have a feeling. I want to get you on mine as well. Yeah. So uh I'm definitely I, I love the way you see the world and I see how curious you are. That you have this curiosity that you want to really truly understand um why things are the way they are and and delve into the deeper questions. And I think that's the most powerful aspect of, of what you're doing because it's causing other people to look at the world in that light. And when they all do, then we all start to understand ourselves better. And I think that's the whole reason why we're here to find out and remember who we actually are. Mm. And, and get lost, get a little lost along the way. I try a lot. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank we love you. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning into this show, everybody. Hopefully these laws and principles unlock some different keys and codes for you in your life. I look forward to having more conversations with Robert Grant out in the future. Thank you so much for your support. We love you, and we'll see you next week. I did have my pen out in time. Mm. What was that? It went so fast. Yeah. You don't remember either, do you? I know number six is the... Um, principle of cause and effect. And seventh is the principle of gender. So then five is polarity? Maybe. Six is cause and effect. You're sure? Yeah. And number two is correspondence. (laughs) What was number one? You forgot. Uh, and maybe four is by three, or three is vibration. Vibration. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not very far from the end. Ooh. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so now we're going to do something called balancing the chaos, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm just counting on somebody got all seven of them in the right row. All right, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I. Yeah. What is the current direction of humanity's evolution? Legendary channeler Lee Harris returns to Gaia to share profound and timely insights from his care, his cha- channeled guides, the Z's. These are some of the many gems of wisdom. The Z's. Uh, share to guide us through this planetary transition. Earth is coming online in ways we have never experienced. This transmission is multidimensionality in action. The bliss bunnies are bringing balance to emotional range rage machines. Excuse me. I'll say that again. The bliss bunnies are bringing balance to emotional rage machines. As you could show, as we could show you how many, how many things have been averted when it comes to destruction. You would feel horrified at first and then relieved. We are witnessing the push and the pull between the forces that want to divide us and the future of consciousness. While humanity is experiencing an unstable world, we are moving beyond our quote-unquote war imprint Mm. and discovering our heart energy gifts for healing and spiritual connection. Yes, 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 yes. Lee Harris is a channeler and empath who has been receiving communication from his guides the Z's since 1999. He is an accomplished author of many books, including Conversations with the Z's, Book One, The Energetics of the New Human Soul. And that's how far we got. So this is Regina and Lee Harris. And this is 56 minutes. So let's get started. Here we are. They're talking about what the soul of a human on Earth is evolving into and warning us of some of the ways that we don't want to go by all means look up and look out but they say the earth is coming online in ways that we have never experienced oh that's exciting let's go to the z's when you're ready perfect good ha this transmission in itself it is multi-dimensionality in action Mm. remember too that you are all balancing the planet So the bliss bunnies are, we will say, bringing balance to the emotional rage machines. If we could show you how many things have been averted when it comes to destruction, you would be both mm -mm, horrified at first and then relieved. But you would be horrified.
It's been a little while, but we have Lee Harris back with us, as is always the case. He'll be giving us both some of his time and the Z's, and the message is evolving very rapidly. Sometimes, though, we need to go into the architecture of what it is to be human before we can build on it, and this is really fascinating. That's exactly what we're going to do today. Lee, I just love seeing you again. It's wonderful having you back. I always love being with you, so thank you for having me back. It's been a little while, a couple of years at least. I think it's been a few years. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. before COVID? We had to cancel one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's lovely to see you. You never change and just emanate the sweetest energy. So I just want to talk to you about your new book, Conversation with Disease, book one, which notes there's probably going to be a book two, three, four, five, et cetera. Yes, it's the okay. beginning of a series. Okay, and this is you, your friend Diane Edwards, who is a... Is she a psychologist? She's a psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Yeah. And she is the one that's asking the questions of the Z's on behalf of everybody else. And this particular book uh, has some really important stuff for right now embedded in it. So it seems the Z's are kind of, kind of cashing in on our attention, where our attention is at this time in history. Yes. Something definitely kicked up a gear for me in 2019. I mean, I think probably everyone can say that about their life, but something about the work and the channeling, something went to a another level. And this was, you know, six months ahead of COVID. And then, of course, it all made sense when COVID kicked in. Um, so the book series came because of the recorded conversations we did. And I was at the end of the first day of these recordings. It was, I was very clearly told this is a series. There's going to be a series, a whole row of them. But the first one is called the energetics of the new human soul because they're talking about how our soul is evolving right now and what the soul of a human on earth is evolving into and warning us of some of the ways that we don't want to go and reminding us of some of the intrinsic truths as to who we are as a soul and why we're here in the first place trying to let more of ourselves come through. Oh, humans are quite an enigma. We're a mystery in the universe and we have so many influences here on the planet. And I know I'm not going to be able to get to some of that today with disease that I would love to because we have so much more to talk about. But what you just said, the evolving soul, um, my group of beings that I'm associated with, my guides, have called us a soul development. They don't, mm. they call us a soul development. And I thought, is that true elsewhere? And we were talking about it one day and they said, no, the uniqueness of the human being because of our origins is completely different because you have this combined being that's now human and this isn't normally done. And that is still under development and evolving. We're in other places. These are kind of uh, stable species. Yeah. And the Zs have also been talking a lot recently about the, the they, they, they go back about 10,000 years or so and they speak about when we were essentially clamped on Earth. And they make parallels to Atlantis and they speak about how the soul was designed to be in the human body in a far more uh, vibratory and sensory and full way than we see today. And we're at that point where all of the conditioning and programming over these last set of many thousand years is we have an opportunity where it's all breaking apart. And the opportunity is for us to, again, reclaim that sovereign soul self. And that's critical because of the beauty of what we are at the core. And I remember my guide saying, um, the conscious mind that you know, this part that you call the left brain, was really, it's really only there to keep you from bumping into things. Mm. You were supposed to have the entire mind integrated, which mind is everything. 
And that sounds like what they're saying. That mind needs to be permeating all of us so we can operate at a much more intuitive, creative, uh, healthy capacity. Yes. And it's funny you say that. I think of my own journey. One of the, one of the great gifts for my own ego in being a channeler is having to learn to not worry about judgment or what people think of me. Yes. And that's been very helpful in my own learning. But the, the greater truth is we're all intuitive. We're all connected to all of it. And the myth is that certain people have that capacity. The truth is certain people at this time are showing that capacity to remind the rest of us this is for all of us and we're exactly. all connected to this web, but we have been trained and trained to forget it and discouraged away from it. Okay, so let me ask you this, just going back to what you said a moment ago. You said about 10,000 years ago, humanity was clamped. And, the, you know, I, I've skirted around this and tried to talk to the Z's about it in the past, but they did not want to talk about it at that time. And now they're talking about these things because it's critical that we know it. Tell us what they meant by that. There are, firstly, what's interesting, when they speak about what they will and they won't say, they say, we will only give you information that will serve your progression. And of course, exactly. we know that a lot of people will hear a certain thing and go into fear or contraction. Mm-hmm. My sense of it is it's not just that they are saying it because it's critical, but I'm always paying attention to what they're willing to say. Yes. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. This is new. And yeah. then lo and behold, three months later, I'll see an article that's saying this, a similar thing. And so I feel like they they time the kind of revelations uh, that are necessary, but also as a confluence of that revelation starts to happen. So with some of the things they're saying now, I know that the books will come out a year or so later. So I'm always interested in, mm-hmm. oh, in 2024, when that third book comes out, I wonder what's going on in the world that they're willing to talk about this. Yes. They haven't gone into massive detail about why the clamp is there. And they have even said there are other people whose job that is. They said an our job is not to get you too fixated on the history of what happened. Mm-hmm. But our job is to remind you that it happened so that the soul in you hears it, recognizes it's yes. true. And rather than being upset about it, angry about it or fearful about it, you recognize that our opportunity in this short life we're going to have in this body is to do our best to reclaim that part of ourselves for us and for everyone else. Perfectly put. Can't reclaim it if you don't know you've lost it. (laughs) And so I'm glad that they are speaking about it. But, you know, every one of us is different. I don't I don't react with fear to these things. So Mm. I'm, of course, quite curious as to what is it so we can start figuring out how we're going to address it. And so now they're talking about it and people can start this journey of addressing it. And one of the things they wanted to, uh, to talk about and do talk about in this book, which I'll talk to them in specifics about the architecture, is to really get it in our heads and understand we're a multidimensional being. So why do they feel that is so important finally for us to grok? Because we have been trained to see ourselves as linear and singular and put ourselves in boxes. Now, if you think about it, all of us are multidimensional. We're all uh, a parent, a child, a sister, a friend, uh, someone who does this for a living. If you really look at the roles you play in your life, all of us might play 20 to 40 different roles in our life. So we already are operating multidimensionality, but the biggest problem, multidimensionally, the biggest problem with us not seeing it and being discouraged from seeing how connected all of those roles are in our energy field and how that connects us to everybody in the same way 
is we we stay away from what they call oneness, which is the thread of connection that recognizes the equality and the simpatico and harmony between us all. We've been designed to stay as ourselves and have what they talk about as the war imprint. They say that the war imprint is so rife and is one of our biggest issues. It's been put there to divide us Mm -hmm. and to keep us separate Mm -hmm. and to cut us off from our spiritual connected nature. And it has worked. I mean, we just saw it working a lot in the last couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, we're looking at a structure that has been based on competitive and predatory behaviors. Get what you can for yourself, then silo yourself off and protect what you've got so no Mm -hmm. one can take it from you, Mm -hmm. whatever it is whether it's a a tenured position at a university or whether it's a food, you know, a supply of food in an area that's lacking food or water, we do it everywhere. Yeah. The human is doing it everywhere. And as they're saying, if you look at us on a quantum level, you cannot separate us. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. If you saw what we were energetically, we would all be shocked. We would say, wait, where are we? I don't see anything. There's nothing there. Just a few little sparks of light. And one of the nicest things they said that really hit me on a heart level, and it was so clear, it was a few years ago, they explained none of us are who we think we are because of ourselves. All of us are are who we think we are because of everybody in our life. So we're all influenced by the person we just had a conversation with, the way we were parented, the teacher that influenced us. We we have melded and become this multidimensional a representation of all of our experiences. And so they're always reminding us, and I always feel this when I channel them because I, I feel that state, how connected we are, and that's where our power lies. Divided we fall, connected we thrive. And I think many voices have been talking about that this last few decades. And I think we're at this critical point where we're witnessing the push-pull between the forces that want to divide and separate us and control us, control and manipulation, and then the future of the consciousness of the planet. And they always say that there are things going on inside the earth that we have no concept (laughs) of that are literally right now emanating vibration up through the surface of the planet. So they say, by all means, look up and look out. But they say so much of our spiritual focus has been encouraged to go higher. And they said, the earth is coming online in ways that we have never experienced. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, another area before we go to the Zs is all of this we're talking about, having this higher understanding, planting these seeds of consciousness and collaboration. Um, And they're going to give timelines in a bit, and we'll recognize that we probably won't be around to see the fruits of a lot of it. But let's talk about the um, absolute imperative that we understand that the nothing happens without this phase right now of planting seeds there will be no fruits there will be no change if we don't step up and plant the seeds and have some generosity to understand it won't manifest for a while it's interesting isn't it because i think that you often hear a parent speaking about the future in a way that's very protective of their children Uh i don't want my grandchildren to grow up in a world that looks like x y or z and yet the truth is if we all were in our love field for other people the way that people tend to become when it's a parental relationship or a grandparent relationship if we all held that energy for everybody we would behave very differently and i think it's a challenge because it's very easy to go well i feel love for everyone but the system isn't working Mm -hmm. through those principles 
And I think there are a couple of ways you can go with that. You can either become the most loving, compassionate being yourself that you can be and let that affect the world vibrationally, or you can be one of the people to attempt to go into some of those systems and lighten them up and brighten them up. And that's what the new little little ones being born now are here Mm -hmm. to do, to start taking on that change. And, you know, if we look at it even from a self-motivated point of view, even if we say, yeah, well, I don't have kids or grandkids, right? Um, If someone's being self-motivated, the fact is, we reincarnate back into this whole system we're setting up and planting seeds for now. We're actually laying the seeds for our own futures, not just our children, our friends, and the people we love. We do, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's so joyous to fertilize with your energy, yes. with your generosity. Like it's one of it, it's such a joy to be able to extend yourself and connect. And I think we weren't taught that principle no. necessarily, and yet the truth is. For any of us who have our moments with that or a period of our life with that or we've dedicated our life to it, mm-hmm. we know that the, the feeling of connection and connectedness that you get when you operate from that standpoint, you that's gold. Oh, it's, 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 that's pure joy. It is. Yes, and we're going to talk to the Z's about joy too. Okay, well, thank you for getting us all set up with some framework for this. And let's go to the Z's when you're ready. Perfect. And then we'll talk timelines and dimensions. Good. Ha. A pleasure to be here with you once more and with all who are, we will say, listening and receiving this transmission. Uh, We would like to, before you begin with your questions, just point out that this transmission in itself, this moment that you are guiding, conducting, facilitating, and that all who are tuning in on it are receiving and experiencing, it is multidimensionality in action. It reconnects you to your multidimensional place within the universe, not just within your human life, your human identity. It reminds you that as a soul, you are part of this wider source field of energy. And that in itself is the practice that all of you are, we will say, undergoing at this time. In order to mm, emanate from that place and live from that place more, it does take practice. It takes you giving yourself to that energy, uh, immersing yourself in that energy, and gradually you will not want to leave that energy. So no matter what words are said or information is given in this dialogue we are about to embark upon with you, the energy itself is a transmission that uh, reminds you of home, your wider home, that which you incarnated from and that which you will return to when you leave this specific body and this specific identity that you are in right now. Good. Good. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. It's funny when you say that as we move through this and we go into the other dimensions of ourselves, I've always found it interesting if uh, on a personal level, say if I choose to go up into another field The funny thing is that a lot of those attachments and those kind of familiar sticky emotions and things aren't there. And you can almost, if you're interfacing with someone else, it's almost like there's a disconnect, like you're not of this denser earth reality when you go in. As you said, you would never want to leave that place. I think a lot of times we leave that place just so we can feel like we're in some sort of relationship with other people on earth. 
Does that make sense? I, I know you can see what I'm saying energetically. Yes, uh, you will all, each of you, depending on what your, we will say, life theme is or the life theme you are working on that month or that year, you will all engage with what you refer to or what, what we would call as some of the more gravity-based emotions that are specific to being a human. Uh, they do not exist in our realm and the realm that right. you originated from. However, they are part of the joy of being this multicolored human animal uh, and part of the wiring that you adopt when you come to this place is to take on the psychological emotional and vibrational energy field that your human ancestors up to that point have carried and part of your job is to lighten them and so yes there are many of you who uh, will value your higher states but we would say to you that enormous work takes place for you and for the planet when you are in, shall we say, a conflict moment with someone that you love very dearly and the two of you get into your thoughts and your feelings. And some of you we know look back on this and think that you were behaving in an unevolved way, but we would say, no, no, you were evolving the human way. In that moment, you were learning to heal part of the energy template that you not only came to experience on a personal level, but that you came to upshift on a level of mass consciousness for the planet as a whole. So going in and out of those states is, in fact, quite a beautiful place to be. <laughs> and if you can stay in what you call the higher or elevated or less emotionally dense states uh, with some regularity, you are already doing your work on Earth. Interesting. I'm sure many people will identify with that. And here we call it oftentimes people who would prefer to spend most of their time meditating and avoiding human emotions, bliss bunnies. And I know a lot of people watching that, I've been accused of it too at times, are bliss bunnies. And so that's a good reminder that we need to feel the full spectrum of our human emotions for this fascinating evolution. Thank you so much. We will add one piece to your mm -hmm. comment, if we may. Mm -hmm. Remember too that you are all balancing the planet. So the bliss bunnies are, we will say, bringing balance to uh, the emotional rage machines mm. that also exist on your planet. So yes. it is not better or worse to mm. be one way or the other, but you will have what we would refer to them as being highly elemental humans who are here more to be in the ethers and the elements and are a little less adept with or experienced with human emotion and thought and they are here to bring their own kind of balance and to remind those who get overly entrenched in the human density that vibrationally there is another way and they will feel this when they have this human standing in front of them even though they can't quite put their finger on why their energy field feels so light but they are a living example of what is possible for you as humans. Uh, thank you for that. And I'm going to go just a little sideways here off of what you've just said. We're also delighted when we're connecting with what we call our spirits, angels, guides, and have these lovely lighter influences come in and give us useful information, uh, encouragement and so forth. But we're not as delighted when we feel entities that appear to be coming from a denser realm. Can you talk about Earth as this place that lives between the high and the low and the influences of both on human beings? Yes. Well, there are different, we will call it, if you like, heights of entities on the planet, just as there are different heights of humans. Firstly, the reason you are all so 
delighted when you connect to spirit, or shall we say overwhelmed, is you are often pushing through grief. Because for many of you, even if you are the most skeptical minded, let's say you have an experience with somebody who is a medium, a bridge between you and a relative who has passed on, and the skeptical mind in you is slightly blown apart as they relay information uh, that your relative and only you could have known uh, what actually happens in those moments of connection for the skeptic or for the one who loves the higher realms is a moment of grief gets burst in you because all of you are grieving the fact that you are separate from spirit. Mm -hmm. Many of you have managed to temper it by uh, making returning to spirit your focus. And so you no longer feel in grief, but it does mark you out as a little different to some of the people in your life who do not visit spirit with the regularity that you do. Uh, And perhaps some of them, because of their skeptical, trained fear of the spirit world, which all of you were trained into, uh, has an effect on them that makes them uncomfortable until they have a moment where they feel the realm of the spirit back in their body or back in their heart or back in the top of their mind for a moment. And suddenly they recognize they are home, even if they don't fully understand the experience. But to your point about different layers of entities, it is the case that you can have more, shall we say, malevolent or heavy entities uh, that hang around certain human beings who are also behaving in uh, malevolent or we will say destructive ways towards other humans. However, we must say this. It's important you don't blame it all on the malevolent spirit. That is a training that has also been given to you. Some idea that the spirit realm is not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is actually the human's job to keep their energy field clear and recognize if they are, shall we say, dancing with lower energies in the actions they are taking on the planet. Very well said. Thank you so much um, with that. And it seems to me that it's the resonance, as you say, if you're in not a very good space or clean space yourself and struggling quite a lot and have a lot of anger, fear, whatever's going on, you're almost creating a resonance or a vibrational bridge that allows you to go into the dance with another denser entity. And that's the part the human's responsible for. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And also remember, mm-hmm. you have all been asked to mm, align with, we would say, these human dense emotions that are not belonging to the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was part of what we will call the implant that took place uh, with humanity uh, a little over 10,000 years ago. Uh, although there are different periods in history where different implants were put in. So we cannot mm, pinpoint it for you exactly because there are many stories and events that line up to, we will call it the limitation of the awakened human soul that you were designed to be. And there was a time when Earth was designated as a planet where you were going to see this evolved soul take place through human form. And yet there were influences that did not want that to be the case. And so they were able to, we will say, interfere. So What many of you are dealing with now when you are looking at judgment or blame is those original implants, those what you would call emotional low vibrations. And all of you have uh, probably experienced those mm, at some time in your life and they are not yours. They are borrowed emotional energy fields that have been given to you as a way of dealing with your, let's say, reactions or emotions. 
And the truth is that all of that can be transmuted, which is why at this time where the consciousness on the planet is literally being raised, whether you want it to or not, <laughs> even with so many of the, we will call it, mm, overt attempts to control, manipulate and hold humanity down, it simply cannot be stopped at this point. So as this consciousness is raising, it is causing many more people on the planet than ever before uh, to lean into the ability to heal and go beyond and open out these very dense and fear-based emotions to do with blame, judgment, uh, anger, reactivity, what we would call the war imprint that plays out inside you at small emotional levels. And that is why you are seeing such a widespread um, proliferation of um, emotional awareness, healing techniques. Uh, society is going through a very steep and sudden learning curve mm -hmm. around um, re-identifying yourself as the new human soul and letting go of what the old human soul was allowed to be. On a more mundane level, when it comes to these dense emotions, there are uh, some people watching this even have a family or ancestral culture of hanging on to worry. Worry is almost a badge of honor. To it, it, Like it brings a gravitas to someone's life to worry about everything and worry about everyone. But it seems that is not in sync with what's going on and required right now. No, worry is one of the most debilitating anxiety forms that you can have because worry tends to close you down to both the present and the future, the two places where potential lie. Worry traps you in the past and it either is trapping you in a past trauma uh, or it is a pattern of behavior that you inherited and overly absorbed uh, from a member of your family or someone who raised you. However, we would like to point this out. And this is very important. This is why it is very complex, this path of awakening. There are many times when worry has protected you. Mm -hmm. There are many times when your fear has protected you from doing something too soon. So we would say, if you notice you have a tendency toward worry, look at your tendency toward anxiety and see uh, what your anxiety needs, which conditions has uh, your anxiety never had in life that would help you feel less anxious, uh, anything in your past or any trauma history you have that you could loosen up by looking at it, but also to recognize that these, shall we call it, mm, lower points of focus or emotion or energy for you are often perfect. Uh, they put you in the perfect place at the perfect time. So the question around your worry is, is this a chronic emotion yeah, exactly. that I am feeling that is getting mm -hmm. in the way of my future and I need to look at it? Or is this a tendency I have and so long as I stay aware of it and learn to manage it, it can also be a good indicator to me. Mm -hmm. Ah, I'm worried. I must be about to do something big. So now I will employ my worry tools so that my worry doesn't try and stop or sabotage me from taking this forward step. Perfect. Yes. It's an indicator, <clears throat> a form of information, but chronic, it's a problem if it's chronic. So now, if you don't mind, I'd like to go into, I thought it was fascinating in uh, Lee's new book, where you were talking about the architecture of dimensions, planes, and realms, because we kind of use these terms very loosely and interchangeably. In fact, I'd even throw in vibration and frequency alongside dimension, and we have a real soup of kind of just a vague notion of what's going on. So if you can explain a bit from your perspective about dimensions and how they actually 
live alongside one another so we can understand it better. Also, if you wouldn't mind putting in the notion of vibration and frequency, what creates a dimension? Firstly, we understand this notion of higher dimensions. We understand why it is in your language. We understand why it is in your focus. And we understand why so many people have used it as a benchmark. And it has served its purpose. Uh, what is actually happening when someone says that they want to live at a higher dimension is more of the time than not, they are saying, I want to escape this lower stuff. <laughs> I am feeling. I don't want to be feeling this. I don't want to be thinking this. So in the higher dimension, I will be safe from all of these feelings. And yes, there is a truth to that. However, there is excavation work that you will have to undertake to allow yourself to let go of uh, the lower that you identify with uh, in order to be able to sustain a higher vibration more of the time. And a higher vibration is what we would call your state of being. Uh, what you are vibrating inside yourself, what you are vibrating out to the world. So if you are in a high vibration, it might look like you feeling at your most calm, open, peaceful, perhaps joy, love is in there, but they are not as necessary. Uh, joy and strong feelings of love are what we would call peaks within a baseline state of peace, calm and openness. Uh, that is a way of looking at your vibration. How uh, long has it been since I felt peace, calm or openness? Ah, I need to work on my vibration. Now, when people speak about dimensions, they tend to see it as higher dimensions. This idea that the ninth dimension is far above your heads and you are stuck here on little old three dimensional earth trying to deal with it. Actually, what we would like you to consider is the dimensions are all alongside you. Uh, you can move into a dimension through this human body of yours at any given moment. So, for example, you're with a friend who's very depressed and the vibration that they are pulsing out is one of heaviness and sadness because the dimension that they have aligned with is their past trauma history, uh, their past old heavy patterns that they are not able to move past. So you spend some time in their energy field. You connect with them for, let's say, 10, 15 minutes. You are going to walk away. And if you overly expanded into their energy field, you are going to feel a little dimmed in your own. You will essentially have taken on a little bit of their vibration. It will have merged with your own. And depending on your tendency, so let's say you have a tendency for depression and being in the uh, dimension of depression in yourself, you might then start to fan the flames of depression and start to feel quite depressed because it's a contagious energy and you were just with someone who gave you a little bit of it. But if we then show you that 10 minutes later, you have a conversation with someone who is happy and open and joyous, they are vibrating at a different level. They are in a different dimension in order to attain that level. Perhaps they had wonderful experiences all morning, or they have been working on mm, 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 keeping themselves uplifted as much as possible and taking good care of themselves, then you are still in this same human body encountering a different mm, frequency in this other being, and that can put you into a different dimension. So we understand we need to be even more mm, clear about this, for the words are to some degree interchangeable. Let's put it this way. You speak to the depressed person, you start to feel a little bit down, and the dimensional doorways through which you could walk for the next hour are going to be a bit more limited unless you become aware of what just happened. You say, I release any energies and emotions that are not mine, 
or you specifically uh, name this person that you recognize you just picked some stuff up from. Because of how you are vibrating, there will be a certain dimensional reality available to you. Uh, this will somewhat limit uh, the experiences you can have. You will magnetize slightly lower frequency events until you realize you need to let go of what you just walked through. And this is all very subtle. But equally, if the person who is joyous that you meet 10 minutes later again shifts your vibration and you start to mm, vibrate higher inside yourself, the dimensional doorways of your day, so the people you will meet, the places your eyes will land, you will start to look for that dimensional reality. So the vibration is internal in you. And what you are seeking outside you is mm, the dimensions of reality that you wish to engage in that uh, relate to and resonate with your inner vibration. But just a small shift can alter the way that you focus on your dimensions, mm -hmm. the way that you mm, mm, gravitate toward and attract toward yourself, dimensional doorways that are, uh, you would call it higher rather than lower. But what we are trying to point out to you is that they are all existing alongside you. Right. And they're everywhere all of the time. It is why you can walk down a street and see one person in joy and one person in misery. The dimensions are all around you all of the time. And it is your focus, your awareness and your vibrational state that will have enormous influence over which dimensions you live in and play with that day. And the truth is, most of you go through many different dimensions, some of you within an hour, uh, most of you within a day. <laughs> Beautifully said. So let's talk about the notion then of planes. Now we hear some of the ancient texts and that refer to what plane we're living on with the earth in the center, whether it be seven planes or 12 planes or however many planes that tradition recognizes. So You're saying then that the dimensions are running vertically and we, we weave in and out of them depending on our own emotions and vibrations. Then what is a plane? Well, we would say to you the plane of existence that we are reaching you from is you could call it horizontal. And we are lifted uh, from mm, your bodies. So we are above the earth uh, right now. But of course, we are mm, somewhat in a bit of a trick because you have a human being uh, doing his best capacity to translate in human words the, we will call it informational pockets and packets that we are trying to bring through to you. So the plane of existence that we exist in is not to do with the gravitational field of Earth. You are all in Earth's gravitational field, and there are only a small number of planes of existence, meaning horizontal levels, that you have access to because of that gravity field, and that is as it should be. So uh, we tend to describe to you and see it this way, the planes of existence are horizontal in nature. They are not necessarily dimensions, but they are, we would call it, vantage points from which you can observe. So the reason that we are able to, shall we say, uh, zoom out for humanity is we are not encumbered by your learning. We are not encumbered by the game that you are playing and the, shall we say, soil that you are having to till and fertilize. But we, 
uh, from our plane of existence are doing what we can uh, to mm, fertilize and till the energetic soil above you, which is work for us too and is part of the work that we are having to do as the consciousness field of the earth expands and elevates, so too does it reposition us and our relationship to you. For just as with Lee right now, we are his collective of, we will call it not only guide team, but soul, brother and sisterhood. All of you have this. You all have not only allotted guides and teams around you, but there are also what you would call spirit beings or entities or even energies some of you like to use that are existing in planes of existence all around you and above you that are working energetically on the frequency of the earth, even if they may not have any, shall we say, contact with you in a direct fashion. So then we're talking about how our own, not just their influence on the earth and working with earth as in the beautiful entity and soul that she is, but our own um vibrations frequencies what we're generating will have an effect on a given area collectively of the earth and i was told once that uh, some of the earth changes that were scheduled to happen that edgar casey spoke about for example some of them would occur but um, many would be averted depending upon the consciousness of the people on the land and this is making sense according to what you just said can you explain how how we feel and interact is affecting Earth and what she is going to express? Well, we will tell you, and you alluded to this earlier in part of a question, there are many on this planet who, mm, they are not here for humans. They are in human form, yes, but they are here to raise the energy of Mm -hmm. the planet. And yes, there are also those who are here for the elements and for animals, but we are speaking specifically about those who meditate uh, and we will say direct frequency. Some of you call it doing energy work or grid work mm-hmm. on the land. Yeah. There are many on the planet who are doing that. Uh, most you will never know, uh, you will never speak to, that's not their role. They came here to have a far more ephemeral existence of humanity. It was not their time this time to come back and get overly involved in the game of humanity. And then there are those of you who are supposed to be right in the heart of the game of humanity. We would use you and Lee as an example of this. Uh, that is part of your role and how you do your energy work. And then there are all of the people listening to this who are doing the same. So you will be within your family groups and your friend groups right now saying something that will bring awareness and will bring a shift to the energy field of your group. And that wildly affects not only Gaia, but also the power structures on the earth. It is true, and this is important for you to understand, especially those of you who feel a heavy heart around what you see going on on the earth right now. If we could show you how many things have been averted when it (laughs) comes to destruction, you would be both mm -mm, horrified at first (laughs) and then relieved. But you would be horrified because you would see some quite destructive both Earth-based events and many man-created events that have been stopped, not just in the last few years, but over the last five or six decades. And of course, it can go further back. But this last five or six decades has been critical because approaching 2024 was always a key marker point for this planet. And so there was always knowledge that things would heat up as you got closer to that moment in time. So things have been averted, but 
all of you, and this is why we say working on your own consciousness is vital. If you feel disempowered by your systems and you do not know how to empower your systems, start empowering your immediate system. Start figuring out how you can live in a higher vibration in your daily life, but also how you can give that to others, how you can affect others in that way. We will tell you this too. We know there are many out there who are frustrated by what we will call the dark shadows in some of your systems right now. It is going to get easier, especially uh, by the time you reach 2027. It will be far easier to permeate, uplift and shift these systems, even though right now the picture might look quite different to that reality. So those of you who do feel like crusaders for mm, systemization on the planet, not only are there already many people who have created technologies and ways for the future that you will be using, but that have not yet had their time or been allowed to be revealed, there are going to be a wave of you who are going to become more inspired as to how to mm, mm, upshift these systems, but you are waiting for the cracks in the window to appear, and they are going to appear with a rapid effect from 2023 to 2027 onwards. So this is, as they call it, the darkest hour before dawn, so to speak, yeah. one of those dark moments before dawn? Uh, we will tell you that the year of 2024 could be your darkest yet. Okay. And we say that not to scare, simply mm-hmm. to inform. We also will tell you timelines are yeah. not set. Yes. So we can be somewhat accurate within the next mm, five to ten years and uh, marginally accurate within the next hundred. And everything after that uh, gets a little harder for us and we have to reassess. Mm-hmm. We will tell you that uh, what we are seeing on the planet right now is it will be heart energy that will alleviate how dark things have to get in 2024. And we would implore all of you listening and watching, if you ever have a thought where you get annoyed at your fellow humans for not waking up sooner, for not getting it, uh, if you are blaming them for uh, what you see as the demise of, we will call it freedom or liberty on the planet, stop it. If you keep doing that, you will not help or serve them. Instead, what you have to do is come from your heart and recognize it is their fear that has them locked in that ideology and that emotion. And so the more you can come from love, awareness and wisdom, and the more you can find places and people where you can put that, there will be a ripple effect. It only needs approximately 30% of this planet to be awake enough to even be questioning what is going on not certain of what is going on but questioning Mm -hmm. and at the moment we see you at approximately a 25 to 26 percent moment that doesn't mean everybody thinks like you and that doesn't mean everybody has it all figured out Uh, but you are approaching the 30 percent that is required for a faster wave of consciousness to permeate. So don't blame another human being for not being what you think they should be in order for humanity to have a golden moment. Start looking at yourself and asking yourself some tough questions. Am I vibrating in a way that is helping to generate oneness, compassion, kindness, wisdom, love? Those are the things that are needed because human beings like evidence. They don't want to hear a concept. They want to see it, they want to feel it, they want to know it. So if you stand in front of them in your heart in a compassionate way with wisdom that makes sense to them and they feel it and they see it and they know it, they will believe you. 
If you angrily tell them concepts, uh, what are they going to hear? Anger. The concepts will be lost. Here, here, you're on fire. <laughs> I'm having so much fun with you today. And we are always happy to be with you for you are an ancient archivist. And it is a joy to see you playing out your role in such a human way and being the cosmic librarian for the world in the way that you are. Ha. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, for the benefit of the viewers, I just want to say what you just said around the year 2027. This has come up in other people's work that have had transmissions as well. Uh, the fellow Ra who did human design, uh, Richard Rudd, um, in his work also, this is starting to come up that 2027, they're saying, and I would love your thoughts on this, that this is an opening energetically where a new type of human, elevated human is going to be start coming in greater numbers. Yes, there are two sides to this. So, uh, the elevated humans are already here and uh, as many of you know, the children being born at this time and in this last decade have been particularly affected by these higher vibrations and consciousness, which is why so many of them are struggling to find their place and their way in a destabilizing world. And those of you who are parents, who are guardians or teachers who are having to figure out how to help these highly sensitive children, guess what? You're figuring out how to help yourself. Ha! <laughs> they are simply representing the part of you that was never allowed to be present on Earth. And just as you are having new beings coming in with this level of consciousness, so too are you going to go through quite the transformation. All of you. It's why so many of you have felt exhausted and thrown around by the energies in this last, particularly this last three years. You are being asked to drop density at a speed that is far faster than you could possibly realize because all of you are feeling the gravitational pull of this sun. Uh, and we have mentioned 2027. We will lay out a few dates. We have spoken for quite some years about the shift period of 2017 to 2024 being a challenging time on Earth, uh, a time on Earth where the dark tide rises mm -hmm. so the lighter tides can see it for what it is. And that is why uh, we will say that uh, your 2024, there are some potentials in that year that could be quite tough for many of you. But notice what happens to you when we say that. If you recoil and go into fear, you need to work with that. You need to understand you are taking something that we have said that is somewhat amorphous and hasn't given you specific details and your fear response has inflamed. So notice how fast that fear response inflames to the unknown and recognize that's how so many people over the last few years were able to be guided into fear and mm -hmm. their fear became the dominant mm, emotion. They stopped thinking clearly. Uh, that's why so many went to war with each other because fear was pumped across your world. So you're coming out of that period now and enough of you have learned what that period was, that you can be custodians, that if a similar scenario, and we don't mean in detail, but we mean in energetics, were to play out on Earth, more of you will be a little prepared for how to navigate this both personally and for yourself. The years between 2024 and 2027 have quite a arc to them. Uh, they are a little unpredictable, but what we will say is uh, there will be some wild uh, energy in those years. And there are many of you who feel quite wild right now and you don't like the control and it irritates you and you want to see uh, certain things being overthrown. 
uh, wait with your wildness for your wildness will be put to good work in those years where innovation will be a little easier. We're not saying it will all be fully allowed, but it will be harder to squash in that time frame. And it will take a swell of these, again, things that people can see, know, feel, trust for them to understand, ah, there was a better way. No one had ever allowed us to see it or led us in that direction. And of course, there will be many who will want to cling on to the old because it is known. So that is why this is such an important decade for all of you. But we would say one last thing, and we don't mean to be overly verbose in this answer, but it is so important. If you find yourself getting all caught up in what's going on on the planet, please remember you are going to die. You are going to die. You are going to leave this body. You are going to leave this identity. It might be tomorrow. It might be in 70 years. You are going to die. And this earth school that you are in is a school. And the more fixated you get on your fear of your own personal identity or bodily survival, the more trapped you become here. So pay attention to that. And also the despair that has overtaken so many people by feeling that events are literally out of our control, that people are getting away with things that we're watching, like watching uh, robbery in daylight and you can't do anything. Our hands are tied. So that despair and powerlessness that comes with that, it seems to me, are two of the critical emotions that we need to transform. Yes. And what you are seeing right now is a a global awakening around the uh, lack of relationship between your uh, power systems (laughs) and the people. Yes. And more people are beginning to see that than ever before. And the question is, what kind of world do you want to live in? A factory in which you are farmed? Or do you want to be a sovereign being in a collaborative and connected place. Now, some of you may not see that in your lifetime, depending on your age, but that is what you are here to help usher in. And some of you are here to build the foundations of that. And that is enough. You might not be the one putting the roof on, but you are going to be the one to help build the new house. And why are you interested in this? Why should this matter to you? Because why else did you incarnate? You did not come to this planet to play out old 16th century emotions and (laughs) wounds, uh, even though you see those playing out today and many of you run a mile from them. Yes, there are some younger souls who, for various reasons, have chosen to incarnate in that energetic imprint where the ancestry is concerned. But for most of you, that's not why you came here. Finally, if we can just get to the longer time frame of the next 5200 years, which is mentioned in Lee's book. Well, firstly, your galactic not only origins, but also connections will be fully known within that time frame. So not only will this idea of Earth and humanity as a species and place by itself disconnected from the rest of the world, the the universe be eradicated, um, you will also be having more of a we will call it galactic experience now. Your minds tend to go to mm, 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 your traditional ways of viewing this. So you think of what you have been shown, the spaceships or the uh, alien invasion or the those kinds of ideas will float through your mind. So be mindful of what you interpret. We will tell you that you are all in your galactic origin right now. 
as a human uh, soul, as the new <laughs> human soul, you are all in your galactic origin. And have you not noticed how galactic information, galactic awareness uh, and galactic, we will call it music, but you would call it mm, frequency and vibration is permeating Earth's consciousness more and more. And one of the biggest issues that you have is this mm, war mentality of separation and othering. If you are determined that you are the right race or the right species or the right gender and that everyone else is less than you, uh, may God help you <laughs> because you are going to have one hell of a time in the coming 50 years. You are going to have an almighty reckoning with some of those egoic and fixed ideas and emotions. That is why you are seeing so many people, uh, we will say, excuse our language, lose their shit right now as they are beginning to mm, 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 have things explode around them that they used to rely on and that used to support their identity and their nature. That is why you are seeing such a fight playing out on Earth. So we will say the next 50 to 100 years is the moment where Earth gets to reconnect with its galactic origins in both energetic and psychic ways, but also some literal ways that will help free many of you on Earth, or at least we will say the human template that has been in existence, including the way that you have treated animals and nature historically. All of that mm -hmm. is set to change because you cannot uh, go to a higher level of consciousness uh, without eradicating and undoing so many of these systems and fences that have been built that held the old consciousness in place, but that would only limit the new consciousness from arriving and being manifest in form on Earth. Okay, I think you've left everybody breathless. What a fascinating body of information uh, you've shared with us today. And I wish I could, well, I'm giving you a virtual hug for all the passion you've brought to the table. Thank you so much. And we'll let Lee come back now until next time. Thank you again. In peace and in love to all. Ha. Hi. Whoa. Okay. That never. You turned it off. Oh, it was No, he had to say goodbye. It's okay. Um, I disagree. Yeah, I agree. This is the time where that statement uh gets uh addressed you might say it is not our fate and that's my take on this um i'm just jumping around everywhere i i am having a strong emotion of wanting to play more music mm. um so uh i think that's what we'll do uh I thought maybe I'd just read Caroline's little message mm -hmm. first. We'll let all the rest of the other stories go. But um, Caroline's message with the uh, with the uh, the the ascended light the light workers message. She's starting to uh, send her message out, out messages out now. It says with German translation. So Germany's getting a dose in German of uh, the masters and the the uh, the guidance. This week's guidance from the ascended masters, galactics, earth elements, fey elders, angelic legions, archangels, and other divine beings. 
known as the collective. Greetings, friends. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you again. At this moment, you are traveling through a field of light that is unprecedented, both for your galaxy and for your planet. And so be aware and I just got to step aside and say, you know, all these predictions that are coming through. Things are moving and changing very fast. And expect the unexpected. I'm just going to say that. It's our perception of all of these things that changes the world. And uh, Love is all there is. I will refrain from any more further uh, content of comments. But as we go on here, so be aware of certain shifts occurring that you may not be expecting. For one, time will appear to move far more slowly, far more and far more quickly some days than you have experienced on the earth plane previously. There were times in your distant past, such as in Lemuria or Atlantis or other great civilizations, that you could work with time via mental projection so as to extend, slow, or hasten the movement of minutes and hours per your preference. Now these times are returning, though not with your complete awareness as of yet regarding how to work with time or distance so as to shorten or lengthen it according to your preference or need. What you are experiencing also are waves of energetics, energies that are revealing aspects of your psyche at a very deep level such as you have not had experience of for many thousands of years. Your physical body is likewise beginning to function differently to prepare for higher frequency matter. And so you may feel that things are out of sorts there as well as in some ways. Uh, As Earth reawakens and shifts according to what she is evolving into you yourselves are also shifting you may find yourself suddenly realizing something you had not consciously known before or suddenly viewing an old situation very differently than how you have viewed it in the recent past or getting glimpses of future events with the feeling they have already happened. True. Let me turn the page here. Momentito. And so, now, co-creators and magicians of this universe that you are, breathe in and out with deliberate intent to remain in this time and to flow with the shifts rather than suppress or avoid them. Now is the day to open wide your arms 
to open your heart to proclaim yes to that same universe that birthed your soul so long ago. Stand tall. You are reclaiming your beauty, your uniqueness, your power for your own life, for millions of others. For this you came. Namaste, friends. We are with you always. This is not who you are. This is a trans transcript from a video that we're not listening to the whole thing, but this is not who you are, light worker. These fearful, mincing steps as you move into this new paradigm. Yes, the world has changed. You, you yourself, have prayed and commanded this forward. You move in leaps and strides. You are the true light so many have desired, releasing the lies and misleadings of the old era. Come forward now. Pull your sword from, their, from its sheath and see it glint in the sunlight. Stand taller than you ever have. And you, and know your true name and your true nature, claims this, claim this now, powerful light being. All the angelics of the higher realms reach, reaches are behind you, ready to assist, ready to assist. Turn the page here. Okay. He is in a state of renewal, such as he has not seen before, and similar to the earth. Life within him is also shifting powerfully, and all of you are feeling the effects of this. You are beginning to remember your gifts. In the distant past, some of you were great artists or composers, working with the music of the spheres to shift consciousness to higher levels. Some of you were great healers, using color, light, and sound vibration to heal. Some of you were priests, scientists, or seers, whose visions led whole cultures to higher vibrational forms of living. Others were ambassadors, joining worlds in peaceful accord and intercultural cooperation. Now is the time you begin to remember your true gifts, long hidden for your own safety. And now is the time you begin to recognize and find again true soul family members, true soul mates, true alliances of thought and purpose. We realize that it is a time that feels to be of great shakeup, where nothing is quite as it was and was un and with un and the uncertainty of life crowds in some ways in s of of life crowds in some days making it a world that is hard to take unless one remains solidly in the present moment and fully in the breath and the body Yet you looked forward to this moment, despite the uncertainty and tumult. You looked forward to this great changeover, to higher forms of living and higher consciousness. 
than humanity has ever known or has known for millennia at least. And that's the end. That's the end of that. Okay. Let's just go ahead and jump into this uh, musica. Here we go. <laughs> In so many ways, we relate to the Christmas story because it happened in such humble circumstances. In a crowded village, a, a common stable, a lowly manger bed. But the account of the holy birth is universal in another way. The Christ child was born into a family. And today, whether our families are large or small, whether we're happily together or alone and apart, the spirit of Christmas deepens our desire for family, for the one we have and the one we hope will be. That is so true, Neil. There's nothing more that I love uh, than being home with my husband and our two beautiful children during the holidays. Now, we decorate early in November on our wedding anniversary, and Christmas morning we always make my mother's famous cheesy potato casserole. It's delicious. It's times like those that we feel connection to parents and even ancestors. Now, I'm part Irish, and my husband is very Irish. Both his grandparents came from Ireland. I mean, his last name's Gallagher, so it doesn't get much more Irish than that. So, when the holidays come around, we naturally inherit a bit of the Irish whimsy and fun. Wherever you come from, here is a tribute to family, to my family and yours this Christmas. ages and backgrounds, like the figurines in a Christmas crèche, when we gather around the manger, when we see one another across the manger, we become one, which is why we sing Noel at Christmas. It's a word that means birth, and nothing brings the world together like the birth of a child. So we say, Noel, everyone, the child is born. And as we celebrate his birth, we become family. From the lowliest of servants to the masters in this hall. From Ireland in the late 40s and early 50s, they met each other in Boston. And they raised us six kids with such a love for our homeland. Now, even though my wife, Reve, is from South Africa, and our five children were born in Los Angeles, we're never far from my 
Irish heritage, for which I'm so grateful. I'm really honored to share part of that heritage tonight with you. Come to him this holy night, Lord, In a manger, none supposing he is Christ, the Lord all knowing. Come to him this holy night. In Ireland, the land of my ancestors, Christmas traditions have given the holidays a profound sense of meaning and purpose. They help families welcome the Christ child into their lives, both on Christmas Day and throughout the year. For the generations before me, that meant cleaning the barn, whitewashing the cottage, scrubbing floors, ironing linens, and cooking a special meal for family coming home. As the Irish love to say, There's no hearth like your own hearth. Or in other words, there's no place like home. And that's especially true at Christmas. Now today, while our family lives far from Emerald Isle, we still get ready for Christmas in some of the traditional ways. But our most important preparation has to do with our hearts, with remembering others, reconciling differences, and returning kindnesses. Even the old Irish custom of a Christmas morning dip in the icy sea. Well, that was an invitation to wash away the old and begin anew. To welcome the Christ child into hearts made clean and pure for him.
across the island. The Irish live simply, but that doesn't keep them from decorating their homes for Christmas. And the most universal decoration is available to both rich and poor alike. It's the humble holly bush with its thorn leaves and bright red berries. In the days of my grandparents, children would be sent out to scour the hills for holly branches, which would then be fashioned into a traditional wreath and hung on the wooden cottage door. It made perfect sense back then, for holly is a symbol of the holy child, a child who would one day wear a crown of thorns and whose drops of blood would symbolize his sacrifice for all humankind. That sharp crown and those crimson droplets are a reminder that none of us suffer alone. And for believers in Christ, it's an assurance that he was born to heal, comfort, and redeem us from the sorrows of life. This is perhaps the most comforting symbol of all, that the spirit of Christmas is the spirit of hope and making the holidays truly holy days now and all year through. Gloria! <laughs> I hope music is to you what it is to me. <laughs> A song for the soul. Let's mm. sing this song, everyone. It's us. It's on us. It really is. I want to share what Tanya Gabrielle had to say. Um, Toriana inspired me. She wanted to know a few things and just inspired me in this direction. So this is, uh, today is 1515. Mercury trying Uranus. How to be empowered by optimism. Mercury is trying to Uranus today, setting up wonderful opportunities for awakening and breakthroughs. In short, all weekend, you will be more conscious of how your thoughts create your reality. What makes this day and astrology time even more powerful is the code. December 17 is a 17-8 universal day. 12-17-2022 adds up to a 17-8 universal date. 17-17 doubles up the hugely rewarding immortality number. And so we go to this next little piece here. Plus, Uranus and Mercury will both be at 15 degrees. The spiritual alchemist number. 15 activates love. It activates abundance. It activates fortunate flow and upliftment through joy. What an empowering and optimistic star code. Since these two planets both 
have to do with media, mind, and communication, you are especially aware of how you communicate to others and think. Did you know you are consciously, consistently broadcasting everything you are thinking and feeling in your field for others to feel? Whatever you believe, whoops, you emit energetically. Whatever you are afraid of immediately weakens your auric field, your bioelectric field, your organs themselves. Your cells are organs, your, excuse me, your cells, your organs, here, every single thing that you say inside and what you say outside. Mercury sextile Uranus reveals something vital about our beliefs. You can feel as though you're living in the same world, the same vicinity, the same neighborhood, the same room with other people, yet by beliefs and ideas, you actually would not be in the same world at all. Just by their beliefs, two people who are passing each other or chatting can have a completely different experience. One could be walking around in fear while the other person delights in life itself. Two different worlds by belief. As you focus your attention on what you're afraid of, you are easily manipulated by the external, since you have by default chosen the external as your guide, as your guide system instead of your intuition. So, this lovely, harmonious trine between Mercury and Uranus invites you to trust your intuition. Be inspired by optimism. And that's not to say all you see are butterflies and roses all day. Rather, it is to be grounded, to be realistic, to be practical and consciously engaged in taking the high road, not personalizing other people's opinions and behaviors, making lemonade out of lemons, and consistently asking your higher self, what do I need to be aware of this in, to be aware of in this situation? It's to invoke your inner greatness, not proclaim to feel great all the time. Always allow your heart to be heard. Let this weekend be a celebration of your natural optimism. Then, Mercury trying Uranus will inspire you to laugh. Joyful blessings, Tanya Gabrielle. Stunning. Stunning times we are in. 
2023. Expect the unexpected. St. Germain is a wild man. Would you not say so, Rama? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. Here it comes. We got uh, feathers and fairies and angels and crystals and rainbows and kitty cats here. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what's in that... Uh, Shed out there, I guess bunny rabbits and more kitties. <laughs> we haven't had any extra visitors lately, have we, Rama? No. It's just us chickens, and I'm passing it to you, Rainbird. You've got uh, at least one puppy, I think, right? Oh, yeah. I got a puppy. I got two kitties. Oh. Uh-huh. I, I, I got a new kitty. This year, last summer, it showed up. Um, my son's found, um, probably, I think there was three kittens in the creek down the road, and they just picked them up and brought them home, and one took one kitten, and the other kitten, one kitten got here, and another kitten went to the neighbor, and I think she took it to the pound, but there you go. That's where the kittens went, and... So I got one, and, and she's a tiger lily. So she's Tilly the tiger lily. Tilly the tiger lily. Uh huh. Oh. How does she answer? I mean, do you, what do you say that whole? I thing? call her Tilly all the time. Tilly. Tilly, <laughs> Tilly Willie, the Nelly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. What kind? Yes. Of- kind of kitty is she she's she's a rare tiger female because they're usually male when they're tiger kitties but this is a female wow yeah and she's got yellow eyes to match her yellow fur which is turning orange and yeah and she's big she's just growing and growing and growing she's getting big my gosh, you got a little blind lady there, huh? Uh huh. Well, she's wild too. I mean, she doesn't even know what walking is. She runs everywhere she goes. She's <laughs> 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 yeah, pretty hilarious. But she'll play soccer with you, tennis ball with you. She's fun with that. <laughs> yeah, she plays and she talks. You can. You can have a conversation with her, and she meows. I mean, in conversation, it's a different meow according to her response. <laughs> so she's got her own language for sure. Oh yeah, she's got it. And I'm always hearing your kitty on the on the on the uh, phone, and I think it's mine. And I'm going around <laughs> looking for her, and it's on you. It's your kitty doing it. <laughs> Yeah, we I, we have uh, three here, but usually it's a it's a tie between the two of them, Tigger and uh, Tegan. Uh, both. Oh, you got a Tigger and a Tegan? Yes, but they're both girls. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've got uh, White Paw. 
She's been with us since uh, 2012. I remember. I remember Whitehall. Yeah, she's still the 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 granny of the bunch here. She's here, mm-hmm. and she's in the room. She's up on the top of the cat tree, <laughs> hogging <laughs> the top of the cat tree. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Well, Kelly was called Tigger for a while when we figured out she was a boy. They called her a boy at the Humane Society when she got checked out. But she's a girl, and I changed her name to Tilly, so there you go. Tilly, Tigger, (laughs) Tegan. (laughs) And what about the other kitty? I haven't heard anything. Is that a a quieter kitty? He's on my lap, and and he's purring, and his name is Tommy. Oh, he looked. He looks like Tom the Ringtail Cat, so I named him Tommy the Ringtail Cat. Oh, jeez! Tom, Tom the Ringtail Cat's got a lot of uh, a lot of namesakes around here. Does he? <laughs> I bet Tom. he does. Who else, Rama? Mm. We know somebody else that has name. I can't remember right now. Well, we're getting in the spirit, aren't we, Rainbow? Oh, yeah. We're getting in the spirit. We're getting in the spirit for sure. It's going to get really cold and remind us that it is winter. <laughs> so we have that coming. And, yes. yeah, lots of lots of joy. Joy to the world. Let's just bring it in. That's what will bring in the sorrow, right? Let's be in joy. Yes, I got from the lot of what our friends were saying, our two gentlemen, that we're the ones that are making it happen. I mean, yeah. they really made it clear. I I so enjoyed their conversation. My goodness. Oh yeah, I I we all did, and and it does make it clear what our role is is to, to smile. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, be enjoy. So, lots of gratitude for today, and, whoa, it'll be Christmas when we come back next week, won't it? So, it will. We'll see uh-huh. you in uh, no time, no time at all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. I look forward to reporting back and letting you know <laughs> what my next journey will be. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, lots of gratitude. So here comes that talking stick, Rama. It's real, coming your way. Okay. Well, tell us what you got, Rama. What you got? Um, a penny sent this. This is... Penny sent. Oh, boy. We're in for a treat. Yeah. Which one is first? Um... This is hallelujah. Nice and loud so everybody can hear Hallelujah. Hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. Hallelujah chorus from from Handel's Handel's Messiah. Oh, let's do it. That sounds wonderful. Okay. (laughs) Forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, music of the spheres. Let's keep our spirits in that high place. <clears throat> the energies keep going higher, as I understand. Right, Emma? Mm-hmm. 
and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I guess I'm the eternal optimist, right? Yeah. You too. All right. Happy birthday, Doug, and it's really your birthday now. And Don, pass it on to your wonderful brother, Don, and may you enjoy greatly the 54th year of living. (laughs) It's a completion year. You're going to get to complete a lot of things, making room for new beginnings everywhere in a pretty serious way now because... um, I just know uh, the time for helping peace in the world be a reality and stabilizing it is the higher will, you might say. And I believe people in their hearts want peace. And uh, I'm going to stick to it. So. All right, so world peace now. And we'll see you in the light of the most radiant one. Come to Cheryl's uh, meditation calls. Haven't brought that up for a while. Uh, Every single Sunday and Monday evening. Um, It's a very um, powerful thing to gather uh, for, for peace. And to affirm it in every way and to connect with that higher path that we all came here to to walk on. So here's the number, 425 425-436-6260. 425-436-6260. And the pin is 946-7441 pound. Again, 946-7441 pound. And um, it's on Sunday evening tomorrow and Monday evening every week. And it starts mountain time around 10 minutes of the hour of 7 here. So, Eastern Time, 10 of 9, and of course, Pacific Time, 10 of 6. So, see you there, wishing you deep inner peace and joy and happiness. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. 13 thank yous. Honey in the heart, no evil, live long and prosper. Aloha, mahalo nui loa. Melakaliki maka, coming up. Namaste.